So this leads directly, though, into Val's most psychotic era, in my opinion, which is... 198? Yes. <laughs> she becomes Hitler's secretary or whatever? <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest Patrick Sullivan, artist extraordinaire, art director at Simon Element at Simon & Schuster. Returning from episode 10 on Mystique, it is now 50 episodes later. This is episode 60. In that episode, we joked around about perhaps doing an episode on, as Patrick called her, the bitch Val Cooper. (laughs) A character who is pretty essential to Mystique's publication history. And I want to thank you for stepping in, Patrick, because my initial guest, Zach Rabaroff, had to pull out, but everybody give Zach some love. He'll be back on the pod when he is able. Patrick, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thank you so much for having me back. Much like Val Cooper, I've learned very little since the last time we've been (laughs) together, and I plan to repeat all my same mistakes. Val's commitment to doing pretty much the exact same thing every time is a little bit admirable. It's really, really good. I mean, we'll get into it, but her, her, her level of reset is sort of like continuity proof. It's just... No matter how many storylines, character arcs, tragedies, Valerie Cooper experiences, whenever she pops back up under a new writer, they just kind of set her back to basics. And I love that for her, honestly. Me too. She's not unlike Mystique that way, actually, where I feel like whenever Raven comes back after she's been gone for a while, it's like, here I am, I'm Mystique and I'm a nut, you know? <laughs> right, right. Though I feel the, the as a counterweight to Mystique, and the reason they're counterweights to each other is those similarities, but in the sense that Val does so with um, a very little central uh, thesis to her mission statement in my in, in my read of it. <laughs> oh, I mean, Val's politics are very confusing, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll get to that because I think that the smartest way to tackle this, since she is a supporting character will be to go through chronologically sure. once we get there and just sort of be like, here's what the story is because it is. Kind of wild, yeah. her whole trajectory. The Liz Cheney of the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> I always say the Ainsley Hayes. That's so X-Men. funny. Like from so, the West Wing. Well, I, I will get into it, but that is that was my original headcast, 100% because of that. 100% Emily Proctor mm-hmm. as Valerie Cooper. Still, honestly, to this day. Like, she's a little older now, but I think she'd kill that. Yeah. Well, we already talked about your journey to the X-Men franchise and your great love for Mystique on the Mystique episode, which people should go back to, by the way. That is an underrated banger of an app, in my opinion. Early days. Yeah, I was still working the kinks out. Some of the audio is not great, but you know I'm what? sure that's I think exclusively it's... <laughs> my fault, but... <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually just got an email from someone who's in the backlog and like, I'm on episode 19. I was just wondering if maybe you could fix some of the uh, audio balance issues. They're like, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm like... You're not being mean. Unfortunately, I can't go back in time and we're on episode also, I'm recording episode 60 tonight. I'll let you know when we're soliciting notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm self-taught. This is like pirate radio out here. We're just doing it. I'm sitting right now in my sister's childhood bedroom on this, the fifth night of Hanukkah to uh, talk about Valerie Cooper. Sure. And you know what? 
I'm going to edit all my fucking self. Like, so. she, would, like she would do. <laughs> exactly. Though she would not celebrate Hanukkah. <laughs> no, she really wouldn't. This is about the waspiest character mm-hmm. you could encounter this side of Janet Van Dyne. L'chaim. How have you been enjoying the Mystique content recently, though? Because the Mystique fans are eating. I know. And so I, it's, it's actually sort of unreal to me. And it almost feels like sort of a grand apology from the universe. Because I think we, we probably must have talked about this the first time. But during the Days of Future Past movie era and the Jennifer Lawrence of it all, uh-huh. I was so at odds with myself because I was like, I cannot believe that every fucking bus that drives past me has a giant picture of Raven Darkholm on it and I feel nothing. And I don't want to see this movie, <laughs> yeah. right. And I'm like, how? <laughs> how is this possible? Uh, and so finally, and to not only be getting such solid Mystique stuff, but solid Destiny stuff is, is really well, the fact my that mind. Destiny's She's the main character. Back. She's the main character. <laughs> She's the main mind. character. Yeah, yeah, it's it's literally the new era yeah. that is about to begin in spring 2022 destiny of x i'm and that's my my, my goal i'm let's try a little carefully because i'm i'm a couple issues behind like i don't know why what looks to be gene or hope or somebody's wearing uh xavier's cerebro hat that's not it it's not okay. a huge spoiler so you're you're fine but i won't talk too much too much about but I'm, it i'm pretty caught up i'm pretty caught up. have you read inferno one yes, and two yes Okay, that's really all you need to avoid. Yeah, burn it down, baby. To avoid being spoiled. Burn it down. What I love is that Hickman's Irene, upon her return, has been very in keeping with the Peter David destiny from that annual that we talked about in the Mystique episode mm-hmm. that became the first Krakoa Welcomes Cerebro animatic. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, was... <laughs> Which is now an institution, but the inspiration was... We had to do it to him. Someone saying that they listened to that to us telling that story and imagined it like drunk history. And Krakoa was like, I could make that. That's something I could do. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we, if we don't get one of those, I'll be disappointed. So Provided by Alan Chuck Travel. Yeah. <laughs> I think about that all the time. But that great wit, Destiny, mm-hmm. as we punked me again, Destiny, she now is just like being a witty bitch yeah. at all times. And I love that. I'm really into it. And she has this sort of, he correctly understands her sensuality as well, which is really crucial. Like she just sort of slicks around the story, which is great. Mm -hmm. And I do love that she came back like 40-ish, but we didn't realize at first because her legs have always looked that good with the mask on. It wasn't until she took it off in Inferno 2 that I was like, oh, she's young again. It didn't even occur to me. I like that she's not too young. It's like, oh, it's when we first met. I was a little, I was a little upset that she was young. Um, I, I have to say, but I will. Uh, I'm curious how the that thing is. She's with... not immortal, right. Like Raven is. So I get if you're going to bring her back, you are not going to bring her back at age 120 that she was when she died. Mm-hmm. But she says, Irene, it's the age we were when you and I met. I was like challenged on this on Twitter, and they were like, because like comic book ages are not real, but right. Here's the thing about Irene Adler. Irene Adler is a Sherlock Holmes character, and we have a date of birth for Irene Adler, which Mm -hmm. is that she was born in 1860. And so if she meets Raven around 1900, she's come back in her 40s, which I think is fine. Like, she can be Rachel Weisz instead of Holland Taylor, and it's okay. Yeah. But, you know, I will miss Granny Stunton on him with those legs. Oh, that was a fun beat. But the thing is, she's just going to wear the mask all the time, probably. So it doesn't see. I hope so. I don't love seeing matter. her face in general. Like, I'm always a little. No, I yeah. always am like, no, put the put, put the creepy mask back let's on. Let's try it back on. <laughs> I love the mask let's on. Let's get that put it right back, back on. on you. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad that they are reunited at last. I'm glad that you are enjoying it. And I can't wait to see what's next. I'm sure Val would be thrilled to know that we've spent 10 minutes talking about Mystique on her big and episode. Destiny. And Destiny. Yeah, no, Val's episode. favorite people. Yeah. Dr. Valerie Cooper, for listeners who may not be aware, apart from all of the jokes that I've told about Val Cooper on this podcast, <laughs> is a supporting character who Chris Claremont introduced as an antagonist. She was initially introduced as basically like, you think Henry Peter Geirich's an asshole? Wait until you get a load of this bitch. Yeah. She's like, well, we need to um, impress mutants into service and use them as weapons against our enemies. And he's like, Magneto always said that the government would enslave mutants. Are you going to prove him right? And she's like, I don't know, Mr. Gyrick. Do you think the Russians have any hesitation about it? And it's a really good Reagan era oh, yeah. sequence. And that's her debut. It's just like coming out swinging like, yes, let's enslave them and use them as weapons of mass destruction. She has, in the time since, been more of a friend to the X-Men than a foe. It's sort of a, a long, complicated arc. I would call her the X-Men's best frenemy. 100%. There's one point in Mackie X-Factor when Forge says to her, no matter how much you want to be a mutant, Valerie, you're not one of us. And she's clearly, like, kind of put out by it. She's wrecked by it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very interesting to me about the idea of her as almost someone chasing the high of, like, being around mutants and being with mutants. I mean, she's a parable for the limits of allyship. Exactly. That's sort of her whole deal. So Valerie Cooper is a special advisor to President Reagan on superhuman affairs. Who isn't? Well, he's not dealing with the gays, so somebody's got to deal with the mutants. Right. One minority at a time, and I'm certainly not going <laughs> to help those faggots over there. So what are the muties up to, Dr. Cooper? She is pretty classic Claremont in that she's hyper-competent, way better at her job than Gyrick is but also a total monster in a way that is funny. Speaking of the West Wing, what is her doctorate in? Is she a doctor of letters? (laughs) Is she a doctor of medicine? My recollection, she has a PhD. It's not an MD. Oh, I bet she does, honey. Um... I what I wonder if that's ever been said. Let me I'm actually I'm Googling. No, I'm fascinated. Valerie Cooper, PhD. We know she's a PhD because she went to college with Spider Woman, Julia Carpenter, which we'll get into (laughs) because that's some fucked up shit that Val Cooper does. It really is. (laughs) Let's see. Ah, she's a she's a psychologist. She's a PhD in psychology. That makes sense because she's always playing mind games with them. You know what I mean? It's true. Oh, and the backstory with Wild Child is all about her being brought in to be his You have strength. to fill me in about that because he's like a sad boy when she meets him. It's fully crazy and we'll get there because okay. it's a retcon and we're going to go crazy we're gonna retcon, go right? Okay. Yeah. I didn't even know they were the same because that's Kyle Gibney, right? Kyle Gibney, yes, who is currently on the Hellions. Right but was on Mackie X-Factor in that 90s period and mostly as an Alpha Flight character. And was like a Muppets animal situation. Kind of, yeah. But like, that's an episode I'm not looking forward to because his continuity is a full-on nightmare. Okay, I'm glad to hear you say this because I was like, I was brushing up, <laughs> brushing up on my Val Cooper stuff and I was like, that's the same guy? I didn't even, I didn't know. So he's had many different sort of 
incarnations over time. Like he was like a hot normal guy for a while, and then he's like a weird golem creature sometimes. That happened to me too. <laughs> I know, right? For a while, he was in the Frank Terry Weapon X, which is a place nobody really wants to be, and there he was turned into a mute feral animal and Aurora, who had gone crazy, Mm. walked him around on a leash and used him to kill people. Isn't he still on a leash? Well, yeah, but it was was a lot more um, BDSM. Did people do that in in your high school? Because people did that in my high school. And my sister says it's back because she's a teacher and she says that she sees kids on leashes again from other kids, like goth couples doing the the leash business. Which, you know, not going to kink shame. I'm just curious. If I think back. I was too uh, in the suburbs for that. Right. To ha- like we were, we, it was that, that was the era where like girls got sent home for wearing spaghetti strap tops. So oh, I don't God. think that the leashes at my school would have. There were some kids that were sort of impervious to those kinds of rules. And <laughs> oh, my favorite was shout out to Alex Shaheen, yeah. a queen. She won. Sorry, Alex, if you don't want me to share this on a podcast. Uh, Too late. Sure, I'll run into you in town at some point. Our vice principal, Ms. Stahl, who was pretty great, actually, but she did have to enforce this stupid dress code, had these huge T-shirts that said fashion by BHHS, which was Byram Hills High School, which is where I went to high school. If a girl came in in a spaghetti strap top, they would be given one of these ugly, huge T-shirts and had to put it on. Because that's less distracting for other kids. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, let's just march them through the halls like the scarlet lettered whore. Right. You know, (laughs) I know it's just uh, the aughts were a time, Mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. Alex Shaheen, who was a classmate of mine, one day she got given one and she went to... I guess, like, the bathroom or something and cut it into a tank top and came back out in a fashion by BHHS tank top. Hell which yeah. I thought was a serve. Does she still have it? I hope so. Alex, if you're listening, she, there's no way Alex Shaheen is listening to my podcast. That's the exact I should reach out. kind of thing that I would have stand. And I would have, like, worshipped her in high school. <laughs> she was fun. She was fun. We reunited many years later because we were both at a Countess Luann show. <gasps> wow. It's a small world. Yeah. It wasn't even a real Countess Luann show. It wasn't the cabaret. It didn't happen yet. It was Andy Cohen presented Countess Luann's new single, Money Can't Buy You Class, at Splash Bar in Manhattan. Oh, sort, of a, in Chelsea. sort of a 54 above situation. <laughs> it was very much a 54 above. Got it. I believe it was Luann's first live stage appearance. God, Splash. That's closed, right? Oh, it's very closed. Okay. That is a that is a dark specter of my youth. Now, honestly, Same. Campus Thursdays was <laughs> where I learned where I learned every Ooh. every trick the in the book. Eighteen plus Campus Thursdays. Certainly. That is a that is a dark period of my under twenty one life. A real real Weapon X for me. My strongest memory of Splash is one year I was there on New Year's Eve because I couldn't like I didn't want to pay for any of the parties that were like three hundred dollars or whatever. So I went to Splash because it was like seventy bucks. Yeah. And um, I did a bump in the bathroom and then I walked outside and I'm like 22 maybe. And I'm, you know, gacked up. Mm -hmm. Don't do drugs, kids, if you're listening and you're... Yeah, impressionable you. It was okay ten years ago. You should not. It do was it a now. different time. <laughs> don't do drugs. That well, certainly don't do them now. Honestly, truly, if you are listening, don't do cocaine right now in Brooklyn. Don't do cocaine right now. It's real it's dangerous really right bad. now. There's it's cut with all kinds of shit. You don't want to do it. Truly, so, don't do it. Or you know what? Actually, PSA: If you're gonna do it, because I'm not your mother, or like test order it or whatever. some fentanyl test strips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah gets, you can get them online and and carry Narcan. But point is, that's how Val would do it. That's what Val would do. Right. More to the point. So I, I walk out of the bathroom at Splash and um, 
a dance remix of Someone Like You by Adele starts playing. <laughs> and this was when the song was pretty new. It was like when 21 was like at the top of the yeah. charts for a year or whatever. Kept Lana Del Rey from number one that whole year. Born to Die was number two right behind Adele. And I always was love Adele, but I was a little pissed. I yeah. was like, you could give her one week, Adele. But anyway, I remember thinking that I had had like a full on break from reality <laughs> because it was like, never mind, I'll find oots, oots, someone like you. God, I know we're trashing this place, but you're making me so nostalgic. <laughs> I want to be there right now. I know, same. In our hearts. Mm-hmm. In our hearts, mm-hmm. we're there right now. Anyway, um, off topic, back on topic. What's your origin with Valerie Cooper? So I was at Splash at Campus Thursdays. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I was a I, I, I was a kid. I was I was just getting into X Men from my like brother's older my older brother's friends and the cartoon and what have you it was it was all over the place. X Men was everywhere when I was ten. Mm-hmm. But I was also very much getting into just general reading actual books. And at the time, they had just started those. Uh, I think it was the first one in the series. I, f- I absolutely forget the guy's name who wrote them, but the X-Men Mutant Kingdom or Mutant Empire books. Michael Golden. Michael Golden. There's a question about those. Oh my God, I cannot <laughs> wait. I hope I can answer it. So there's three I'm of- I'm sorry, Christopher Golden. Christopher Golden. Christopher oh, Golden. Golden. Um, there's three sorry. of them. And the first one is Siege, I think. Michael Golden did the Micronauts. I'm sorry. I was just like, there's. A, it was the wrong Golden in my head, but please continue. I found the book at Book Review, probably, which is the local bookstore, R.I.P., that just closed this year uh, in my hometown. And I was like, they make X-Men books? They did do those prose novels at one point. Funny story, actually, because last week was the Sauron episode, and I forgot to mention it, but I had the prose novel that was about Sauron and Tanya and the X-Men <laughs> fighting the child and the mutates. A really logical starting point for a novel. Yeah. We got to get a Sauron novel going off the ground. Hot Sauron novel. So you were reading, I believe it was Mutant Empire. Mutant Empire Book One Siege, I think is what it was called. And yeah, so half of it is about Magneto taking over Manhattan, which is at the time was like my favorite trope. I loved when someone took over Manhattan. I love taking over Manhattan. I love when Magneto does it. I love when the Muppets do it. I love when anyone takes over Manhattan. And he does so with like you reprogram some sentinels and whatnot. It happens right before onslaught, but some other, what's the other one? What's the, what's the one where Colossus are mad at him? <laughs> uh, fatal attractions. Fatal attractions. Where he, yeah. It's right. It happens right before fatal attractions in it. It's non-canon, but it's, they don't mention the X factor. They don't mention a, a, a lot of things going on, but, but Val is there and she is part of the government team that wants to save New York. And she's, Gyrick is there as well. And when you meet her in that, she is full, Reagan era. She's full. Fully. Yeah. She's a survivor. She wants to just get through. She's a bureaucrat. I don't get any warmth from her towards Mutantum in, in that book. And so that kind of colored my perception of her for a long time, even though I liked her. I liked, to me at the time, she was fully squarely a villain, but in sort of a Callista Flockhart, <laughs> girl bossy, Alan McBeal way that I <laughs> was really into at the time. Actually, you know who she is, if we're going to go to Ally McBeal? She was Nell. Oh, she's the yeah. Portia de Rossi character from Ally McBeal. She, exactly that. Portia de Rossi would be an incredible MCU Valerie Cooper. I know she's retired, but I feel like for a Marvel movie, she'd come out. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
And like you said earlier, Ainsley Hayes, I was really into the West Wing at the time. Still am. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ainsley was my favorite character on the West Wing because it was the same kind of energy. I was like, I don't agree with anything she's saying. But no. She's so funny. But she's so funny. And, you know, who doesn't <laughs> like to see Rob Lowe get read to filth on every, exactly. every possible occasion? The funniest thing about Ainsley Hayes is that she was based on Ann Coulter. No one told her face. So you... <laughs> But you would think that a fictionalized version would be more extreme. And as time went on and Ann Coulter became more and more and more extreme, Ainsley Hayes looks positively quaint. Well, these people, I mean, these people are beyond, it's not even satire. These people are beyond. You can't even pastiche no, them. No, no. You know, it, it, it's it like, would, you know, West Wing was unbelievable enough. If you just transcribed shit Ann Coulter says into that show, people would be like, this is Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> say it, could you say it in your New Zealand accent? Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that's where we are. Lucy Lowless in Battlestar Galactica <laughs> as Dina Bees is a little bit Valerie Cooper energy. Absolutely. She's I, I I would I would take Lucy as more of a Trish, but I Sure, sure, because she was a reporter. I just mean when she's Spoilers for Battlestar Galactica. Oh. Whoop, whoop, whoop. I mean when she's like number three sure. and she's doing her Cylon stuff. She has kind of like a But actually, I mean, really, Laura Roslin is a very Val Cooper yeah. kind of character yeah. also. God, I love that show. It's really testament to where this character comes from that there are so many people that we could point to from pop culture from like 84 to like mid-90s. Well, that's the thing about the Chris Claremont X-Men and genre fiction in particular is that you can see it everywhere. Like once you've read the 80s X-Men, you look at just about any nerd thing produced in the 90s mm-hmm. or the early aughts and it's all of everything or you get the stuff that's inspired by Buffy but that's like just one step removed right you know what and also quite literally in like in the actual text I feel it used to engage a lot more squarely with actual current political hierarchy and like yeah we know who the current president is in Marvel in 616 I think these days they tend to just say the president right and then it's like, but, sometimes, like, but I remember there were every once in a while, maybe because they were like, we were all hype about it. You would see that he was black. <laughs> there was a comic where it was like Spider-Man meets Obama. Right. But usually I think, honestly, I think during the Trump era, they kind of decided to be more right. discreet yeah. about who the president was. Because if you're not, it just becomes a whole. Right. Like, we don't want to think about how the superheroes are interacting with Donald Trump. Like, we were already inundated with it on the TV news all day long. Right. right? So. And I think that now it's just like the president, like president white guy. Right. We don't, I don't think we've said like, but I could be wrong. No, I mean, I'm sure it pops up here and there. I'm sure there are ones that seem like friendlier. But yeah, when Mystique approaches Val Cooper and they conspire together to create Freedom Force, Mystique turns into Ronald Reagan like, to be like, literally. here's a familiar face for you, Dr. Cooper. Right. Like, are you more comfortable now? Because Val works for Ronald Reagan specifically. Which is damning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you think... <laughs> And there's a stink to that, right? Because, like, now I'm curious to hear what you feel about her. But, like, as much as I love Val Cooper, I personally do not forgive Val Cooper. I think Val Cooper is a bad person. I also think Val Cooper is a bad person. But I think that what's interesting about her is that she wants to be a good person. And I find that to be generally a compelling character archetype. Her nature is such that she is entirely self-serving, but she really wants to be of service. Yes. And it's just not within her. I think the most interesting thing about her being a Reaganite, who then, because of the sliding timescale, becomes a Clintonite. Oh, exactly. Which is fascinating to think about, is 
that she is the character placed in charge of the legacy of Iris Crisis. Mm-hmm. That's when I find her most absolutely empathetic. That's her best stuff yeah. in terms of like good personing. Yes. Because she is really fucking upset by the legacy virus. Yes. And she really works hard to try and keep it under wraps because she knows that the second news of it goes public, there's going to be hate crimes against mutants. It's going to be a whole thing. Yeah, she's very like Julia Roberts' normal heart. Exactly. It's that. Well, I mean, Moira McTaggart is literally literally, Julia Roberts' normal heart in that story. But it's very much a sympathetic person. And I think that's because when Peter David's writing that, Val's in a democratic administration yes. now. Like, this is the thing about the sliding timescale with the bureaucrat characters like Cooper and Gyrick. They just endure through every administration, which is not how real world politics tends to work, unless you're like, you know, Kissinger. Right. Like, some, <laughs> there are people who do just keep coming back. Or but, like, just like a general State Department official or whatever. Yeah, like, like those. And that's what she is yeah. to some. She's like a National Security Council official. And the intelligence community, those people do tend to be kind of bipartisan and stick around. But the president's special advisor on superhuman affairs being the same woman through like six presidential administrations is very funny to think about. Because <laughs> yeah. she's still presumably was that person under Trump. Yeah. He was probably pro-ponytail era. He was like, let's get Absolutely. that back up into a high pony. She looked so pretty with... I'm not going to do Don't do it. Oh my God, no, <laughs> I can't. I think it is interesting to have a character introduced as a villain who is part of the Reagan administration become the Clinton administration person who is helping the mutants with the legacy virus, mm-hmm. specifically. I think that's a really interesting beat because she basically says to them, I'm trying to make amends for the things I've done. And we can't say, like the AIDS crisis, because we're not going to do that in the Marvel comic. But, you know, the fact that she's now dealing with this metaphorical second AIDS crisis under this new administration is interesting to me. She is also... I mean, well, it comes down to writer, right? Because the thing that's interesting about Val is that Claremont clearly thinks that Val is a monster. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because when she comes back in Extreme X-Men, she's evil again. Oh, I mean, she's, I mean, she's like, <laughs> what if, what if we were all cops? Like, is her plan. And then, what if we made it a crime to be mutant yeah. so that we could then control them all as a matter of course? Because sometimes it doesn't reset to zero. She resets to like 10 years before zero. Like she, she right. unlearns everything she's learned. Right. That was weird because then as soon as she was back under peter david again she reverted to peter david so the thing about claremont and david actually as writers is that when they return to these characters that they feel a sort of ownership over because they wrote them for so long you do see i've talked about this with polaris with peter david polaris regresses immediately back to her 90s characterization the moment she comes to x-factor investigations after she's spent about a decade doing this sort of radical magneto's daughter arc after genosha and then was a star jammer and all this stuff but then it's like oh it's 1993 again right you know that kind of happens with val too but yeah so claremont clearly thinks that she is a monster and she's a very specific kind of claremont monster she's akin to Emma Frost. It's like, I am a dominating woman in a man's world who has decided to abuse my power to advance myself. And, you know, that's sort of the vibe. That is carried through by Roy Thomas in his Spider-Woman stuff, where she's responsible for the creation of the second Spider-Woman, Julia Carpenter, which is on some level explaining why the fuck Spider-Woman was on Freedom Force for like two issues. 
I, I don't. I mean, I still don't quite understand what the connection was there. <laughs> it, it seemed like it seemed like it was sweeps week or something. Like I don't. Yeah, it's very, so I think they were just trying to sell that character. Well, it didn't work for me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I like her, but she doesn't work very well in the Freedom Force story. I love that character actually as 90s Avengers stuff, which I didn't read a ton of those. I was into (laughs) the second Spider-Woman and I would never go back and look at it because just looking at art from force works makes my eyes hurt. I just can't help but associate her with that, all that stuff. And it just feels a little Mrs. Columbo to me. I've just never really quite (laughs) sunk my teeth into it, frankly. That's funny. But yeah, so in that, we learn that they're old college pals and Julia is a single mom who needs money. So Val has her become a test subject in Val's experiment to create superhumans who are not mutants that the government can control and ends up turning her into Mm Spider-Woman. And then blackmails her essentially into being Val's like personal stooge. And she hates it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Spider-Woman hates it. And that's why she doesn't like being on Freedom Force. But this is all in the early 90s in Spider-Woman's solo title and West Coast Avengers where we get some of the Val backstory. But what's interesting is at the same time, Mark Grunewald is writing her in Captain America. And there she's responsible for the whole US agent plot. And this is stuff I had never read until... The most recent U.S. agent book this year where she's fucking U.S. agent, the Christopher Priest miniseries, Mm -hmm. which was hilarious to me. Like, that was the funniest thing I had ever considered. Like, of course, Val Cooper is fucking John Walker, the U.S. agent. It's almost a metaphor for her entire character arc. Right. It's misguided. It's <laughs> somewhat like horny for America, but like unclear why. I said it's the most Republican sex anyone's <laughs> yeah. ever had. She's in a little like camisole top and like boy shorts and he calls her coop. And I'm just like, this is I mean, so hetero, so Republican, so weird. But I didn't realize because I hadn't read the Captain America stuff back in the day that she's the whole impetus for his story she claims that she owns that she, she's the one who makes the case that like the government technically owns captain america's captain america right. the rights to captain america basically and she files a copyright claim against captain america when steve resigns because he objects to what the government's doing val hires a new captain america who's a hot conservative blonde guy that she's very clearly like this one will do. We probably both have like 10 mutuals who follow him, unfortunately. And we're oh, like, unfollow yes. him. What are you doing? <laughs> I know. No, that all the all the gays are following John Walker on their finstas mm-hmm. and they won't admit it. So I went back and read all of that for this episode because I'd never read it. And it is really interesting because that is, I think, where she's really more sympathetic there. She understands kind of where Steve is coming from, but she's like, I work for the government. Sorry. You know, right. I have to protect America. With John Walker, after his stint as Captain America goes very badly, as was adapted into Falcon and the Winter Soldier earlier this year, uh, loosely, but it's a similar kind of story. Except he dies, right? I didn't. I didn't finish Falcon. Oh, you mean oh, the comic? Oh, <laughs> no spoilers for Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but no, he does not die in the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier. He, oh, okay. I, he yeah, meets I Julie Louise Dreyfus instead. Yes, right. I watched that scene on YouTube. Oh, God. What are we going to do about that purple streak? She's so good, but that purple streak has got to go. She just needs a better purple. Like, if you're going to do it. Just do it. Like, have it done professionally. It looks like she did it herself in the bathroom. It looks like a, f- a Snapchat filter. Yeah, it's not great the government fakes John Walker's death because his Captain America thing has gone so badly. Has Walker assassinated at the press conference, but it's like 
fake and basically puts him in witness protection. And that's when he becomes U.S. agent, gives him like a new secret identity so that his family and whatnot will be protected. That's interesting. What what year, what, what around what year was that happening? Like, because I don't, I feel like maybe I failed to notice or maybe that maybe this wasn't intentional, but when Sharon Carter kills mm-hmm. Captain America at a press conference. That was much later. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's Brubaker, right? That's that's Yeah, that's Civil War. Yeah, but I'm just Which Val factors into. We'll get there. Oh, for sure. This is the Grunewald run in the late 80s. So this is the same time that she's doing Freedom Force. I'm just curious if that arrangement because it's visually and thematically very similar but different if that was a callback. If it was an homage. Yeah. I mean like Val doesn't do it herself. No. Well, Sharon was brainwashed, right? Or well, no, but uh, but it's but Sharon, but Sharon shoots, shoots the gun, him, right? Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Sharon Carter, a character who welcome back to the Sharon Carter episode. <sighs> I mean, when we get there, if 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 you eventually run there. out of mutants, Justice for Emily Van Camp. Oh yeah, who I She'll get her loved revenge. on Reven Eight E for all those years. Reven Reven Eight E. No, I mean, listen, the one thing I, I didn't watch all of Falcon and the Minnesota, it just wasn't for me, but I kept up with the developments and I love that they were just like, okay, wait, we have Emily Van Camp. She can play a sociopath who's really scary. Why don't we just go there? I was just, I, it's funny that we were talking about this now though, because during it, I was like, oh, are they going to do a Val Cooper thing with her? Is she going to be Val Cooper? Is she like right. quite literally Val Cooper or are they just going to kind of merge the characters? Because Emily Van Camp's a pretty She's Val Cooper. solid Val Cooper casting. Yeah, yeah. real millennial Val Cooper. Mm-hmm. You know she's still married to the to the hunk from Revenge. I know his name. God, he's is... so fine. <laughs> his name is Josh Bowman. He is a British Jewish king. <gasps> is he? Yes, and he was born, I think, ten days after me. God, a week We're of like miracles. The same indeed. Pisces year. I was obsessed with him and that show, and the fact that she hopped on that and married it and has just kept it going. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen him in anything lately. Oh, actually, he played Jack the Ripper in Time After Time. Do you remember that? Oh, with was the, a very short-lived H.G. Wells or something also in it. Freddie Stroma played a time-traveling H.G. Mm. Wells who was chasing Jack the Ripper, who was played by Josh Bowman. Except they weren't. It like wasn't gay, right? Like they, it, you cast these two guys that gay men are obsessed with. We would have watched the show if it was gay. Yeah, 100%. It was Cormac McLaggen, not to go to a place of Harry Potter. And then he was on Unreal, mm-hmm. that blonde guy. He's so hot. And then Josh Bowman from Revenge. And it wasn't gay. Foolish, in my opinion. A waste. Foolish choice. Not that I want Jack the Ripper as gay representation. but I'll take you know, it. I'll take it if it's, if it's that guy. God, he's hot. Good for Emily <laughs> Van Camp. Emily, if you're listening, kudos. I know she is. You know, he dated Amy Winehouse. No. Can you imagine like no. your two famous relationships being Amy Winehouse and Emily Van Camp? That's like a very, he does not have like a type. No. Because those are two very dissimilar people. His type is famous. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think with Emily, it was just that they were on set making out all the time and they were like, wow, we're both really hot. I actually once got into a fight in the middle of the dance floor at Splash because the promoter I was dating said that the drag queen who was doing an Amy Winehouse number and the sound cut off. He said, well, it sounds, when the music went off, he said, it sounds better than when Amy was singing it. And we, yeah, I know. I know. For the listeners, Connor is making a face at me <laughs> that's deserved. Did you break up with him? Uh, well, that, that we would have had to have, you know, terms to our relationship for me to end them, but which he was not willing to provide at the time. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I'll bleep it out. Which promoter were you dating? Oh, you don't have to bleep it out if you don't want to. His name was... um. 
Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a little oh. boy. So. Yeah, I bet you were. Oh, wait. Actually, maybe bleep it out because he's like a huge X-Men guy. Maybe he does listen to this. Is he? Yeah, that was like part of okay. the, That was one of the reasons. I, no, don't bleep it out. Whatever. No, I'm going to bleep it. I'm going to bleep it. If you were in Chelsea and you were 20 mm-hmm. at that time, mm-hmm. you know. If you know, you know. You know, you know. Campus Thursdays, indeed. He told me he was going to be a therapist soon. I think he's still... I think he got his therapy license, but I think he's still doing a nightlife promoter. Nightlife. But I don't know where. Like that that scene's not Didn't he go to DC, I think? Can you picture him in like Bushwick? <laughs> I think he moved to DC. Oh. I think he's a DC gay. Because oh. I think we're Facebook friends. I'm sorry. Actually, this is bitchy of me. Because I think oh, I'm Facebook oh, friends with this oh. guy. I mean, it's fitting for the it's a very Val Cooper. I came up in the nightlife myself. Right. Not like working in it, but just like being out way too late, way too young. Yeah, same. In any case. Right. Well, my introduction to Val Cooper was the Freedom Force material because I, well, actually, I guess it was the trading cards first because <laughs> she was in the 90s, she was leading X Factor. I mean, like Havoc thought he was leading X Factor, but he wasn't really. No. And she had her own little X Factor uniform that was very cute. I love when she gets the uniform. And I was like, who is this badass bitch blonde lady who has no powers? I love a no powers lady who takes charge. I mean, this is something. I love a Candy Southern. Yeah. I love a Moira McTaggart. I love a Stevie Hunter. I love all those guys. I mean, when we when we started this, when you told me you were going to do this podcast, I told I think I said when you told me that I was like I want to do Mystique and I want to come back when you're done with mutants because <laughs> the other people because I want to do all those ladies. Like, yeah, who I care about most, you know, is, is a character in the X Men. If they get shot or punched or something, they have to limp around on a cane for a while. <laughs> Val had a cane for a while. A while. She was hobbling That time she got shot. Yeah. Just hobbling back and forth. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, like, there's nothing wrong with using a cane. Obviously, if you're someone who used a cane who's listening, I am all for that. I actually hobbled about on a cane for, like, a year once because I really fucked up my ankle in college. And you're not a mutant. (laughs) No. But Val Cooper Mm -hmm. on a cane is funny. Yeah. Because Val Cooper is so up herself and so poised all the time and she wasn't just like casually using a cane she was fully like no it wasn't willy wonka stomping around yeah yeah (laughs) she was just yeah yeah she was not she was not uh graceful let's say during the cane period and it was funny because you could tell it really annoyed her that she wasn't being smooth Mm -hmm. like she's trying to sneak up on people and she's just like thunk thunk (laughs) thunk Uh, And that's because she got shot because she was trying to be creepy about Siren's baby. And you know what? She wanted Siren's baby. She claims she wanted to protect Siren's baby. Mm -hmm. But as we know, for Val, protecting people often means putting them in a concentration camp surrounded by sentinels. We'll get there. For their own good, Connor. (laughs) (laughs) So I met her, I guess, I had those trading cards, but then I met her, met her, in the Freedom Force stuff, circle like Fall of the Mutants, all of that, like Mystique and Destiny and Rogues on the X-Men, and there's all that intrigue going on. And Val was Freedom Force's superior, who was always giving them shit. And I thought she was fun, because she was. She was like, she has like a Murphy Brown vibe. Oh, yeah. She's like in a pink power suit. She's just like castigating Super Saber and the Crimson Commando or whatever. And you're like, this is fun. Yeah. And there is something very funny like not funny haha but like you could see kind of i think what claremont's doing by like having this like reaganite bureaucrat ice queen yuppie bitch blackmail and manipulate these lesbian terrorists <laughs> yeah and like pyra's also gay 
in the Claremont right. stuff very clearly, I think. And so it's very much like Pyro and Avalanche are probably a couple. Mystique and Destiny are a couple. Val Cooper's like, well, you all work for me now and I'll send you to the big house if you cross me. Mm. It's just like very, it has a very win one for the Gipper kind of vibe <laughs> to it, to me. I guess that's probably a good time. We should just start traveling through okay. the vast history of Valerie Cooper. Which frequently starts over, so you could... <laughs> yeah. So she's introduced, like I said, as sort of an opposite number to Henry Peter Gyrick. She is the one who is so out there that she makes him look like he's a normal guy. There's a great panel. You know, this is her first issue. This is uh, Uncanny X-Men 176. She's in front of basically the National Security Council. She is the new special assistant to the president's National Security Advisor. Imagine, if you will, the damage that could be done by a mutant telepathic spy able to read minds. No one's thoughts, no secret would be safe. Or worse yet, a mutant saboteur, an assassin. For all we know, such operatives may already be at work. We must have the ability to protect ourselves and, if necessary, strike back. And Geirik says... You're suggesting we fight fire with fire, counter foreign mutants with some of our own? And she says, precisely, Mr. Gyrick. And he says, Magneto's cardinal argument, Doctor, has been that out of greed, humanity will use mutants, enslave them, and then, out of fear, destroy them. Suppose your plan convinces them he's right. Is your alternative to do nothing? To leave things as they are? And he says, for the moment, yes. And it cuts to this panel that's just her eyes, her like bright green eyes just glaring at him like you disgusting worm. <laughs> I will have your job. She goes, Mr. Gyrick, do you suppose the Russians maintain as cavalier an attitude? Mutants pose a clear and present danger to our country that must be dealt with today, at once, for tomorrow will be too late. She impresses the hell out of Ronald Reagan and everybody else in the room. And more and more is placed over Gyrick in charge of these things. Gyrick's been working on Project Wide Awake, which involves the mass production of Sentinels. They are both involved in that. I call it the Freedom Force period, but it's also the Project Wide Awake period on some level. The Katy Perry era. Yeah. <laughs> 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 she certainly didn't kiss a girl though. No. And if she did, she wouldn't like it. No. She hated it. <laughs> I kissed a girl and I hated I it. I really that actually that is kind of the Shadow King arc that happens. Oh, with her absolutely. Yeah. Island. Yeah. Though I feel like she's kissing herself there a little bit, but <laughs> Yeah. Well, but that's very Val. It's truly. The only woman the only woman The would... only woman that Val Cooper would fuck is Val Cooper. The only woman so that Val Cooper really would tracks. respect is Val Cooper too. Yeah, no, exactly. She's a I did it and pulled the ladder up. At least that's how she starts. Correct. Correct. And there is very much a recurring motif of Mystique appealing to Val by turning into Val and having a conversation with Val as Val, both which a, I find Both appealing to her and mocking her. Yeah, like it's like I'm making fun of you, yeah. but also I get you and isn't that funny? I got your number, yeah. And like Val does respect Mystique. Oh, yeah. That's the thing that's interesting about their relationship is Val is basically like a girl boss recognizes another girl yeah. boss. you know. But also the thing that's interesting about their relationship is that they meet when they're working together in Val's first real arc, which is is the Forge arc, the power neutralizer gun. She and Gyrick commission Forge to invent this power neutralizing weapon because they want to neutralize Rogue. And she works with Raven Darkhoom, who is at this point still the deputy director of DARPA, and nobody knows that she's Mystique. And she's just like this brunette lady who is also walking around in sexy power suits. And she and Val debate this weapon. 
Raven thinks that it's a bad idea because actually it's her daughter that they're trying to attack. And Val's sort of like, no, uh, we, we really do have to do it. The NSA tracks Rogue down in Mississippi and Val and Gyrick go to supervise the thing. Gyrick ends up shooting Storm by accident. That's how Storm loses her powers. This is where you start to see a little bit of a softer side of Val because like when Raven is clearly like dismayed and she doesn't know why, but I think she assumes Raven's like, we're going to shoot a teenager, you know, like with a gun. <laughs> and Val says, I'm sorry, Raven, I understand your feelings, but Rogue's a killer and this weapon may be the only means of safely dealing with her. If it doesn't work, we're no worse off than before. But if it does, think of the ramifications. We'd no longer have to live in terror of supervillains. One zap and their powers are gone. The threat removed. And that's where you start to sort of understand her motivation, which is that Val Cooper is someone who does not have superpowers in a world where lots of people do. She can be as smart as she wants. She can be as cunning as she wants. She can be as good at her job as she wants. She can't fight Ms. Marvel. Mm-hmm. or a bad guy like that, like Rogue, she's going to be in trouble if something like that happens. And so what she's trying to do is control the situation, whether it's by blackmailing the superhumans, chipping the superhumans so you know where they are, depowering the superhumans with a laser gun. Like It's all about what is the management strategy that we have for this X-Factor, so to speak. In fact, if she has a superpower... It's almost determination. Yeah, because she's never managed to do it, and she's always she's all, trying. I'm going to keep trying. She's a real Mondays. Monday, I start my diet, like, icon. <laughs> new year, new me, new Val. The only time she's, as, as far as I know, that she's truly somewhat overcome a massive-powered person is, and we'll get to it later, but, like, she she rejects the Shadow King's power mm-hmm. ultimately uh, towards the uh, at least in which is interesting because the shadow king is kind of a metaphor for exactly the kind of person that Val. we'll get into the metaphor part of is. it i'm very yeah i find that and she does yeah. reject it yeah. the other one is uh after m day there's the arc with general laser who's like her superior oh yes at uh the one and she ends up breaking his knees with a crowbar and that's very satisfying <sighs> yeah she, she, she's like he's like tied to a chair or something <laughs> she's got the ponytail up crowbar out hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> So after the thing with Rogue, there's a cool bit where Val is talking to a security council agent, like an intelligence operative named Philip Rosen. He says something like, are you worried about Gyrick or whatever? And she's like, I'm not worried about Gyrick. Hopefully he and Rogue will kill each other, which I think is a great... Really funny. (laughs) That's funny. But then also, he immediately, Rosen, the agent, gets murdered and replaced by a dire wraith. Don't worry about the dire wraiths, but they are shape-shifting aliens. And this is the first time that Val's like really in combat. Like she fucking shoots him. Mm -hmm. It's rough. It's really rough. He's basically like, yes, I did replace him and we're going to replace you too and we're going to take over your world. It is, to me, something that almost validates for her, her mentality. is like, I let my guard down and was having, and had a conversation with this guy for 10 seconds where we like had a laugh about my asshole coworker and he was replaced by a shape-shifting superhuman monster. Yeah. It's pretty wild. So Rogue ends up saving her because she shoots to kill. And she doesn't actually kill him because he's a dire wraith. But it looks like she kills him. Mm -hmm. She runs away. Rogue ends up catching up with her, though, and touches her and realizes that it wasn't Storm they were after. It was Rogue. her, yeah. She's just like, I'm gonna fucking kill you if something bad has happened to Storm. I will end you, Valerie Cooper. 
threatening her real bad, which is fun. We next see her in the Kulan Gath arc, an iconic arc on this podcast because <laughs> it's important for Celine. But generally speaking, a, uh, a largely forgotten arc. But this is where you see that Claremont's starting to push her into a more like neutral potential ally zone because during the crisis when she is managing the national security response she's like listen we got to sort this out or like the world's going to turn into conan time mm-hmm. so just do your job i'm giving you a job do it <laughs> so you're like okay so she thinks we're people that's good to know mm-hmm. you know but still because we can serve her purposes right and that's when mystique pops up in her house as her which freaks her out. She like comes home to her apartment. This is Uncanny 199. And this leads directly into the trial of Magneto. Raven has heard that Dr. Valerie Cooper is trying to put together a super team that answers directly to the government so that the government has- A new idea for Val. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, well, it's, you know, Val's only been around a little while at this point. So it's like, that's the, but this is the first one. Okay. It's like, she's always trying. She's always going to do it. And like direct content that Spider Woman was her first triad. Right. You know, like it's just this is what she does. So initially, it's the Freedom Force project, which is Mystique says, My Brotherhood of Evil Mutants will come and work for you. Cause this is after Days of Future Past went poorly. She's like, We will come and work for you in exchange for a full pardon. Val is intrigued. Mystique turns into Reagan, as we said. And finally, there's this incredible panel. This is a John Romita Jr. issue. And it's this panel. It's the full width of the page. She's sipping her wine. Oh, yeah. And then she like turns and you see all of her facial expressions. Sort of like there's four of her in the panel. But she goes from sort of like contemplating to like the most evil diabolical grin you've ever seen. It's delicious. And she says tempting full pardon conditional on performance if a single member of your group breaks our agreement you all hang which i think <laughs> is great in the town square and then she says and before i pitch this to the president i want proof you're worth the investment a trial run a trial foe if you're successful we have a deal you're to locate and capture the founder of the original brotherhood the master of magnetism magneto i love when they use honorifics the people that who hate these these monsters are like the master of magnetism. (laughs) I would just be like, you need to arrest Eric (laughs) Lencher. Like, go get him. They don't know his name at this point. I guess they're right. (laughs) (laughs) So she basically pits them against him and Freedom Force goes and arrests him at the Holocaust Memorial, which is pretty dark. (laughs) Just couldn't have waited. Yeah, no, he and Kitty are at the Holocaust Memorial like service. Christ. He realizes that he knew Kitty's aunt in the camps. Oh, God, I don't remember that. Yeah, her great aunt, Chava. And then all of these people who were at Auschwitz are like, this man saved our life, and like walk up to him and touch him. Kitty is like, huh, Magneto's more complicated than we thought. Oh, I want to track, I want to read this issue, especially this week. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's Uncanny 199 and 200. It follows up on in Uncanny 150, which is when the Holocaust backstory gets retconned in after he thinks he's killed Kitty. And he and Kitty have this sort of weird bond always. But this is 199-200. The original, The Trial of Magneto Straits, when he has the titty top. Oh my God, yes, yes. Yeah. Very Christine Quinn. Yes, and Gabrielle Holler, bad bitch with no powers, is his defense attorney. Okay. And she's chain smoking for the whole trial. And it's great. She's an attorney? Yeah. 
That's her whole thing. That's what she does. In Israel? Was that her thing too? Yeah, she was, well, she was, yeah, she was a Holocaust survivor who was in Israel. She's like catatonic at a hospital in Israel for the survivors oh, of the she's Holocaust. Cat- she's catatonic at a hospital. I thought she, I forgot. Xavier manages to rouse her from her stupor. Like he, he manages to break her post-traumatic response with yes. his telepathy. And then they fall in love. And then she's Legion's mom. Yeah, that. With I, I, Xavier. Yeah, yeah, obviously. But for the listeners, if they don't remember who she is. And then she comes back 20 years later or whatever and is like, hi, Charles, this is our son. Right. Surprise. Also, I'm an attorney and I'll represent Eric at trial because she knew Eric back in, or Magnus, as they call him. Oh, right. like, they all knew each other back in Haifa. And she gets him off. I mean, she wins. Well, she successfully argues. It's actually, this is a very Val Cooper move of Gabby Haller. I mean, this is just a Claremont Dame kind of moment, but oh yeah, Gabby Haller successfully argues at the international court. It's basically like The Hague, but it's in Paris because mm-hmm. it's a fictionalized thing. Mm-hmm. But she argues that because Magneto was regressed to infancy and then re-aged by Alpha that technically his previous life was like a different... She manages to say basically that any crimes he committed before Mm -hmm. he was turned into a baby are no longer his crimes. I forgot that they let David E. Kelly write a couple issues this year. It's a fun, it's, yeah, it's Jim Jasper's prosecuting and Gabrielle Haller defending, mm. and then Fenris attacks and try to kill Xavier, and it's like a whole, because they're trying to kill Magneto because they're Nazis. Yes. So, anyway, all this and more someday in a Have you Fenris done a Fenris episode? I was going to say, are you going to do a Fenris episode? I have already told Spencer Ackerman that he's drafted <gasps> for the Fenris episode. Good choice. Yeah, because the Fenris episode needs to be funny, but also needs to like unpack. Yeah, <laughs> you, like you need someone who can, you can laugh about it with. Yeah, and maybe someone who it is to laugh about. <laughs> right, I wanted to be like two Jews yeah. having a yuck. Also, let's talk about like the geopolitical implications of these characters and what it means that like neo Nazis were the most vile possible villains in this moment mm-hmm. in this story and yada yada yada. I, I honestly, I think Fenris are great villains. I would like to see them more. I understand why people, some people yeah. simply don't want to read <laughs> yeah. about them. <laughs> well, and we'll actually get to that because what what is the Hitler rule? What is the, the stupid internet Hitler thing? Godwin's law. Like once you bring Nazis into it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's sort of a trump card, right? Like, oh, Nazis right. like, can't get more evil. But we'll say that. We'll go back to that. We'll get back to it. But Fenris, I, I don't know. I think they're compelling. They're very like mythic in a way that I find interesting. They feel like Victorian villains. Like they're kind of very, they're very Crimson Pete. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then also Ilsa She Wolf of the SS. They're just like very weird <laughs> characters. She Wolf of the SS. Yeah. You know Claremont. Mm-hmm. You know Claremont mm-hmm. had those. Oh, yeah. Movies. Oh, yeah. That's a very Chris Claremont series of films. Yeah. Yeah. Love you, Chris, if you're listening. No offense intended. I just, oh, you know. Nothing but worship nothing but adoration so yeah that's when all of the u.s agent stuff happens which is cool and i read it recently and i recommend it like it's not going to be the focus of this episode because this is not an avengers or captain america podcast but the fact that she was simultaneously appearing in claremont's uncanny and in grunewald's captain america doing these two storylines at the same time with u.s agent and freedom force is really interesting it's a bit of connectivity between the avengers and the x-men that i wasn't really aware of it makes total sense to have this character be the character who connects different parts of the Marvel Universe because she's the advisor on all superhuman affairs. So she's going to bother Thor just as much as she's going to bother the X-Men. 
it's a good arc. You get a better sense of her politics, I think, than you do because of the way that she and Walker approach like the question of being Captain America. It's clearly like they are more of a conservative, patriotic nationalism kind of pair. And it's it's just interesting because it illustrates for you how much Steve Rogers is not that. Well, it also, it kind of punctures the balloon of Captain America, for better or worse, because it, it her politics, you know, they're not wrong from her perspective. They just make... No, her perspective makes total sense. It, it, but... If anything, it just shines a light on the fact that it was like, Steve, you're call yourself anything else <laughs> well right that like he made the right choice yeah, to resign yeah. is kind of the thing like when he comes back is the part where it's like mm, but why right, right? Yeah. because basically what valerie cooper does is illustrate why the flag suit hero is such a fraught exactly thing and that's what captain america is always grappling with but anyway this is not a captain america podcast no. i think it's a good arc though and it's worth reading a lot of the grimoire cap stuff is is, is pretty i love good. i, I just, mean i love that era i mean yeah, I had just never, I had read like some of it around Avengers. I was more like when I read Avengers stuff, it was for Carol Danvers or Monica Rambo, especially Monica in this period. Eagle eared listeners will remember that Cap is my my Avenger. So, um, but because of that era, because I, I, he routinely, you know, no pun intended, puts a flag in the ground about being like, I am not this. Yeah, he's like, I reject conservatism yeah. is like half of the Captain America stories of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, and the 70s. I mean, it's, it's o- frankly, almost always. always. Yeah, it's, it's really But in this era, it's very specific that like... Except for when he's like beaten up by Iraqis or whatever, but that's the ultimate version. Yeah, that's the ultimate version, different character. But it also is part of the Val Cooper as avatar of the Reagan administration yeah. thing is that the writers who are writing this specifically are disgusted with the Reagan administration. Yeah. And so Cap is specifically disgusted with the Reagan administration in a way that's interesting. Which is interesting because we, we were talking about this when I was reading X-Factor Trade and I was texting you some pictures of it. Like there's there's some Reagan bumper stickers yeah. here and there. It, it, you know, it's interesting that there's probably some differing opinions throughout the house at the time. Well, I, I'm sure Shooter was a big that's, yeah, Reagan that's guy. What I mean. Yeah, no. The thing is, though, that most people were like not right. in New York City necessarily, but Reagan won New York. Right. That's crazy. Which is a crazy thing for a Republican to do. Yeah. Like he won pretty much every state when he was it's up really, against Mondale. Really crazy. It's fully. Oh, God. I don't I, I don't remember <laughs> it because we were infants. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're about my age, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I was alive in the Reagan administration, but I don't I, I didn't have the power of speech. Sure. So. I wasn't super conscious. I first become conscious of the news somewhere around the death of Princess Diana, the murder of John Bonet, and the OJ trial. Quite literally, Diana is my no. Monica is Monica first. Uh, no. It, then Diana. Diana is my Diana's ninety-seven. I don't remember OJ. Oh, I remember OJ. I also though like the whole Jean Benet thing. Talk about mythic figure. Talk about like a Fenris. Well, my mom always <laughs> bought the tabloids yeah. at the supermarket. Oh, my mom. My mom launched a uh, local campaign to convince the like little corner store in our town to uh, put paper bags over things, including the tabloids. <laughs> She's a much different, much different person now, but she was very, very concerned about <laughs> the magazines. This was back when the Inquirer was basically like it was not what it is now, which is like an active political mouthpiece. At the time, it was more like true crime conspiracies about the royal family with some like inve- i mean they've always had like actual investigators though like didn't they no yeah like, didn't no, they break they, the they edwards broke, story? they broke the john yeah, edwards yeah, yeah, story yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. trish tilby works there now i think trish tilby absolutely would work <laughs> yeah. there and at one point the national Enquirer 
it was said, had a more comprehensive network of informants in the United States yeah, than that's, the FBI that's, did. I think that's in the there's a I think that's in the doc, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I was basically the age of Jean Benet reading about Jean Benet's murder like every week, which was probably not a peer great of yours, for my, yeah. But that was like a very that's like a very gay child thing to do, oh. isn't it? To like obsessively follow She's the Jean Benet murder when you're the same age as Jean Benet. Hundred percent. Yeah, we're the same age as Harry Potter and Jean Benet Ramsey or whatever. That's kind of that's really true. My rising sun and my falling moon or Whoosh. whatever. Um, no, she uh. she seems to have always existed to me. I was like, yeah, no, like it's almost like a supernatural figure. She's the er true crime exactly like that is when if you say true crime to me i picture jean benet i like have a tear like as soon as you say yeah like like, i'm full tolerance is is in my mind's eye yeah 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 horrible story don't google it if you're young and you don't know about it because it's pretty upsetting yeah test your cocaine for fentanyl and don't google john test your cocaine for fentanyl and don't go on a john benet ramsey wikipedia k-hole journey the brother did it the brother did it the brother did it the brother absolutely allegedly the brother did it allegedly (laughs) Anyway, where were we? Um, oh, uh, this is where the Shadow King stuff happens. Right. So let's. Why don't you set the stage here a little bit? Sure. So there is a, a secret agent of some kind presents them or some some sort of mis- shadowy figure. Yes, <laughs> Alexei Vagin. Oh, he's a Soviet operative. You said it, warning them of all these oncoming threats. Right. So like including onslaught and or including apocalypse or. Yeah, not onslaught yet, but it's like Shadow um, King. It's Apocalypse, Apocalypse, Mister Sinister, the MLF, and the Shadow King. Okay, like the four that he warns her about, because basically Claremont's teeing up his plans for the '90s, which then don't really happen. Well, this story in particular goes nowhere, right? Because like, well, yeah, because the whole Muir Island saga goes nowhere because they basically fired him in the middle of it, right? So Val is told that one of the things she needs to do is to kill Mystique. Is that what happens? So <laughs> by this shadowy figure. Well, so then a different shadowy figure. Okay, <laughs> see, this is where I am. Fo- I'm super yeah. foggy. There's another guy, Jacob Rice, who is the Shadow King. Oh, I thought they were all the Shadow King. I was trying not to spoil what we were about to say in two yeah, minutes. No, but... I don't think that the uh. I don't think the Soviet guy was the Shadow King. He's like warning her that the Shadow King is probably going to try to compromise her. And then a different person who is the Shadow King attempts to compromise her. Okay. And like literally takes. But so then Val does get possessed. Val gets possessed by the Shadow King. Yes. Because here's the thing the Shadow King is using Legion on Muir Island as a battery to expand his powers. And so he can possess multiple people in this period. So he has a couple important people in thrall and he gets Val and gets in her head. Where are you on the, the the visual of Shadow King in the Legion series? The crazy Humpty Dumpty thing. I uh, I'm I'm gonna be real. I did not watch that. Oh, I really don't care for it. So yeah, I know a lot of people who love it, and yeah, I don't. I mean, if Gene Smart can't get me through something, then then it's a rough ride yeah. for sure. I just refuse to engage with the Fox X Men franchise. It was only adjacent. I like it more than you like, do. I like I I am I, I'm allegiant to it more than you do, purely on the strength of Ian McKellen. Well, I love Ian McKellen as Magneto, obviously. So the, and and Rebecca, I love Famke Janssen as Jean. Yeah. I love Rebecca Romain. I love a lot of the actors. I think Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Oh, he's fantastic. He's too tall and too hot, but he's great. Right. But no, that the the, the like. It's the weird branches of that, like of the right, and so I was like, I don't want to follow the Fox X Men franchise to a TV show. So you I was did, just you, like, I'm not going to. You do didn't it. watch the Polaris television series, The Gifted? <laughs> no, I didn't. The one starring Fenris. 
Not to bring it back to a place of Fenris, but that was the weirdest. That was the jump weirdest Jump in your time choice. machine. Jump in your time machine and tell seven-year-old you or whatever that there is a Polaris television series. There is a Polaris television Fenris show. Fenris are the villains. Also starring Amy Acker, Amy Acker and her children who are Fenris. Yeah. Crazy. That was crazy. That was a crazy thing. I hope thing the that 10 happened. people that watched it were just living for it. I hope they were living for it. I hope Amy Acker got a big fat check. Amy Acker's like unbelievably talented the, actress. The gifted? She was like, what are you doing? Is this the action? Like I was at a gift suite at the Emmys. I don't the, know. Thing, <laughs> the thing that was so frustrating was why would you cast Amy Acker as the mom with no powers? Like, I love a character who's a mom with no powers, as we've illustrated yeah. in talking about all kinds of these gals. Yeah, but I but want, like, a de- de- like Becky Ann Baker non-power mom. If you're doing an X-Men show and you hire Amy Acker, she should be someone scary. Yeah, or even, um, I would take her as, a uh, um, who's... Uh, I always forget her name. Who she can? She 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 monitors security at Krakoa right now. Sage. I was literally just thinking she'd be great. She'd as be sage. great, Sage, right? She'd be great as Sage. My Sage has always been Mary Louise Parker. Oh, see, so I I have this like head canon of Sage's Middle Eastern. Oh, because she first meets Xavier in Afghanistan. As I've told you a million times, my head canon is problematic because it's voice act. It's voice based. No, I get it. It's voice people. I get it. So like, there are people that are like. No. <laughs> but no, 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 but there's no there's no evidence to suggest anything about Sage's Okay, so if there was, yeah. She meets Xavier in the Hindu Kush, and I think it would be cool if she was Iranian. Cool, yeah. Because there cool. aren't any Iranian mutants, and that's such a... None? None that I can think of, and that's such an important geopolitical player that it feels like an oversight to me. Seems crazy, yeah. My Sage is Nick Harzadagan. Oh, cool. I think she'd kill that. Oh, Absolutely. But anyway, anyway not Amy to get off topic. Yeah, right. But Amy Acker would be good as Sage if you were casting a white Sage. <laughs> to get back to Val Cooper. So <laughs> if we must. So she's possessed by the Shadow King. The Shadow King is interested in Mystique and Destiny for whatever reason. Perhaps because Destiny can see the future. But Destiny has just been killed by Legion. So he decides, well, you know what? Now's a great time to take out Mystique, who is a threat because she's smart. So he sends Val to kill Mystique. The Shadow King does or Legion does? The Shadow King does. Yeah, because over because then she's going to go kill, right. Well, the Shadow King's in Legion. It's all very... That's what honestly, I mean. This arc's very confusing. But yeah. it's the Shadow King. Okay. Shadow King possess Val to go kill Mystique. To go kill Mystique, correct. The original get Mystique. Yes, and Mystique has been apprised by Destiny in a note. That this would happen. Yeah, has decided, you know what? Irene went to her death and I will too. This is what she says to Val. There's this whole kind of interesting scene where Raven is like, you know, do it if you're going to do it. And it just cuts away at the end of the issue and Val blows her away with a gun, right? We just hear, we see the big sound effect. But is this where she, where Val shows up and, and Mystique is, looks like Val? Yes. So, <laughs> so she put on her little Von Dutch hat and, and yes. re- was ready to punk her again, of course. And then, yes. And then it's like, you're here to kill me. You're here to kill me. And she's like, I already know. Destiny told me. Yeah. It's really great because it comes across as a reader. Oh, Val fucking killed her. And for a while, you think that's actually what happened. Yeah. And then there's a great little twist which is that it turns out that Val, because she is so strong-willed, was able to divert the Shadow King's will in her brain. Like, she was able to break his conditioning for a moment, and she shot herself instead of Mystique, which is fucking 
metal. And what I meant earlier by saying that her determination is her superpower. Yeah. She is not going to let a man force her to shoot somebody. No. It's just not going to happen. So just sit your ass down, Sam Seaborn. Exactly. Now I'm picturing Rob Lowe as the Shadow King, which would be very funny. <laughs> well, so, so is the police. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would also be very problematic casting. But anyway, so Mystique, who knows Nick Fury from being Raven Darkroom, calls Nick Fury up at S.H.I.E.L.D. and is like, uh, hey, Val just shot herself. It's complicated. Help? You know, I don't know what you would mm-hmm. come, come over. So in secret, S.H.I.E.L.D hypnotizes Mystique with her permission to make her believe that she is Val so that she can return to the Shadow King as Val Cooper and he will read her telepathically and think it's really Val and she can infiltrate. But she believes now that she is Val. Like Mystique becomes Val. But what I find so interesting about that, if you're to like kind of dig into that a little bit, is that for that to work, you know, if we're going to take it at face value that that plan would work in the first place, Mystique would have to know Val pretty well to do that, which I find, obviously we know that there are two sides of a coin to some extent, but I think it shows you just how invested in Val Mystique is, or just how under her skin Val is to Mystique. Well, Val is in charge of Mystique. Mystique doesn't like when anyone's in charge of her. Very few people have, have been able to put like a collar, quite literally, on Mystique. On Mystique, and so... You better believe Mystique has studied everything. That's what I mean. Cooper does. So yeah, all that Shield has to do is give her a hypnotic suggestion. You are Valerie Cooper, and she immediately starts behaving exactly like Valerie Cooper to the point that she fools the Shadow King, an immensely powerful telepath. Yeah, immensely powerful telepath that Val Cooper resisted. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the fact is, because Val Cooper can resist him, maybe he doesn't try to dig too deep into the fake Val. Exactly. Because he's just like, you know, I only really get surface level with her. Right. Oh, this bitch. (laughs) But this plot doesn't really go anywhere, unfortunately, because Claremont gets pushed out and then quits the franchise. And so it it just doesn't really go anywhere. But it's a very cool, like, after so much attention was paid to the motif of Mystique becoming Val and of, like, their dyad as characters, for the arc to go to Mystique literally brainwashes herself into becoming Val while the real Val is recovering from her gunshot. Mm -hmm. So that Mystique can take down the Shadow King from within is fucking awesome. It's really good. And we've talked about this before about sort of, you know, your era having a finale and then kind of letting those characters change places on the board a little bit afterwards. That idea is a great finale for the two of them. And then things reset. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because basically what happens after that is that Peter David picks up Val for the new X-Factor title, which spins out of Muir Island Saga. This is the government team. Freedom Force has either been killed off or written out in the wake of all the Shadow King stuff and Muir Island stuff. So Val needs a new super team, and she approaches Polaris and multiple man and strong guy because they're all on Muir Island during this crisis because they were living there. They were part of the Muir Island X-Men with Forge and Banshee and Amanda Sefton and Moira and Tom and Sharon and Alison <laughs> Stewart and all those people. And Ann B. Davis is Alice. And Sunder, the Morlock, R.I.P. He gets killed hard in that arc. Like, you survived the mutant massacre just to die during the Muir Island saga? That's rough for you, buddy. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> They're all in, basically, and 
they go to Genosha where like Lorna basically is able to help her convince Havoc that it's a good idea. Havoc joins up to be the leader for whatever. I still think that's a weird choice, but. And so Rain, because she is slave bonded to Havoc by the Genosian mutate process. Uh, don't worry about it right now. We will get into that in a Wolfsbane episode at some point. Uh, but it is sort of the beginning of the end for that character. <laughs> really the beginning of the end. I mean, truly, where is she? I, she's back. She had good stuff like this month. Oh, yeah? Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. excited. Because I, I love her. Vidal is writing good stuff for her for I the first time her. in like 30 years. You have to have someone incredibly Scottish on for that. I want to hear it. Yeah. I want to hear <laughs> the thickest accent while you talk I didn't can why Wolfsbane would be written that way. I mean, the amount of punctuation in the in the lettering of her early stuff is so the crazy. There's yeah. just no word finishes. They all every word is just like a couple of vowels and then an apostrophe. <laughs> it's so good. So that's the X-Factor team. They recruit Quicksilver shortly thereafter. They take the brand X-Factor because the O5 have gone back to rejoin the X-Men after Muir Island Saga. This early Peter David period, this is where Val, I would say, affirmatively becomes like an ally of the X-Men. They are the government team. And so X-Force and X-Factor and the X-Men all have different approaches to the mutant dilemma and they don't all agree on them all the time but they work together pretty amicably this is where we meet val's ex-husband who is a lie detector polygraph expert god what a snooze that guy is a snooze (laughs) he is just like a handsome kind of mike coltery looking guy no mike coltery's more interesting he's like a morris chestnut <laughs> I was looking at like a Stroman panel that's really good. But... It's very, very guest arc on Ally McBeal. Uh, Morris Chestnut, my God. I mean, a, he's that's... he's fine as fuck, but No, but that's a deep cut. That's taking me back to <laughs> <laughs> any of his incredible red box filmography. <laughs> I know, God. But basically, yeah, he's this handsome African-American gentleman who is also a psychologist, I guess. But he's also, like, military. They must have, like, worked together in something shady or whatever. Yeah, a military psychologist. He sounds, yeah, like, like, really great. <laughs> they were in, like, MK Ultra together. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they literally were when we which get to happened, Wild Child Which happened, by the way, which happened. Really oh, happened. It did. oh, it sure did. Yeah. And it wasn't a, a Moscato by Mary-Kate Olsen, <laughs> which it should be. Don't you think she should have a light beer called MK Ultra? Mary-Kate Olsen? Yes. Right. Free idea, Mary-Kate, if you're listening. Well, that's not crazy. Not a free idea. You know what? Licensable idea. An you, idea, Mary-Kate. Mary-Kate Olsen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She might need art direction for that project. Uh, you yeah. never know. But the best thing about Edmund Atkinson, this guy who is Val's ex-husband, is that, at least in this initial story, he's secretly Mr. Sinister. Right. Which is... Never explained. No, I actually didn't remember that until you just said it. Oh, it's incredible. Brian Cronin did a deep dive on it once for CPR that was just like, so was Val Cooper married to Mr. Sinister? Like, because it's never clear if like, this when guy... When was he that? Yeah, because he's her ex-husband, isn't he? He is. And it's not clear if, like, Sinister replaced him. Right. Or if he always was Mr. Sinister. I can't imagine Sinister going through like divorce proceedings. <laughs> it's kind of funny though to imagine Mr. Sinister, like, like in the Ugh. same way that Mystique became the deputy DARPA director to like be close to the government. The idea that Mr. Sinister was like, 
hmm, what if I turn myself into a sexy psychologist and polygraph a sexy expert? polygraph expert and seduce Valerie Cooper? I mean, it wouldn't be the queeniest thing he's ever done. Uh, no, I mean, dating Valerie Cooper is... Yeah, it's one of the gayest things he could do. As a side side note, as someone who like knows some 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 people on, on the Ed staff over there, is Sinister just like fully gay now? Is that like a, a thing that's happened, or is that just my read? Or um, ever since the Kieran Gillen run, who's in, who's responsible for his new way of talking? Kieran Gillen. That okay. was like Kieran really did that during the Utopia era, okay. and it's so much better than any oh, I love it. ever has been before. He, speaking of voice cast, it used to always be the animated voice cast for him because it was just crazy robot person right, or whatever yeah. and it was perfect but now he's paul lind so it's, paul lind is ama- that's an amazing choice i've just i've <laughs> done james spader but it, but either fair one, yeah paul lind is hilarious to me like mr sinister is a veritable smorgasbord orgasbord orgasbord <laughs> like that's how sinister is looking out at the at the gene pool like mm, yeah a smorgasbord kids <laughs> kids come on now yeah oh kids kids do a Paul Lind episode. For the Patreon. Absolutely a mutant. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For the young kids, Google Paul Lind. Iconic gay comedian back when that was not a thing it was okay to be. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, he's just been written as camp, basically. And yeah. like, if you want to read him as gay again, but I've always kind of read him as gay because like of the, the outfit. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's just he yeah. is so queeny and always has been. So yeah. like actually having his personality be queeny, I think is a good decision because it justifies the look. Did he used to it does have the look is queeny, but it also used to be like depending depending on who drew him, it used to be a little pickup artist too, though. Well, he had a little soul patch, and I now mean. he has like a proper beard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like it it could veer but into But it was also like a little George Michael y though. You know what I oh, mean? Well, that's hot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so the point is it's not clear if the implication here was that Val's ex-husband is and always has been Mr. Sinister. If that was the plan, extremely funny, although weird that Mr. Sinister became black as a false identity and married Val Cooper. Like that Sinister's blackface era, problematic, mm-hmm. I would say. It's just an interesting choice that he was like, he made a character choice. You know how actors always have like a secret? <laughs> he was like, mine's I'm black. He has been like a child, a woman. He does all kinds of like, you oh, know, that's, that's I'm doing a bit now. Truly. But maybe, this, maybe not this, this was maybe, maybe this culturally insensitive. Yeah. yeah. So the, here's the thing, though, is Edmund comes back later in the Mackie run and is just like a regular guy who's not Mr. Sinister. So retroactively, I think the only way you can explain it is to say that Mr. Sinister replaced him at some point to sure. spy on Val and just don't worry about it. Because then she and Sinister do come into conflict during Executioner's Song. But before that, actually, did you ever read the Hulk story that Peter David did around this time? I had never read it. No, I'm, Hul- I'm Hulk agnostic. I am also Hulk agnostic, but there's a whole arc here where X-Factor and Val guest star, because Peter David was also writing the Hulk at the time, and she gets, this is truly insane she gets captured by farnook don who is the like ruler of a fictional middle eastern nation and he like dresses her up in a sexy girl outfit and makes her be his slave and it's fully crazy i hope it's just like a pantsuit but with like the belly cut out (laughs) (laughs) it's fully crazy she has like a sexy briefcase 
I think it's Incredible Hulk 390. It's somewhere, it's it's near 400. It is uh, a crazy yeah. little arc that I page through. I did not, I I'll can't tell you details <laughs> because I truly, I skimmed it. Because uh-huh. I was like, I'm not, uh-huh. I'm not getting deep into the Hulk here. But No offense, I just can't. What's the Hulk thinking about? What's he walking around thinking about? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, probably a lot. I just, Maybe. unless he's, unless he's Eric Bana, I don't really care. That's he what hasn't I mean. been Eric Bana in years. Yeah. So, more people should be Eric Bana, in my opinion. I'm trying, honey. Then there's a whole thing with Spiral that's fun, where like Val, like basically Val starts going to the field more and more, like give Val a machine gun. I like when Val has a big gun. I love when Val has a big gun. I love when Val and Mystique have a big gun. Yeah, I mean, Val also is like kind of, I would say there's sort of a similarity between her and Opaluna Saturnine. They're both like bureaucrats who at the time had no powers and would just like have a huge machine gun sometimes because yeah. it's cool. To Guns give don't the blonde kill lady people. a big machine Val gun. Val Cooper kills people. Val Cooper sure does kill people. And that's when the expatriates happen. What do you think of that arc? I think it's wild. I mean, <laughs> Hemingway, Alice B. Toklas, you know, any of the, expa- any of the expatriates mm. will kind of get me there um no i don't understand because that that's the era where she once again asks them because the expatriates specifically don't want to be part of another government task force or whatever and val cooper presents that as an option right yeah yeah and it's just it's anytime you present val cooper with a series of options she chooses like a special ops black force (laughs) task force she's on a plane and they're like chicken or fish val and she's like i'll have a special ops black force (laughs) secret what i like about that arc is that she like havoc blackmails her which is always fun like i like when val gets blackmailed because she doesn't want to let the expatriates like come into New York City because they're like rogue foreign operatives or whatever. Because they're Genosian. And uh, he's like, all right, you're going to let them in or I quit. Right. Yes. And she's like, well, fine. And it's always just fun when someone like whether it's Mystique or Alex, whoever is like reporting to or, or Madrox later on mm-hmm. or Siren when she's leading the agency, like whoever it is that Val is trying to. It's always fun when they get a moment of like an ah, I've got the upper hand. Right. I, I'm more I, maybe it's because I'm against my better judgment and everything I've said before. Like I'm always sort of rooting for Val. Like I think she's a problem and I think she's constantly reverting on herself, but I would like Val to be their friend. And I would like Val to turn no, over a long-term leaf. I want Val to change. It's just the, the thing that it's like war. Val Cooper never changes. Truly. And like the, we'll get there, but maybe we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there, but specifically her, I almost want to call it a retcon. Like she has such a quiet moment with Madrox later. Her undoing her agreement with Madrox to me is, the saddest thing she does, you know, mm. long like, but just because because it, it's a quiet, shitty thing where she yeah. changes her mind. But we'll get there. Continue. We'll get there. Your... We'll get there. The apotheosis sort of this moment where it's like Val is our friend is Executioner's song, where Xavier is out of commission. They all think Cable did it, so all mm. of the leader characters are kind of out cold, and it falls to Val and Stevie Hunter actually mm-hmm. to like manage a lot of the stuff at the mansion. Val basically just starts commanding all three teams and they all kind of go for it. Cause they're like, you know what? She's getting results. <laughs> like- <laughs> that's the, that's, this is what I want from her. I want her to be this sort of exactly that. So Xavier's out of commission. She's running the show and she can maybe get past some of 
their worst impulses because she thinks more practically, but she is ultimately on their side. That's where I want her to be. Yeah, she. I want her to be someone who is patronizing and on their side theoretically, but mm-hmm. can never really understand their experience. But he's trying, but he's never quite going to get there. Like, I like it when she's trying. She's their, like, girlfriend from high school that will, like, go to the gay club with you, but you can tell she's like, I don't really like this. And, like, <laughs> she's like, it's cute, you know, that's cute for you. It's very that. But, like, you know, she doesn't want to be there. Oh, gosh. This part I really like. After Executioner's Song, they all do the examinations thing with Doc Samson. That oh, oh, wait. No, so that's what, yeah, she, this is when she finally gets pulled into HR. Yes. After years and <laughs> years of her bullshit, they're finally like, you know what? You should probably sit down with somebody and, like, actually get a little, a bit of a talking to. Because <laughs> so Doc Samson does. He interviews her. He interviews all the. He does like therapy. He interviews all of them with all of them, and then one with her. And he's like, "You have it, but lady, you are so backwards. Like you don't understand any of these people, or like at least in the way that they identify themselves. They're all kind of normal functioning people, and she or struggling with something. And and yeah, he's also like." nothing that I got out of them is anything like the profiles you wrote about them. Right. So she's like also bad at, she's also, you're also bad at at your your job. job. And you're also a psychologist and you've analyzed them incorrectly. All of them. And he's like, go think about it. And then she does. He's like, you probably should take some awareness training. Yeah. He sends her to like fully HR training. And then an octopus abducts her. Yeah, so then she <laughs> runs away and she's upset. Which is why I never go to those. <laughs> and she's like, maybe I should quit. And then a tentacle monster attacks her. Right. Like she literally is beset by tentacles. They wrap around her arms and legs and mouth. She goes, mm-hmm. and disappears. Mm-hmm. It pulls her way off panel. And Doc Sampson like steps out of his office and is like, Valerie, like, where are you there? You know. And he's like, now there's only one ponytail in the game. <laughs> <laughs> and it's green. And it's green, baby. Doc Sampson, weirdly hot. Oh, no. For me, gross. To me, he's like, Florida uncle, like Florida gay uncle, Tiger King, I said, no offense. I said weirdly <laughs> because I, I'm not proud of it, uh, no, but no, I think no, I would. I, I'm, I'm sure you would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I actually, like, I think I wouldn't. Like, I know what you're saying, but I think I'd be like. I know what you're saying and I get it. I think he'd like proposition me in like a parking lot in Fort Lauderdale and I'd be like, Ooh. I'm just here to get paper towels. You know, I got to go. Yeah, that's and not. You're into it. That's not. You're into line. it. <laughs> I don't think I'm into that. Okay. Mm, no. Right. He's got Ooh, a van. No. You know, he's got a van. Oh yeah. No. You know what? The Am I ruining you it for say you? It, well, it's at this point. I I don't think I don't think I could get it up for Doc Samson. The more that I think about this, so it's right? not really going to become relevant. He's got a wife. Does he? You know, like not. You mean like? I mean like. I think he has like a wife, like, in, you know, that person in real life. Oh, uh, um, yeah. And like in a sad way, not in a hot way. No. And in like a, in like a torso on the app. Yes. Ex- exactly. Torso app. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, we don't know where this plot was <laughs> supposed to go because two issues later, Peter David leaves the book and, yeah. uh, this is never explained. No, we never find out what the tentacle monster was. No, oh, do we not? I thought the tentacle well, so monster there's the, was because then because so she then gets she's possessed acting and weird, right? She, yeah, so she shows up again and she's like perfectly fine, but she starts to get a little erratic. So she gets into a fight with Havoc about stuff. She tells 
Quicksilver, he can't go on a mission or something. I'm just saying this is never explained. Like, there's more to the plot, but we never actually get to find out what the fuck this was. Oh, that's true. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that, and that's, and I've always thought it was, I guess in my mind, I thought it's something, I guess I, I roped it all together with the Shadow King. With the King, Shadow but King, but it's yeah, not. I guess yeah. it's not. But she clearly is possessed again. By right. this octopus. The octopus just like slid up inside there and is like puppeting her around or whatever. And right. she <laughs> making a rank everywhere. Hopefully yeah. not physically. Right. <laughs> She's real scary. She's like, you know, uh, she beats up multiple man, which is right. funny, honestly. Does he like become a bunch of people? Yeah, she like slams him against a wall a bunch and he yeah. duplicates. <laughs> That's funny. always so gross. That always makes me feel like really gross. Why? When he when when someone hits him and he like becomes two people, it really creeps me out. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's he he he. I yeah, he was Eric Dane in the movie. I mean, come yeah, on. and I don't like McSteamy. I oh, you don't? No, 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 no. I'm a McDreamy all the way through and through. But more importantly, that's fascinating because I was just saying to someone that my theory of like straight women hot versus gay hot is McDreamy versus McSteamy. Oh, I mean, see, McSteamy I would act gay hot. I well, I think you're. I actually think you're right. I actually, I was gonna say I would swap those, but I actually think you're right thematically and through like a queer history lens. I think you're right. Similarly, like Meredith is a Carrie and Addison is a Samantha. Oh, 100 percent. Because like that's the gay identification. Character. But interestingly enough, there's a third paramour here that is my genuinely my multiple man, and that is um, what's his name, Batman and Robin, Robin, but older Chris O'Donnell. Chris older Chris O'Donnell to me is was he on Grey's? Isn't he's a doesn't he show up as a veterinarian? I, I got to be real. I have not watched a lot of Grey's. Honey, I'm I'm tapped out. I I I I, I did not make it to COVID. <laughs> I should say, but uh, I've not seen Meredith in a COVID bed in some COVID wing. I, and I don't think I need to. I'm glad Ellen Pompeo is getting big honking checks. Oh God, me too. Who else? Who else can do it? And I'm glad Kevin McKidd has a job. That's the other reason I don't watch is Kevin McKidd is so hot, and I've heard his character. On oh, the you show love gingers. Lo- you love gingers. I do. I love a ging. That's why I feel so welcome on this podcast. I know. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I'm blonde right now. I'm blonde you right are. Now. You are, actually. But, yeah. you know. Sure. You're a handsome kid, certainly. Thanks. But no, Kevin McKidd was so hot on Rome, HBO's Rome, and it's just like generally hot. And so I would love to watch him be on a soap opera, except that apparently his character is like a piece of shit. He's so awful. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'm not going to watch this because I don't want to. I don't want to poison that guy in my brain. He's so awful. And his thing is like. I mean, he has, like, PTSD, which is sad. But, like, doesn't he hit his girlfriend? Oh, yeah, for sure. We, we, well, you know, because, like, because he has PTSD, but maybe not. Yeah, that's not great. Right. But, like, their thing is that, like, they like to go into, like, this steam room. Speaking of Ainsley Hayes, the steam room, dis- steam pipe distribution. Well, but now I'm picturing Kevin McKidd in a steam room, and I'm not mad Well, it. it's kind of hot. But, like, they go in there, and, like, I don't understand the physics of this. Grey's Anatomy fans... <laughs> Shout out at Pat right on Twitter <laughs> and let me know what the fuck this room was. But they would go into this room that like all this wind would shoot up from the floor and it would calm them. It would like Temple Grandin calm them down from their various mental issues. That they it was were like the with. hug shirt. The hug machine that she made. Or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like a steam pipe distribution venue room like Ainsley Hayes' office. I don't really understand what the hell was going on there. <sighs> I was always very jealous of like Ainsley's robe moments. I always loved to just like be in a robe. A pina colada. Yeah. Yeah. 
but yeah, so we never actually find out what she was possessed by. It's just this very weird... For the second time in as many months, she's yeah, possessed. Yeah, because this is when Peter David leaves the book, and there's some fill-in writers. Eventually, it's Demetrius for a while. It's like Lobdell for a second. Basically, they're just rotating people in and out to fill in. And this is where they write Val out of the book, basically. Right. She ends up coughing up a bunch of slime at one point, and I was like... Like an ooze. Yeah, I guess that's whatever was possessing her, but I feel like it's not ever explained i to me that always read as shadow kingy but i and then i was like surely this will tie together and then i forgot (laughs) and it never does yeah Yeah. because what happens is x factor finds out about oh oh you know what you know what i just remembered because i did look back over this she says at one point and this I, i i just didn't i think i just forgot because it doesn't make sense but she says that the acolytes did it But, like, when are the Acolytes deploying tentacle monsters that possess people? Sure. That's never otherwise happened. It's very Destiny told me this would happen. Right, like, did Amelia vote just, like, open a door and just, like, a tentacle monster jumped Uh, out? Amelia's also in Mutant mutant Siege, Mutant Empire. That was my introduction introduction to her as well. Amelia vote is a queen. You should listen to the audiobook of that, because it's just because it's funny. I honestly might. Julianne Moore, head cast. Ooh... Oh, that's. Good. I have like an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> it's really, it's actually that's kind really of crazy. good. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. She'd be so scary. Yeah, she's scary. She's like a whispery, scary. That would be so good. I love uh, Julianne Moore. God, me, me too. Who doesn't? I mean, we're, like, what gay doesn't love Julianne Moore? Right. Show yourself <laughs> so that you can be properly castigated in the public Absolutely. square. Strung up like a freedom. Yeah, person. truly, like <laughs> auto defe for that uh, faggot. Yeah. So they find out about Project Wide Awake and Val is like, you don't understand Project Wide Awake. It's not that serious. They're only going to do that if we fail in our mission that I'm doing with you guys. So this is the panel I wanted to talk about because this is when she she truly exits, exits stage left, right? Yeah, she's just, they write her out and replace her with Forge. But she exits on a bolded, Mm-hmm. emphasized mm-hmm. type six point mm-hmm. lettering of dot 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 I was just following orders <laughs> Which, it is come on like it's comically bad to me it's it, a it's terrible b it makes no sense for this character first of all Val Cooper has never followed orders no it's it's absolute nonsense and it's reaching for... She's the one who convinces the president of things. That's her whole deal. Yeah, she's convincing, like, adult Reagan, like, poppin' jelly beans, or is that Nixon, <laughs> that <laughs> we gotta do this. And she has never once, as you said, followed orders. But also, like, to put the Nuremberg defense in her mouth and have this blonde lady crying and saying, I was just following orders to the mutants is like... It's ugly. It's ugly. It's on the nose. It's disrespectful to the character, honestly, because like while Val Cooper is a bad person, she's not a Nazi. It almost creates this lens of what I was talking before about how I can't really forgive her is if that's... Like it only... It, it undercuts her agency, obviously, even for even to doing bad things. It makes her sort of kind of weak and, and nothing and 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 honestly this whole issue feels very sexist to me i'm just oh, gonna truly, say it truly she, oh yeah she's I mean, she's got the pony up she's, and she's sobbing crying. and crying and broken and this pathetic is like the big mouth era too she's wearing pink 
and like there's nothing wrong with pink i love a pink power suit but it, the whole thing was just yeah very, i mean like, shades of kimberly this foolish dumb bitch thought that she was something hot is sort of the all, vibe it's of the all issue. it's it's very um this is written by Scott Lobdell, Joe Casada, and Jam DeMatteis, and I don't know who wrote this scene. I would be pretty stunned if it was DeMatteis because he writes women better It's than punishing. This. I can't make up my every direction I can take on this exit, and it is an exit, which, me, which invites criticism and more attention than it needs, so it, it sticks in people's minds. But she, if you see her as meaning that earnestly then it completely undercuts the character and sort of makes her unforget. It's like, oh, then fuck you. Like, you're not, you, at least you didn't even... Right. Go, you're not even going to take accountability? You can't even say, like, oh, this is what I thought was in the best interest. You can't even say, I thought I was doing exactly. the right thing. Or is this yet another manipulation, in which case it's, it's gross. gross and also a gross... You know, I mean, I don't want to take any of her toolbox away from her. I'm sure Mystique would throw one of these around once in a while. But, like, it may, it's a gross kind of... If she's doing a bit, she's kind of throwing, like, all That's what I mean, like, as is bus. the writer. And I, yeah. can't, I can't get away from the idea of, like... And that's the thing is, I just think it's bad writing. And I choose to try and ignore this scene because it's so out of character. I'm just like, she was just full of tentacle monster. Maybe she's, like, not in her right mind. I don't know. I've done worse things after being filled with a tentacle monster. So Big time same. Yeah, and she... It's a it's a non campy version of Michelle Pfeiffer looking up in Batman Returns. You're like, you exactly. would a woman, would you? Would <laughs> a you? Woman, which is clearly making fun of that of, of that, that idea, idea that you think women are not capable. And like, I know she doesn't mention a woman, but, but here like, she's not the way capable. It's rendered, she is like literally hunching over. She's whimpering, and she's like, "I was just falling over." And it's like, it's very like the reader. <laughs> Shades of the Reader. Oh my God! Uh, speaking the of reader, I, did I not still see haven't the reader. seen the reader. <laughs> I even went on to the, the theater. theater. But there was a lie. <laughs> uh, uh, look up Hugh Jackman. Look up Oscar. Hugh ja- when Hugh Jackman hosted the Oscars <laughs> and kids. test your cocaine for fentanyl. Yes, and um, Paul Lind. Paul Lind. Google him. Don't Google John Benet Ramsey. All right. Don't go to Splash. You can't. Well, if it's open, let me know. <laughs> if it is, if you've time traveled somehow to yeah. Campus Thursdays, let us know. Yeah. Because we're in our 30s now and the campus is far, far away. But yeah, this is a, just a weird moment in the history of the book. So that's like a co-written by Casada, And then it's just Labdell and Demetrius together for a while. This is where the Haven arc happens, which I actually love. I love the Haven arc too. It's funny you say that. <laughs> I don't understand it. But no, I, me neither. It's I don't know who that insane. lady is. She's like a snake lady. Her name is Radha Dastur. She's from India. She's a cool character who's appeared, I think, like in nine issues. Like, I don't think she has a full Zaladane. Bizarre story. She wants to like day after tomorrow the world. Yeah, because she to bring about like a heaven on world. earth. Yeah. yeah. She believes that she is like a messianic figure. She's just crazy, unfortunately. And it turns out that her great, unbelievable powers come from a mutant fetus that she has inside her that like the pregnancy never came to term. It's because of the mutation. Like it's just sort of part of her. And uh, then the adversary resurrects himself through the fetus and kills her. That's cool. It's a bummer. Yeah. But uh, I think we should bring her back in Krakoa. I actually have a lot of thoughts about Haven. But hold that thought because this arc truly is 
insane. But kind of transformational for Val. And that's why I think it's a good moment to get into the Cerebro character file on Dr. Valerie Cooper. I will take you through her complete publication history from the Claremont Uncanny of the 80s all the way up through U.S. Agent by Christopher Priest. Then we will return for more with Patrick Sullivan. We will continue to wend our way through the winding road that Val Cooper has been on. It really just goes in a circle back around again and again and again. (laughs) And then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Dr. Valerie Cooper, Val to her friends, is one of the most complex, long-running human characters in the X-Men franchise. Created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr., Val is introduced as an antagonistic government bureaucrat, a young conservative upstart even more extreme in her approach to the mutant question than her colleague Henry Peter Gyrick. Over time, her position softened, and by the 90s she'd become a staunch ally of mutant kind under writer Peter David, even leading the government-directed mutant advocacy group X-Factor. Val's divided loyalties, brutal pragmatism, and outsider perspective have made her a difficult character for the mutants to trust, despite her continual attempts to prove herself. Val debuts in 1983's Uncanny X-Men 176, in which she's presented as the special assistant to the president's chief national security advisor. At a meeting of other U.S. government officials, she takes a hardline stance on mutants, arguing that the state must have superhuman agents under its own control for the purposes of defense. Gyrick, who hasn't met her before, argues that impressing mutants into service would prove Magneto right. But Val is unmoved, and her hard-nosed attitude impresses the other Reagan administration bureaucrats. The following year, Val plays a significant role in an arc from Uncanny X in 183 to 186, now appointed to the Special Commission on Superhuman Activity. Working alongside Deputy DARPA Director Raven Darkhome, secretly the mutant terrorist Mystique, Val and Gyrick commission the mutant inventor Forge to create a weapon that depowers superhuman beings. The NSA seizes the prototype, still untested, and decides to use it on wanted terrorist Rogue, a former member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and recent recruit of the X-Men. As Raven is secretly Rogue's mother, she protests, but Val defends the NSA's decision. In the end, the X-Men's leader Storm takes the shot, meant for Rogue and fired by Gyrick, losing her own mutant power over weather. Gyrick continues to search for Rogue, while Val meets with an intelligence agent named Philip Rosen, who's quickly murdered and impersonated by the shape-shifting aliens called the Dire Wraiths. The Wraiths hope to compromise the governments of Earth, and replacing Val is their actual goal. Val defends herself, shooting the Wraith in Rosen's form, and is ironically rescued by Rogue. When Rogue absorbs some of Val's memories and understands Val was behind the neutralizer device, she threatens to kill Val if anything happens to Storm. When Kulan Gath, friend of the pod, transforms Manhattan into Conan times with a spell, Val coordinates the government's response. She surprises her colleagues by defending the X-Men as heroes attempting to solve the problem, just like the Avengers. The following year, in 1985's Uncanny X-Men 199, Val's approached at her home by Mystique, who knows, due to her secret identity as Deputy Director Darkholm, that Val wants a government-controlled group of superhumans. She offers to sign her brotherhood over to Val's service in exchange for a full pardon. Val considers the prospect and agrees, provided that the members of the newly christened Freedom Force keep their noses clean and succeed in their first task, apprehending international terrorist Magneto. This leads into the famous Trial of Magneto story. For reasons unclear to Mystique, Val makes an addition to Freedom Force, the new Spider-Woman, Julia Carpenter, who doesn't get along with her former terrorist teammates. This is where Val begins appearing in non-X titles as well, as Julia betrays Val and Freedom Force by freeing the Avengers from custody in Avengers Annual 15. A few months later, in Iron Man 214 by Danny Fingeroth and Tom Morgan, Val manipulates Iron Man into hunting down Julia. Julia eventually turns herself in, and Val blackmails her into becoming Val's personal undercover agent. 
While continuing to appear in Uncanny X-Men as the director of Freedom Force, Val also begins appearing in the Mark Grunewald and Tom Morgan run on Captain America, where she manages the crisis of Steve Rogers' unexpected resignation. It's Val who hires John Walker, the hero super patriot, as the new Cap. She becomes his official handler at the Commission on Superhuman Activity, and the two grow close, with Val admiring Walker's loyalty to his country. Unfortunately, when Walker is outed as the new Captain America, his parents are murdered by terrorists, and Walker murders them in vengeance. It also turns out that the whole commission's been compromised by the Red Skull, which is why Steve Rogers left in the first place. Pretty embarrassing. Val becomes the acting chair of the commission and agrees to reinstate Steve and give him more freedom in decision-making. At the press conference to announce Steve's return to the role of Cap, Walker is apparently assassinated by an unknown gunman. It turns out he's actually faked his death with the help of the government to protect his loved ones going forward, and he joins the West Coast Avengers as U.S. agent. After a year of appearing exclusively in Captain America, Val returns to the X-Men franchise in 1989's Uncanny X-Men 254, where she sends Freedom Force on a mission to Mirror Island that ends in tragedy. Two members of the team, Stonewall and Destiny, are killed. As Destiny was Mystique's lover, this dramatically changes the tenor of the relationship between Mystique and Val. In 1990, in the lead-up to the Muir Island saga, Val begins meeting with a Soviet operative named Alexei Vajin, who warns her about new threats on the horizon, including Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. Unfortunately, the warning isn't enough to prevent Val from being put under Farouk's partial control. As Val's particularly strong-willed, the Shadow King isn't able to completely dominate her, but he insists he will break her in time. His first major task for the possessed Val is to kill Mystique, and Val arrives at Freedom Force headquarters to discover Mystique already knows Val has come to kill her. Destiny left a note. As Uncanny X-Men 266 ends, Mystique accepts her death and is apparently shot by Val, who continues to appear as part of the Shadow King's retinue. Eventually, Val is able to partially break Farouk's hold, distracting him and allowing the X-Men to destroy his current host. Though he jumps into Legion, Charles Xavier's incredibly powerful and unstable son, and the murderer of Destiny, he is ultimately defeated. As the event draws to a close, we learn that the Val we've recently been seeing is actually Mystique. Back in Uncanny 266, Val managed to resist Farouk's command to kill Mystique, shooting herself instead. Mystique saved Val's life with the help of S.H.I.E.L.D. operatives, and allowed herself to be hypnotized into believing she was actually Val in order to get close to the Shadow King and help defeat him. Val has been recuperating ever since, and finds Freedom Force disbanded by the time she's back on her feet. Still eager to have a team of mutants operating directly with the government, Val approaches some of the Muir Island X-Men, Strong Guy, Polaris, and Multiple Man, and invites them to join a new iteration of X-Factor under new writer Peter David. She recruits Havoc and Wolfsbane, who've been aiding in the transition of power on recently liberated Genosha, and eventually rounds out the team with former Brotherhood and Avengers member Quicksilver. Val is named X-Factor's official liaison with the government, and while Havoc is ostensibly the team's leader, she's the one calling most of the shots. Around this time, she mentions in passing that she first became a government official because her older brother, an FBI agent who specializes in strange cases, inspired her. This is a cheeky reference to Dale Cooper, the protagonist of the television series Twin Peaks, a character created years after Val Cooper's debut in X-Men comics. We also meet Val's ex-husband, Edmund Atkinson, who's a polygraph expert and also a government employee. They have a close relationship despite their divorce, and Val clearly has lingering feelings for him. But it turns out he's Mr. Sinister? Or maybe Mr. Sinister killed and replaced him? Don't worry about it. I mean, I do worry about it, but there isn't an answer, so like, just try to sleep at night knowing that Val Cooper maybe was married to a disguised Mr. Sinister. I guess. In a very odd crossover with Peter David's other book, Incredible Hulk, Val gets captured by a Middle Eastern world leader and dressed in a harem girl outfit. I got nothing. Shortly thereafter, over in X-Factor, she begins wearing a uniform like the one the mutant team members wear, which I think is cute. Over in Spider-Woman and Avengers West Coast, both by Roy Thomas, we get some flashback insight into Val's previously mysterious relationship with Julia Carpenter, the second Spider-Woman. Val met Julia as an undergrad while Val was getting her PhD in psychology, and they became tennis buddies. 
Years later, when she was working at the commission and Julia was a single mother in need of money, Doss suggested Julia become the test subject for the Commission on Superhuman Activities project to create superhumans under government authority, and turned her into Spider-Woman. Val begins going on field missions with X-Factor more and more, and butts heads with Havoc more frequently over who's in charge. This tension's still bubbling over when the franchise-wide event Executioner's Song begins in 1992, and Val takes it upon herself to coordinate things at Xavier's when Professor X is taken out of commission by Strife. She's later attacked at the mansion by Mr. Sinister, but rescued by recent ex-unrecruit Bishop. The mutants appreciate Val's operations experience, and at this point the character has shifted pretty definitively into the role of ally rather than antagonist. Following the event, Val has the members of X-Factor undergo assessment with psychologist Doc Sampson in the famous issue Examinations by Peter David and Joe Casada. She's embarrassed when her own assessments of her subordinates utterly conflict with Sampson's, and is contemplating resigning from her post when she's suddenly attacked by a tentacle monster and dragged off panel. In the next arc, Val's gone crazy and is clearly possessed by something evil. She beats up multiple men. It's wild. At this point, Peter David abruptly leaves the title, and Scott Lobdell and J.M. DeMatteis finish out the storyline. Shortly after David's departure, it revealed that Val knows more about government anti-mutant activities than she's told X-Factor. Project Wide Awake and its Sentinels have been fully funded. It turns out the tentacle monster possession was caused by the Acolytes. Don't worry about it. And X-Factor rejects Val for failing to tell them about Wide Awake, even though she knew it was progressing before she was possessed. Val protests she was just following orders, and says she values the members of X-Factor as her friends, but they abandoned her regardless. Val agrees to resign, and is replaced as X-Factor's government liaison by Forge. After another encounter with her friend-turned-enemy, Julia Carpenter, Val returns to the pages of X-Factor in issue 97, where she's apparently joined the cult of Haven, an insane mutant convinced her acts of superpowered terrorism will bring about world peace. Val successfully completes Haven's brutal psychic initiation, and becomes one of Haven's key associates. But, of course, she turns out to be a double agent working undercover, and rescues X-Factor when Haven captures them. Tragically, during the final conflict between X-Factor and Haven, Jamie Madrex the Multiple Man succumbs to the Legacy Virus, a new fatal autoimmune disease released into the atmosphere by Strife back in Executioner's Song. Val decides to keep what she's learned about Legacy, that it only infects mutants, a secret from the government, as she worries that knowledge will further inflame anti-mutant sentiment. Under new writers John Francis Moore and Todd DeZago, Val hunts Mystique down to stop her from murdering Legion to avenge Destiny. While talking Raven down on the pier in Tel Aviv, now aware that Mystique and her old coworker from DARPA were always the same person, Val hits her head thanks to interference by Avalanche and begins drowning. Mystique reluctantly leaves her to die in order to escape, but Strong Guy comes to the rescue just in time. Val begins working with X-Factor again, continuing to track Mystique. After the Age of Apocalypse reality warp ends and the world at large becomes aware of the nature of the legacy virus, Val speaks before the World Health Organization and insists that the virus has not yet proven itself a global threat, attempting to calm anti-mutant tensions. She then pulls some strings with the government to get Mystique placed on X-Factor as an operative in order to work off her criminal record. Val no longer believes Mystique can be rehabilitated, but doesn't want to see Raven languishing in jail. So instead, she outfits Mystique with a power inhibitor device that prevents her from shapeshifting into any of the X-Factor agents or members of the X-Men for any extended period of time. Mystique is outraged at this violation and furious with Val. The team also welcomes new recruit Kyle Gibney, a.k.a. Wildchild, who joins up after the disbanding of Alpha Flight. It's clear Wildchild and Val have some sort of history, but Val refuses to talk to him about it. After this team revamp is complete, Howard Mackey takes over as writer on X-Factor with issue 115, and continues through to the end of the book some years later. Over in Uncanny X-Men, Xavier has been trying to forcibly rehabilitate Sabretooth, and it just isn't working. Val manages to make it look like Sabretooth's been killed, and secretly places him in suspended animation in government custody. 
On one of her visits to assess his healing, Sabretooth snaps out of his stasis and attacks Val, who feels he's too dangerous to remain alive. The government thinks he's useful, though, and instead bind him with a high-tech collar that shocks his brain if he attacks anyone he's forbidden to harm. It's very Spike on the later seasons of Buffy, if you've seen Buffy, but this plot actually happens years earlier. Fun fact. Anyway, Val is informed by her superiors that she's going to be tasked with overseeing Sabretooth as her newest X-Factor agent, and she is furious. Her new boss, General Bowser, demonstrates the efficiency of the shock collar by ordering Sabretooth to kill Val and watching as he's unable to do so. Val isn't happy to have Sabretooth around. She's particularly irate when it seems he knows about government secret projects she wasn't privy to. Not long after this, the newest member of X-Factor, the holographic recreation of Shard Bishop, do not worry about this right now, uncovers evidence of tampering with Forger's computers. At Forger's request, Val lies to her superiors about how she acquired this information, claiming it came from Mystique. Now closer with the mutants than ever, she's promptly dragged back to square one in the eyes of a lot of them when she's tasked with arresting Charles Xavier after the onslaught incident. She's then made to work with a guy called Bastion, who is secretly a super sentinel, but don't worry about that right now. Bastion has Val send X-Factor to apprehend Jamie Madrox, who it turns out is actually alive, and this infuriates Forge and Polaris. Not long afterward, Val tries to convince anti-mutant presidential candidate Graydon Creed that his security detail is insufficient. He ignores her, but it turns out there's indeed someone planning to assassinate him at an event. His mother, Mystique, who shapeshifts into Val to get security access. Val manages to stop her, but Mystique makes it even clearer to Val that there's stuff going on at high levels of government that Val knows nothing about. Graydon Creed is then killed by an unknown sniper. A retcon years later will establish Mystique did it herself via time travel, which is kind of hilarious. Two issues later, Val is devastated when Forge, Polaris, and Mystique announce X-Factors quitting their government service and going independent. Forge is pretty harsh, telling Val she'll never be one of them no matter how much she wants to be. General Bowser observes via satellite, but it's actually part of a plan to take X-Factor underground. The team fakes their own deaths, and Val helps them keep Forge's data safe from the government. This leads into the franchise-wide event Operation Zero Tolerance, where it turns out Sabretooth was placed on the team specifically to act as a kill switch if X-Factor needed to be eliminated. Val tries to warn Forge, but it's too late, and Sabretooth has nearly killed everybody. Val's ex-husband Edmund, probably the real Edmund and not Mr. Sinister, I truly don't know, helps her keep X-Factor safe from the government, who are now aware they're still alive. The betrayal by Sabretooth is the last straw for Mystique, who insists Val will pay for all she's done to her. Right after it seems like Val and Edmund might be reconciling, Edmund gets shot. Havoc, who had recently defected to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, don't worry about it, it turns out he's undercover, arrives with a teleporter and offers to bring Val with him. But Val insists she's not a rebel and will be most useful working within the system. She stays with Edmund and waits for the authorities to arrive. While Val had helped X-Factor escape, she's not punished by her superiors. She decides to dedicate her new free time to figuring out who killed Graydon Creed, and works with Edmund on piecing together information about Graydon's parents, Sabretooth and Mystique. One night they're approached by Wild Child, whose feral mutation is out of control. He's become very sick, and while he's sleeping, Val explains to Edmund the history between her and Wild Child that we previously haven't been privy to. They're then attacked by Sabretooth, who forces Val to relate the story to Wild Child himself. When she was freshly graduated from college, Val was recruited by the government to help develop public policy on mutants. Kyle Gibney was her first test subject, and she thought he had been voluntarily checked in by his parents for help, and that he was delusional. In fact, Val's employers were the conspiracy called the Secret Empire, Kyle had been kidnapped, and their goal was to turn him into a mindless assassin. Val was so good at working with Kyle that his mutation began progressing exactly the way the project wanted, so they removed him from her care to exploit him. Later, at a new job, she discovered the truth about her first employers. Val snuck back into their facility in an effort to rescue Kyle, but found him utterly transformed into the wild child, apparently beyond psychological help. Heartbroken, she left him to his fate. In the present, Sabretooth goads Wildchild to kill Val, but instead he saves her. 
Government agents burst into the apartment, but both Wildchild and Sabretooth escape. Val later finds a note from Wildchild telling her not to feel guilty because he now understands why she behaved as she did all those years ago. Six issues later, in the penultimate issue of X-Factor, Val claims personal jurisdiction over Havoc when Henry Peter Gyrick arrests him. Unfortunately, Havoc's apparently killed in the following issue, actually transported to another Earth when the book is relaunched as Mutant X. Val returns to recurring character status across the Marvel Universe, working with the Fantastic Four when Reed Richards is kidnapped, and once more helping the X-Men when a mutant tracking missile technology is being developed. She stresses that she's now fully converted to the cause of mutant rights, and begins recurring in the pages of Thunderbolts, a book about a team of reform villains similar to Freedom Force. She commissions John Walker, the U.S. agent, as leader of a new government team called the Superhuman Tactical Activities Response Squad, STARS. Val then undercovers corruption by Gyrick, who's gone crazy because he's being controlled by Nazi nanoprobes, don't worry about it, and plans to use further nanoprobes to exterminate superhumans at will. Hawkeye, who's been leading the Thunderbolts, plans to go public, but Val convinces him it'll spark a war exactly like the one Gyrick was trying to cause. Hawkeye agrees to help her cover it up if she gives the Thunderbolts a full pardon, so she agrees to arrange one. Val returns two years later in the back half of Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men in 2003, now the National Security Advisor on Parahuman Affairs. Claremont regresses Val completely to the pragmatist anti-mutant bureaucrat she was back in the 80s, and here she implores leaders around the world to declare mutants living weapons of mass destruction in order to seize control of them. This would make the mere act of being a mutant a crime against humanity. It's fully nuts, like Claremont hadn't read a single one of the Peter David stories from the 90s, and nobody in editorial, I guess, bothered to tell him the character had changed a lot. Storm convinces Val to back down on her wacky plan by offering to turn the Extreme X-Men into the XSE, the Extreme Sanctions Executive, an international mutant police force that will keep evil mutants under control. Val agrees to her terms, and the XSE is officially sanctioned. Val returns in 2005 after the event called the Decimation dramatically downscales the mutant population, depowering all but about 200 mutants worldwide. Now the deputy director of the ONE, the Office of National Emergency, Val is assigned against her wishes to oversee the mutant population as the chaos unfolds. She decides that with mutants now a highly endangered species, the only way to protect them is to keep watch over them, enclosing them on the grounds of the Xavier Institute and using sentinels with human pilots to keep them inside. This is fully insane, and Cyclops objects, but Val refuses to budge. To her credit, she does keep Polaris's decimated status a secret after she figures it out. A Sentinel Squad ONE miniseries by John Lehman and Aaron Lepresti shows us how Val set up this peculiar new operation. The government decided to employ the Sentinels they had lying around as an alternative to superhero teams like the Avengers, just in case the Avengers are too busy or something. With the help of James Rhodes, aka War Machine, Val convinces the government to redesign the Sentinels to employ human pilots instead of relying on artificial intelligence. In the David Hyde and Jim Muniz miniseries, X-Men The 198, things at the Xavier Institute get more and more draconian, and eventually the place is basically a glorified internment camp for the 198 mutants known to still exist. Val offers to give the mutants supervised trips into town, provided that they agree to be monitored by GPS. Almost everyone tells her to go fuck herself, but some of the mutants accept the tags and then start a riot in Salem Center. The GPS tags immediately stun all the rioters, which infuriates the X-Men and the rest of the 198. Val protests she didn't know the tags were weaponized, and her superior general, Laser, readily admits he kept that information from her because he knew she'd tell the X-Men. Val threatens to speak with Top Brass, only to be stunned. Somehow she is always stunned, even though this always happens, to learn that it was the highest level of authority in the government that had commanded the mutants be tagged and restrained in the first place. Absalon Mercator, aka Mr. M, uses his Omega-level reality-warping powers to get rid of the tags, and some of the mutants decide to leave the Xavier Institute internment camp. 
Val implores Cyclops to make sure they stay, because if she gets pulled from her post supervising the situation, the person tapped to replace her will no doubt be much less sympathetic to the mutant cause. A few months later, in Uncanny X-Men, now written by Chris Claremont in his return to the title, Val begins developing a close relationship with the time-traveling X-Man Lucas Bishop, who saved her life back in Executioner's Song all those years ago. She insists her interest in Bishop is strictly professional, but it seems very flirtatious. As the company-wide event Civil War begins, David Hine and Yannick Paquette launches Civil War X-Men miniseries in which Val and Bishop are tasked by the ONE with tracking down rogue mutants who've broken out of the Xavier Institute camp. Civil rights organizations have been agitating about the mutant internment, and the president begins considering a full pardon for those mutants who left. Val assures Bishop that any mutant who complies with the Superhuman Registration Act will have the same status as any other superhuman. Her evil superior, General Laser, who hates mutants, tries to kill off the mutants who left the camp, so Val breaks his kneecaps with a crowbar, which is fun. General Laser says some disgusting things about Val's attraction to Bishop that have obvious anti-mutant sentiment, but allegorically also suggest real-world racism, as visually Val and Bishop would also be an interracial couple if they got together. So that's the vibe, and that guy sucks. Moments later, he's killed by a voodoo mutant you don't need to worry about. Anyway, the mutants are then allowed to leave the Xavier Institute camp, and Val offers Bishop a formal job with the ONE. The Xavier Institute's going to become a voluntary community where mutants can live if they want to, with ONE protection. Reflecting on some harsh conversations with Emma Frost and her crowbar violence against the general, Val wonders if she truly has become a monster. Bishop reassures her she hasn't. This whole era is so weird. In any case, Val continues to hang around Xavier's doing security with her Sentinel squad, butting heads with Xavier and insisting mutant affairs are her jurisdiction. After a situation with the X-Men's friend Caliban becomes especially contentious, former relations between the X-Men and the ONE are irreparably damaged. Val then pivots into Peter David's relaunch of X-Factor, usually called X-Factor Investigations, to distinguish it from the previous iteration. This time, instead of leading the group or acting as an ally, Val is a sympathetic antagonist, presenting problems for Jamie Madrox and his new X-Factor detective agency, while also, in her own way, attempting to help them. Val offers Madrox formal government protection for the agency, but he refuses, knowing Val's offers always come with red tape attached. She still helps him evade scrutiny when his out-of-control dupes create dangerous situations, and she ends up hiring the team herself when a terrorist group called X-Cell, comprised of decimated mutants, becomes an ongoing problem. Appealing to another one of her old X-Factor teammates, Strong Guy, she offers to make him the official sheriff of Mutant Town in Manhattan, where the new agency operates. Strong Guy's tempted, but ultimately declines, suspecting Val wants him to spy on his teammates. The following year, when X-Factor publicly rejects the Superhuman Registration Act, and most of Mutant Town gets blown up by the villain Arcade, Val arrives at the agency to inform them they have two options. They can cease operations and enter the Witness Protection Program, where they can start working for the ONE. She gives them 24 hours to decide. The following day, she arrives to find a recording from Madrox informing her the team chooses neither option. They've booby-trapped the headquarters, and the building collapses, but Val just barely manages to escape. After a five-month time jump, Val tracks the team down in Detroit, where she cuts a deal with Madrox. She will let him operate independently if he also secretly casts out tasks for the ONE. He agrees, but drags his feet on her jobs until she threatens to tell his teammates what he's been doing for her. Some issues later, when Madrox still hasn't been following her orders, Val arrives at the agency and spills the beans to Siren and Richter. She's also very interested in Siren's pregnancy, as the only mutant baby born after the decimation, Hope Summers, had set off the horrific event Messiah Complex. Val insists she just wants to protect Madrox and Siren's baby if he turns out to be a mutant like his parents, but Siren attacks her. The stress of the argument causes Siren to go into labor, and she and Richter attempt to go to the hospital but are prevented from leaving the building by government agents. Richter, in a classic suicidal Richter move, grabs a gun and starts shooting at random, creating a firefight to give Siren time to get away. 
Unfortunately, a bullet ricochets and hits Val right in the chest. Siren, amid birth contractions, flies herself and Val to the hospital, where Val makes a full recovery. When Madrox visits her, Val insists she only wanted to keep his son safe. It turns out it doesn't matter, because the baby is actually a dupe, and Madrox accidentally absorbs him. This story sucks, and I'm not going to get into it again. Check out the Madrox and Siren episodes, please. There's one very nice moment where Val, now walking with a cane as she recovers from the gunshot wound, visits X-Factor and sees Siren, an alcoholic in recovery, apparently drinking alcohol. It turns out to be water, thankfully, but when Siren dismisses Val as unable to understand her grief at losing her child, Val reveals she suffered a miscarriage herself five years earlier. Over a hundred issues later, when Havoc is leading the agency, he takes one job from Val. That's her last appearance in X-Factor Investigations. Four years later, in 2016, she makes a cameo in Cullen Bunn's run on Uncanny X-Men, appearing on television to defend the X-Men against an anti-mutant senator. After a couple other minor cameos, she has a recurring role in the 2021 U.S. Agent miniseries by Christopher Priest, where we learn that her longtime relationship with John Walker is not as platonic as we might have previously thought. Where will the ultimate girl boss turn up next? It's been a while since she crossed paths with the X-Men. But with Henry Peter Gyrick making big moves as a leader of Orcus, I'm sure we'll be seeing his opposite number again sometime soon. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that accounting of Valerie Cooper's various war crimes. We're now back with friend of the pod, returning guest, Patrick Sullivan, art director at Simon Element at Simon & Schuster. Patrick, how are you doing after that break? I'm doing great. My cat was really revolting against the recording of this podcast, but I think I got her well and truly stoned on some catnip. So I think that is a great choice. I think both of us are going to coast off pretty soon. So <laughs> we should probably so we should stay so on we topic. should get right to it and try yep. to stay a little bit more on topic. But I hope you've enjoyed the variety show that this episode has been <laughs> yeah, to some right. extent. I think that we've covered a lot of really important topics, especially mm-hmm. in terms of for educating. the youth. Gen Z, yeah. Yeah. So where were we? We were at Haven. So this is what's really funny is there's this whole arc where like, so Haven's a cult leader and Val, who has basically been rejected by X Factor after that previous story, she shows up and like joins Haven's cult and seems like she's totally in it. And X Factor's like, what the fuck? But why would they, it's so wild, you know, it's what we eventually learn, and you'll cover that, but... Is that she's undercover, yeah. Of course course. she is. Like, of course she is. The manner in which she's undercover is actually sort of interesting, and I think transformational for this character, um, in the sense that it's quite well, truly, for the good of mutants, and that's that's it. But... I would be like, what the fuck is she doing if I was Havoc? But like, again, much like the Shadow King, she actually does undergo the like mystical, horrible ordeal that Haven puts her initiates through. She makes her do the Darth Vader like maze yes. thing where she's like, I gotta look at myself and I gotta yeah. like fight my and dad. Val beats it. Yeah, she wins. Which is cool. Her superpower is determination. Yes, yeah, she will not, will not give up on her mission. When X-Factor gets captured by Haven, Val's like, duh, I'm undercover, you dumbasses. Did you really think I had joined a cult? Like, come on. Havoc's got like two brain cells to rub together, so. (laughs) God love him. (laughs) And she's just sort of, I I would say in this, she's back in character. Yeah. The way she was written out was so odd. And this feels much more like the Val that we've come to know. I will retcon it and say that her exit was a tired beleaguered 
I'm going to write it off as a tentacle monster side effect, basically. Sure. That's what I mean. Like the tentacle, the tentacle side effect of her entire life is just being like, she was just, she was fucking tired. I mean, listen, one of those tentacle monsters might or might not have been Mr. Sinister the whole time. We just don't know. Right. I think the other thing though, and this is just me putting it out there. Scott Lobdell is not writing X Factor anymore at this point. J.M. DeMatteis is writing the whole thing. Actually, I think, um, I think Todd DeZago is co-writing, but Here's the thing about J.M. DeMatteis. He writes women in a way I think is pretty respectful in terms of like everything I've read. Like he wrote all of those Candy Southern issues of The Defenders. So good. Before Gillis took over. But like he's the one who established her vibe in that period. So, you know, he's, I trust him to write Valerie Cooper is what I'm saying. (laughs) And when he's the top of the masthead on the issues, suddenly she's back in character in my opinion. So just worth thinking about. Jam de Mateus, come on the pod. No, I'm kidding. But if you want to, <laughs> let me know. The end of the Haven arc is that multiple man drops dead from the legacy virus in the middle of the conflict. Like, that's how the climax, that's like the big climax thing in X Factor 100. That's an issue that I think works at the time. It's weakened significantly by the fact that he comes back pretty quickly. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that's true of all of all of these. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think that this is a good beat for Val because she then moves immediately into a scene where, this is in 103, I think, where she basically talks to the mutant affairs officials in the U.S. government and explains the updates on the legacy virus. And she omits a pretty critical... There's this idea that the genotion mutate process is connected to the virus. Basically, she conceals information that would be bad for the mutants if it got to the government. Her thing, her twist on it is silence equals life a little bit. Yeah, because yeah. she's basically like, you know what? If I don't tell the government everything I know, maybe mutants won't be ostracized. She finds out that the, the what what makes a mutant a mutant genetically is actually what allows for the legacy virus to take root and so that and so that she is she's like this really will only concern them which is where it gets a little zootopia as far as the metaphor gets a little funky (laughs) and it's like right it's like if straight people people literally can't can't they can't get it they can't get it uh Um, but of course that's why i do think that the twist and now of course in retrospect, with the new retcons about Moira, it's, it doesn't quite work. But the twist of Moira contracting it was really good for exactly that reason. Right. Because it broke down that, that was the whole issue. Yeah. yeah. It was like, oh, actually, turns oh, man. out not Connor, true. I didn't even think of the fact that we've undone that. Yeah, it's a bummer. Because that is that is a good story. Oh, that's a huge bummer. Yeah, that one's that's the one that's the bummer one about the, the Moira X thing to me. I love everything about Moira X except me too. that her legacy her legacy I mean, she's good. literally right she's she's right up there. Yeah. You can see, you can see I have her, I have her on my shelf in the other room. Yeah. Do you have her in the the coat or the hat? In the coat. Mine is in the newsboy cap casual outfit. But I kind of want to have the two. newsboy cap is a is a boot, honey. It <laughs> makes me laugh though. It's that like, outfit's oh, a boot. But I love that it's become her iconic look, even though she never wore it before that issue. There's a general fashion problem in comics, largely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough to get incredible, incredible illustration, incredible, beautiful panel, and a keen eye for, for human I, fashion. I, I think Pepe Larath is, is oh, pretty solid. Truly incredible artist. But, I mean, on the fashions end, too. I think that new costume that Polaris has right now oh, is like no, maybe the, the best costume she's ever had. Costuming 
superhero outfit. Costuming and street clothes are different. That's are true. different things. Yeah. So the Emma, Emma, but the Emma blurs the lines. Emma's day clothes have been incredible. Well, Emma, yeah, Emma's costumes are streetwear, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like, anyway. I, prom- I promised I wouldn't take you off track. Start again. I know. Anyway, then there's a whole bit where Mystique tries to kill Legion to avenge Destiny, and Val figures it out and stops her, which is kind of a cool sequence. She tracks her down to like an island or something, and she's yeah, she's about it's, to. Well, she's in Israel. Him. Is oh Israel? She goes to Tel Aviv, and she's gonna poison, poison Legion. And Val stops her, and they have a conversation where Val is actually kind of revealing and interesting about Freedom Force. She says, I have to tell you, Raven, a part of me regrets this. I had such high hopes for the Freedom Force project. And when it all went bad, I fought hard to keep you out of lockup. Everyone said you were unredeemable. I hate being wrong. And Mystique says, is that what this is about, Val? Why are you so driven to put me away? To repair your damaged ego? Because your pet project Freedom Force was a failure? This isn't about you or Freedom Force. Irene is dead. And that's great. The mystique part is great. I'm confused why she doesn't agree that Legion should die. Should die. Because I do feel like Val thinks Legion should die. Me too. And so I'm like, what do you, girl, what do you, like, and the Haven stuff, I thought she was on, like, oh, now she cares about she seems to have like gone through, I you know, especially where we left her. I feel like she's gone through the gamut and is now like a little bit clearer on the idea of of what would lead to prosperity more so. But this is a weird. It's a weird. Uh, it's a weird shift. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are to understand that at this point her sympathies lie with the X-Men and that that has sort of been a steadily evolving position over the course of the 90s. And like, that's Professor X's son. Sure. You know, I think that's kind of what it is more than anything else. And I guess that tracks the character that she would make hypocritical. Right, yeah. Concessions to her politics. Exactly. Because they should fully kill Legion, right? I mean, like... Oh, I mean, yeah. Age of Apocalypse has ha- hasn't has happened or is about to happen? Uh, it's about to happen. Yeah, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a Wanda Maximoff situation where it's like, yeah. Yeah. Also, Charles, absolutely, it's not need a son. No. He's that guy not... does not need a child. Not good. Not good. <laughs> this is where... This is where the pivot to the Howard Mackie X Factor starts happening. There is a very funny twist, which is this retcon about Wild Child, <laughs> which we alluded to earlier, which is that it turns out that fresh out of college, 22-year-old Valerie Cooper got like an internship with the government. It's like an alias thing. They they retcon her as like an alias. I'm actually curious. Like a prodigy. Yeah. yeah. They approach her at college to be like, we would like you to be part of this. Right. But the funniest thing is it turns out it's not really a legit organization. It's like the aliens. secret empire. Yeah. Well, right. But I'm saying like, it's not just any, it's the secret empire, which is like the fake, like the Nixon analog who like commits suicide and that yeah. Captain America. <laughs> like it was them. She was an intern for the secret empire. That is like that is the perfect Valerie Cooper retcon. Ainsley Hayes. Interning for the Secret Empire is all Val Cooper has ever done. She loves to intern for the Secret Empire. And just be like, oh my God, my boss was evil the whole time? What? (laughs) 
What? Quelle surprise! <laughs> so it turns out that Val was basically like a talk therapist for Wild Child during his indoctrination as a murderous assassin by the Secret Empire. <laughs> but he's not. But he's not Wild Child yet, or does he have Wild? Like he's he's like just it was like before. A boy. I, I don't whatever. Wild Child. He's like was, an emotional. He like feeds off emotions. Well, because if we're to assume now, I think like she's like late thirties, early forties. I think we're supposed to assume maybe like early forties. Mm-hmm. Let's say her, her general like her general vibe is like thirty nine. Yeah, exactly. This was like ten years ago, so he was like a, a young teen. Yeah, I thought he was like sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's before he's the character we know today. But anyway, he ends. He's one of the new characters that ends up joining the team, and it's revealed that they have this complicated history together. Oh, is this the saber? Is this the Sabretooth stuff? Yes. Hell yeah. Because I then love Sabretooth, Sabretooth. I love Sabretooth. <laughs> oh my god. Problematic fame. I'm problematic king. Like just like a nasty piece of work. About as nasty as it gets. I'm actually I'm really excited to see what Victor Laval does with him. Is he still in the pit? I don't know if he's gotten out of he's the He's been in the pit, but he's getting out. I, so here's cool. the thing. I think what a, the mini- what a, what a Chekhov's Sabretooth. Such a long thing to hold on to. Which they haven't done. I feel like they haven't done this in a long time where it's like so clearly a piece set on the board. And it's like, like get ba- we'll, we'll get, get back, back to you in two it. years. Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, they, they did with that and the destiny burned it all down. And I was like, I love this shit. <laughs> Excalibur 1, if you go back to it, has so much shit for Ten of Swords. Oh, I'm sure. They've been good this era about planting little things that when you go back, you're like, damn. Right. No, I'm fully entering into like a Finn Dom situation with Jonathan Hickman. So. <laughs> <laughs> the whole office at this point. Yeah. I'm buying solo Wolverine. I buy everything. I read. I book. buy solo Wolverine. I buy an X-Force title every month. Me too. That's the straightest thing I've ever done. So this is where Sabretooth. So, so to, to give you some context, uh, if you're not familiar with the 90s stuff, listeners, Sabretooth in this period is a prisoner at the X-Mansion and the professor and Jean are basically trying to rehabilitate him like using intrusive telepathic therapy. Boy erased. They're trying to boy erase I was going to say Clockwork Orange. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. They are boy erasing Sabretooth. And Boom Boom is there and she's like, but he's so like interesting and dangerous and I, and he reminds me of my dad or whatever. And I would like to be friends with him or something. Is that the case? Yes. Okay. I love Boom Boom. I love Boom Boom. She's like, he's just like my shitty dad. And I would like to be friends with him. He can't be all that bad down deep. She's not Southern. But that's what she sounds like to me. She's in her full BH90210 bag in this era where you're like, you're like really trying to help her get out of this, this rut. And she's like, just give me a moment alone with Sabretooth. <laughs> with Sabretooth. With Sabretooth. Sabretooth. An enormous, like, carny wrestler, like, scary, like... Well, because, yeah, this is roided out Sabretooth of yeah. the 90s. Oh, he's, he's like, like, like from Marvel vs. Capcom. Which is how I like it. I like Sabretooth oh. as, like... Mm, I like Sabretooth. Mm. I, I mean, problematic fame, but I really... Problematic, but really listen. find Sabretooth attractive. <laughs> Sabretooth is... Catch me in that Canadian cabin anytime you'd like. Oh and, when, and when I say catch me, <laughs> <laughs> I be running. But that's the thing about Sabretooth that's interesting if you like to think about is he evolves from being, and I'll get into this more deeply in a Sabretooth episode at some point, hopefully in the next couple months, because that book is coming soon. A solo Sabretooth book? Yeah, Victor Laval's writing it. <gasps> 
That's what I was talking about. I misunderstood you. I thought someone was taking over a book that he was going to be featured in. And no, no, no. It's a mini. It's five issues Hell about yeah. his like experience in the pit and what happens after. Stop it. I can't wait. I'm really psyched. But what I'm saying is, it is interesting. The 90s, there's a very deliberate transformation of Sabretooth. Because in the 80s, he is just like a gross, creepy rapist. Yeah. No, he's like really awful. He's disgusting. And it's actually very parallel to what happens with Wolverine. As Wolverine becomes sexy, Sabretooth becomes like bad boy sexy in the 90s. Like suddenly you're like Sabretooth is hot, which is a very weird. But it's fascinating because he makes Wolverine the Scott. And that's so funny to me. I just think that gay boys of the 90s who read X-Men comics have complicated psychological struggles that relate to Sabretooth. Oh, yeah. He's um, Jonathan Sexton III in Welcome to the Dollhouse. He's like <laughs> bike chain necklace. He's the big high. bad wolf in the woods. And like you're it's it's into the woods and you're like, he is a manifestation of this predatory thing. But part of me wants it like that yeah. little Red Riding Hood song. It's like that's I mean, it's quite literally what Red Riding Hood's about. Yeah. Yeah. He evolves into that, which is interesting because in the 80s, he isn't that he's like just a serial. No, killer. he's like a really nasty serial yeah. killer rapist, like piece of shit, like monster. And then in the 90s, it very much is Oh, no, don't catch me, Sabretooth. Right, me at the cabin. It's an aesthetic shift alone. Like, it is worth examining that that's still absolutely true of that character. It's like that that history is still there. But but it is, I think, much like Wolverine going shift. from the creepy, ugly guy who's leching on Jean yeah. to Jean's actual love interest. Right. It shows you, fellas, you just gotta keep at it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Teens, Zoomers, that's, that part's not true. Don't. No, no, don't. Leave them alone. No, No, be polite. Be Scott. Be boring. Well, don't abandon your wife and child. Oh, God. Yeah, he sucks, too. They all suck. Be Logan. Logan's sexy and hot. But that's what I love about this franchise, that everybody kind of sucks. Oh, well, it's a soap. You cannot go It's a soap, right. Nobody comes out clean. You you have to deal with the season at hand. (laughs) Exactly. Like, you, you get the villain edit this season. You get it. That's just how it is. Anyway, Val is like, this is stupid and arranges a whole situation in which Sabretooth is apparently killed because she's like, this is a liability and Xavier is dumb, which is fun. But then he ends up breaking free from his like healing tank and attacking her. And over time, he becomes kind of fixated on her and like wanting to get back at her or whatever, which is, again, like the original big Sabretooth story, which is Sabretooth and Betsy in the mansion, he is a threat to these women and it is interesting to see them react to it. And Val, like Betsy in that situation, is not someone who's physically strong and would not be able to fight him physically. So he's scary. No, and there's a there's a dichotomy intentionally set up there, right? Because Betsy, Betsy does win. Right. Does hold her own. And in part because she has a mutant power, which Val doesn't have. Like that's exactly. the thing. It's, it's like it, Val it's, is more vulnerable. Because than I know people, people have 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 spoke of you know in this history have talked about like how powerful that means Betsy is, and I'm sure that's true. It is true, but but I've always read that as more as a as a point of reference as a dichotomy to show to show that the power of the mind. Yes, it's her mutant mind versus his mutant body. Yes, and to show like. Conversely, like what situation Val is in because she is. Yes, because Val. Not as equipped. Val's just as tenacious as Betsy, but she can't do a psychic whatever. Like she right. can't. No. So she's got 
nothing if yeah. this guy is attacking her. Yeah. And it turns out that orders have come on from on high that Sabretooth's rehabilitation process is going to continue with him on X Factor. And they're going to outfit him with a collar that's like Spike's chip on Buffy so that he can't hurt anybody he's not supposed to hurt. Mm. Everyone's pissed. Everyone's pissed. Val's especially pissed. And her asshole boss, General Bowser, which makes me laugh because of Bowser from Mario. <laughs> yeah. President Koopa is is all a rage about this. Val is like really pissed. And so he says, like, Sabretooth, rip her throat out. And I was like, what the fuck? That's how Bowser demonstrates that the collar works, is that mm-hmm. Sabretooth, oh, doesn't actually rip her throat out. It's this power play. This is the thing that it's like why you it's why you want to root for Val. This is the girl boss dilemma, right? Mm-hmm. Is like Val is facing an unbelievable amount of sexism and misogyny in her workplace, and you want to see her triumph over it. But it's like Lila Morgan on Angel. Like you want to see Lila win out over the misogynist, but like winning out for her would be making a pact with the devil and ruling over Well, that's why the best version of her to me has always been Clarice. Mm. In in the way of Hannibal's not the real villain, and, and right. in the way that she and she breaks the rules, and she you know the way she's up against the male gaze her entire career, and is just navigating her own. Well, I was thinking about how this Val and Sabretooth story is exactly a Hannibal well, and Clarice, as thing. is as is everything. Every literally a foundational text that like. Yeah, literally every property has ripped has off. done it now. But this is extremely that. Yeah. So basically, that just continues to play out. Mystique is on the team. Sabretooth's on the team. Val is supervising this team. Havoc has apparently defected. There's all this stuff. This is when they're at Mystic Falls or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But then she starts again because she does love these people. She starts lying to General Bowser because fuck General Bowser. So like Forge figures out some stuff. It's Falls Edge. Forge figures out that there was a break-in at Falls Edge and, like, someone was in his computers. Because Shard, Bishop's sister, who's a hologram, don't worry about it. (laughs) Cool character I don't have time to explain right now. No, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Forge is worried that Bishop and Shard's future is coming to pass and, like, yada, yada, yada. They don't want the government to know about shard so val lies on their behalf and like hides her from bowser and her superiors and it's again sort of a moment where val is affirmatively choosing like with the legacy virus to side with the mutants against the government or at least to keep the government in the dark and not let on that she knows something important which i feel thematically she's been on this path since behaving yeah and then unfortunately right a minute later She's the one after Onslaught who has to come arrest Charles. And she's like, her whole energy during arresting Charles is like, I, you know, I didn't want to do this. Yeah. But she does it. She locks him up. She's like, she like leaves that she's on, she's because she's still in X Factor, whatever the team is at that point, right? She, mm-hmm. and, and she's like, BRB, I'm going to go arrest Charles Xavier. At the mansion. At the mansion. She's going to perp walk him out of the mansion. Yeah, so this is where she just starts to backslide because she does that. Then she's working with Bastion for a bit, like not on purpose. Like, don't, again, don't worry about Bastion I will have to get to at some point. I truly don't want to. I actually don't know much about Bastion. That's the Operation Zero Tolerance era, and I just don't, I simply don't want to dig into it. Speaking of soul patches, (laughs) now there's an Eric Dane for you. 
<laughs> to me, he's like silver, like 52. Like 50, Bastion is like a smooth 52. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's a robot, but yeah. A 52-year-old robot. robot. Yeah, well, they have to look like something. Like Eric Dane. But then... <laughs> <laughs> not, not wrong. No. Hot robot. Hot robot. But then her next thing is like, she tries to convince Graydon Creed, the anti-mutant presidential candidate, bigot, you need to up your security. Yeah, like she's Why does trying she to care though. She, right. She, like she's let like, let him die. Killed. They're going to kill let him you. die. And it's like, what are you doing? And she really put, throws a lot of energy into this. She's like, you have to get security. Here's a team I've put together for you. It's all your favorite people. It's a bunch of mutants. It's forge, <laughs> right? It's like forge <laughs> and like Polaris, Polaris and Sabretooth. Saber, oh, and Sabretooth. We also brought this enormous, uh, world, professional wrestling looking ass serial killer and he's you love these people and he's like no thank you right and then yeah yeah he's like no and then mystique assassinates him well at the time she's like <laughs> at the time we don't know who at was. the time she's that's like, a retcon later yeah fine they won't and, and it well Graydon. i always want to i always want to call him Graydon carter which is crazy oh my god What's his name? What's the candidate's name? Graydon Creed. Graydon Creed. Victor Creed. Not, not the former publisher of Vanity Fair. Graydon right. Creed is like, he wants to kill Mystique. Because Mystique's his mother. But Val is like, no. Like, she oscillates so much in this one scene where she's, in this one scene, this one story, this one short arc where she's like, I gotta protect the ostensibly neocon Republican, like, far right candidate not neo like he's he's like not neocon like far like far alt right yeah this is like a white supremacist crazy person presidential candidate no if anything val's a neocon (laughs) (laughs) right but presenting him with these mutants this this is actually the height of her insanity as a character like this is the craziest moment that can prevent you from being killed by mutants even though you want to kill mutants and then prevents or wants to prevent mystique from killing her from killing him and then and then he gets killed by someone anyway, and later it they reckon that it was Mystique. Mystique after all, right? But then she, but, her point of order at the end of all that, it was like, no, we're going to arrest her. We're going to arrest Mystique because it's, we can't kill her. And it's like, what? <laughs> you wanted, you were part of Project Wide Awake. You wanted Sentinels to like murder people if, if they got out of hand. This is someone, in your estimation, is getting out of hand. She wants to kill the presidential candidate who you have sworn a team in to protect. This, to me, is madness for Val. This is when I started to go like... Well, the thing is, I think this is the ultimate, like, white lady ally moment in the metaphor. Like, she does not get it. No. She's forming her little January 6th committee and is like, (laughs) girl, you're part of this. She's asking the minority group to protect this guy who wants to kill them from others of their minority group. And she doesn't see why that's a big ask. (laughs) Yeah, big ask. You know? Yeah, because it's like, well, but it's the law. We don't let people murder people. It's like, but and that's when like moments later, like literally two issues, Forge and Polaris and Mystique are like, we're done. Oh, yeah, that, that's working for like, the government. If you were a mutant, you'd be a mutant, but you're not a mutant. But you're so, not. Forge so is like, you're rocks. not a mutant. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. You're you're that straight boy who threw a rock at Stonewall in the movie. version. <laughs> exactly. It turns out later that he was purposely being nasty to her because they knew Bowser was watching or whatever. It's like when the X-Men pretended they were dead. Oh yeah. I love the motif of like the, the trope of like, they gotta believe it. Right. He has to believe it. Hit me, hit me. They gotta believe it. I would never be able to do that. 
if I was if I was like a PI, Same. it'd be like hit me, hit me. So then Operation Zero Tolerance really pops off. That's when there's a whole arc with her ex-husband who now isn't Mr. Sinister apparently and is just like a real guy. Sure. He gets shot so she diverts to help with that. Havoc then, this is what's kind of interesting. Havoc at this point is, we later learn undercover but at the time it seems like he's defected to the Brotherhood the new Brotherhood that the Dark Beast is running. He invites Val to come with them because he sees the value in her even if she's not a mutant even though they're mutant liberation people, you know? And she says to him, I know that my skill, that my talent is working in the system from the inside to make change within the system. That is what I do and that is what I'm good at and that's what I will continue to do. That's what she returns to. Like her her whole thing is she I believe She can't in the let go of that idea. She believes that the system works and Havoc says that she's always been like a blind optimist, a blind-eyed optimist. Which kind of lends credence to your your interesting sort of linking of her journey from being a Reaganite to a Clinton camp. Well, that's Hillary, right? That's what I mean. Like, yeah, it's a woman who was more conservative Mm -hmm. who then starts moving toward the left but never quite gets all the way there. You know what I mean? And at which point every moment of her political ideology seems to sort of reject various... Like, she is always too conservative or too liberal for her moment. Right. That's the thing. It's never... It's never... Yeah. It's tragic almost. It's like it's a tragedy. Someone trying to catch up to themselves. Very skilled politician, but always the wrong politician for, for the, the moment. Time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And maybe an asshole. <laughs> well, yeah, but we don't have to get into that. That has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think all politicians are well, assholes, generally I, I mean, speaking. They, they kind of have to be. You have to be a Yeah, I, I just don't think anybody wants to do that unless there's something a little you have to be a little off i think you have to be a little megalomaniacal to think yeah. that it should be you who's in charge i yep. just that that is sort of how i feel that anyway but also this was odd to me because like i don't really think of val as an optimist so i thought that that was an interesting but i guess she is in the sense of like about the system i don't think she's an optimist it always bends toward justice i don't think she's bends towards justice though yeah i think she's a pessimist who thinks we need to be prepared. I think she's a doomsday prepper. Yeah, she's pragmatic. That's why I found this odd. Because she goes like, I'm only human. I'm like, yeah, and the most human thing about her is that she's not usually that optimistic. She's actually pretty cynical. It's just an yeah. odd beat. I don't know. Anyway, then Sabretooth forces her to reveal her complicity in Secret Empire MK Ultra project. Lucky girl. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Stop it. Not... <laughs> Your consensual fantasy. My specifically consensual fantasy. Is very different. To be clear. From being kidnapped out of your apartment by Sabretooth. Yeah. In the actual story. Mm -hmm. But I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But yeah, anyway, Wild Child is like, I'm not mad at her though. She thought she was doing the right thing. It's fine. Sabretooth's like, here's your chance. Kill her. Like, Kill her. And he's like, revenge. Do it. No. He's like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm like a little, I'm a little animal Muppet boy and I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. It's really fine. Then there's all kinds of stuff in Thunderbolts that I'm going to be real. I don't want to get into because yeah. I don't care that much about Thunderbolts. I don't. I, th- I think Thunderbolts is a good book, but it's just very not germane to this podcast. But basically, like, of course, Val Cooper gets involved with the Thunderbolts. The Thunderbolts were like invented, and they were like, "We got to get Val Cooper into this." Yeah, the Thunderbolts were invented in Val Cooper's shadow. Freedom Force walked so the Thunderbolts could run. Do you know if Suicide Squad or Thunderbolts predated Val Cooper? I actually looked this up. I may have looked this up 
because of our first episode. Freedom Force. Look at us. I know. We come back around again just like Val. Yeah, truly. We've, like I said, I've not learned a single thing. So there's a Silver Age Suicide Squad, but it has nothing to do with the concept that the Ostrander Suicide Squad is, where it's yes. like villains who are tasked by the government. So Freedom Force actually comes first. Hell yeah. It's Val Cooper's Freedom Force, then it's Amanda Waller's Suicide Squad. So her impact, like truly her impact. Her impact, because listen, I fucking love... Honestly, like people are like, who would win, like Batman or Wolverine, like Amalgam Comics, whatever. I want a Val Cooper, Amanda Waller, government bureaucrat with no powers. Walkers. Waller wins, Waller wins, Waller wins, Waller wins. I mean, Waller wins, but I would like to see it. You know, Oh, I, I would mean? love to see it. That would be fun. Then we get to the Extreme X-Men bit that we mentioned earlier where Claremont just writes her as basically arguing, like, before the UN, I think. Yeah. We all need to just declare that mutants are weapons of mass destruction and seize them. And Storm, this is Storm's cop era, which is, like, the weirdest thing that Claremont ever does with Storm. It's a little strange. It's just odd. Especially with what most immediately predates it. Feels so rebellious. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. She offers to turn her Extreme X-Men team into an Interpol, basically, that International cops. surveils other mutants. Yeah. Basically becomes Interpol Freedom Force. We'll keep the mutants in line. Yeah. Because I've thought about a, lot, a lot about this. A, this is not my favorite era for a number of reasons of X-Men in general. Yeah. Thematically, most importantly, yeah. It, it feels like they're becoming the Avengers, and that's... I think they're, it's a point of order that they're not. The XSE thing is, yeah, it's too Avengers-y for me. I don't like the Matrix sunglasses. I don't like a lot of <laughs> things that's happening in Extreme X-Men. Even just the word Extreme X-Men almost seems like it's making fun of what was happening at the time. For me, it's just that Claremont's politics in that period are Is this odd. when they bring Claremont back? Yeah. Yeah, and it just did not work for me. It's like when they brought Frank Miller back. We love you. Chris in, in no way would ever compare you to what happened to Frank. <laughs> God, God love him. But God, I uh, hope God loves him. But I, you know, but what it's just to me, the rebelliousness of the 80s Claremont material is so it's different so from the cops restoring order vibe to this stuff in extreme, which is just a little odd to me. I have to look at what's going on with the culture at the time. Like, I don't remember. It's right after 9-11. It's right after 9-11, right? So that yeah. makes that yeah, that's when everybody like performatively got in line. Like, it's not good. It's just not good. It's unconsidered and it's harsh. At least here, like the way I can justify it for Storm's overall arc is that she does it in order to convince Val to drop her completely insane plan to declare mutants weapons of mass destruction. But it felt to me like Claremont had not read any Val Cooper stories since he had left. It does. And that's fine. I'm that's fine. Like honestly, I am a hundred percent on board for Chris showing up and being like, "This is my I don't give a shit story." Right. Like, <laughs> these it, are my characters, and I'm going to write them how yeah. I want. Right. I believe in that. I, I I salute that. But what I don't like is uh, this is very much the era of Marvel comics of mutants of mass destruction. It's a lot of like limp suggestions towards something, and very limp related to what we were talking about earlier. How they should like genuinely address specific presence, specific hierarchies. But now we're pussyfooting around the Iraq war. Exactly. And and gesturing at mushy Zootopia metaphors. And it's like, you got to kind of throw your back into it. You got to commit or not commit, you know? Also, mutants of mass destruction isn't a metaphor. That's a 
tangential problem to a real problem. No, she says we should declare them essentially to be weapons of mass destruction under exactly. the Geneva Convention. And so it's like, we're talking about a very, we're not talking about metaphors. We're talking about a real thing. No, it's literal. And that's all of this era. I think it's contra to what's going on in Morrison, actually, which I think is not. And not unrelatedly. Literal like that. During this era, my local comic book store burned down and I had to go to the comic store at the mall. Well, that... And it was a store that also sold hats. And it was a terrible time. It was in the food court. And that's when the extreme X-Men <laughs> era was going on. And I related to that. <laughs> terrible well, there time. There you go. There you go. So this leads directly, though, into Val's most psychotic era, in my opinion, which is... 198? Yes. <laughs> she becomes Hitler's secretary or whatever? <laughs> 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 what was that bitch's name? <laughs> General Laser. Yeah, right. Sure. As opposed to not to be confused with General Bowser. Got it. So the Office of National Emergency, the ONE, decides what we're going to do is... This is on War Machine, by the way. Fuck that guy. Yeah, more like War Criminal. <laughs> <laughs> war Machine and Val figure out how to retool Sentinels so that humans can pilot them. Yeah. And turn them into military armaments. This is... We all saw Fahrenheit 9-11. <laughs> this is crazy! <laughs> yeah. But the bodies at the floor blaring in those Sentinels. And so then M-Day hits, and Val... <laughs> is assigned by the ONE to supervise all of the remaining mutants and herd them into essentially a concentration camp on the Xavier grounds that they surround with these human-piloted sentinels. Well, sure. I mean, this this order was um, initiated on the back of her incredible legacy of success in this area. <laughs> and she's always trying to convince everybody. She's like, listen, it's for your own good. While, like... Literally, sentinels are walking around. To me, she's not even written like this at this time, but to me, this era of her is like dragging a cigarette and is like, you know what, honey, just trust me. <laughs> just, just trust just me. It's it. like she doesn't even believe it, like, but she does the way it's written, but like, it's so crazy. This, where this goes, goes where it goes so quickly and in a way that does make sense. I remember being sort of moved by this storyline. I liked this storyline at the time, but I really came out of it being like, that's it for Val. That's a wrap That's on it for Val. Val. That's a wrap on Val Cooper. Is sort of, well, in terms of ever being their friend. This is crazy. Because this is crazy. So they, because it, it starts with the, the Sentinels. So all, so I don't know if you said this, but Scarlet Witch erases all the mutants. Right. Because she is having a mental breakdown. She went crazy. She went, she went crazy. She's a crazy lady. She's a brunette. So she went nuts. All the mutants disappear. There's only 198 of them left. I don't know if that includes the X-Men or not. It does, and it turns out there's more as they need more for plots, but the initial count oh, yeah, is 190. Well, when it happened, I was like, this is fun. I hope this. I hope they keep this up for at least a year, but obviously more. Really? More. I fucking hated it. Oh, I really liked it. I think it fucks up the, the, the metaphor completely, because that's not a real minority group if it's 200 people. It does, but I knew it wasn't permanent, so I was like... But it lasted for 15 years, dude. I know, but to me, it's... Which, <laughs> to me, the thing about X-Men's metaphor... They said it was permanent, and they sure acted like it for a long time. That's their gag. They love but to do that. But 15 years? I like when they stick to it. I like that Gene's... The last time Gene died, they stuck to it for a long time. That was great, but I think that this fucked up the premise of the X-Men. I know, but but it's such a long history of the of, of these characters that I'm okay with, you know, they've morphed the metaphor a number of times, right? It initially started with being about puberty. 
then became about race. Right. Then became about gay rights. Then became about AIDS. Then we, we as the culture evolved into more interesting, introspective looks at each one of those right. issues, dug in deeper to what to the levels of, of those kinds of um, panics and fears and, and microaggressions. But this one, I was like, this, this moved into 12 years is a long time. But this moved into endangered species, which is more an environmental and more about the planet dying. And to me, that became that to me it was the, the, the 2000s issue du jour. And that's why it works for me. Here's the thing. If it wasn't explicitly predicated on an editorial desire to de-emphasize the X-Men, I would probably be more is charitable. It? I, thought the, yes. I thought the Inhumans was that. That was it again. <laughs> but I thought this was I thought this predated Marvel cinema. It does, but they didn't have the film rights. And whether or not it had anything to do with the film rights, which we don't know, we do know that Joe Casada felt the X-Men were taking up too much space and that there were too many mutant that. characters. And that he, on from on high, was like, we're getting rid of almost all the mutants because it's too much. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah. So that, as an X-Men fan, was... The only time I noticed that sort of behavior was was the Inhuman shit. It was like, oh, they do. Well, the Inhuman stuff was really wild. Almost, it was like embarrassing. And that was, was like, wild. When they called a book Uncanny Inhumans, I felt like I'd like been a slapped. It's like a fuck you. It's like a it's real, real mother, son, and house of Inhumans or whatever. Like, this person was like, we will kill these people and, we, and, and you will like, accept it. That was brutal. I walked into New York Comic Con and saw the giant banner for Uncanny Inhumans and you gotta be fucking kidding me it's disrespectful that's disrespectful that is disrespectful yeah that's our word <laughs> so, <laughs> you know i can say faggot the inhumans cannot say uncanny they're simply not allowed to one of them can't say shit <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's just, well he can he just shouldn't you know he shouldn't he shouldn't yeah the part that really, it's like, I think at the end of the 198 that really chaps my ass, I'm just like, that truly is a wrap on Val Cooper, is when she's like, Scott, you can't let them leave the camp. You can't let them leave at all. Because if you do, they'll probably take me out of command. And whoever's put in place instead of me is going to be so much worse. And I'm like, fuck you, This Val. very struggle with the character because it, it's not here's the thing she's not wrong but no, that's so it's not that she's, she's wrong it's it's that truly maybe at the top of my list of characters that are in struggle with the person writing them mm -hmm. and like this arc feels absolutely at a piece with it's not as bad as her, her but the i was exit. just following orders it's as like X Factor 92, 94. I don't know how to read it as is she being pragmatic in a, you know, it's, it's the problem with the metaphor is like, is she being pragmatic to a point of saying, you know, better safe than sorry. Like, I'm just thinking of the best for us. I know it's going to be tough. We just got to get through this. We just got to be, you know, we can't go to a movie theater for five years until <laughs> COVID never exists anymore or whatever. Or is it someone criticizing the idea of this woman, in which case it feels like a Hillary criticism in a way that, like, I, like I you know, I, I feel I'm all, I'm personally much further to the left than her of that, right? Um, generally, but I that kind of thing like, perks my nose up a bit of like it feels sexist the way the character feels dumb 
all of a sudden this 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 character feels stupid like she's stupid right in a way i'm like are they critique are they criticizing women like her are they criticizing this archetype or are they criticizing this character itself is it a criticism of the bureaucratic girl boss like we didn't they didn't have, the, we didn't have yeah. the word at that time but like is this a critique or are we supposed to think she's being reasonable and you, i'm not you sure su- you summated exactly what i was trying to say absolutely yeah because here's the thing like i found that vile like pretty much everything she does in this period i found pretty detestable well, we didn't even mention this this is quite literally her second holocaust reference like this is a, yeah a crazy right. no it's like after i was just following orders she is now literally the commandant of like the xavier concentration camp no they're not it's not a labor camp but they can't leave she's fenris light at this point i'm like <laughs> It's not great. That's crazy. They're walking sentinels around the perimeter. That's crazy. Cool visual, though. Cool visual, though. It is a cool visual, but it's also literally the visual from Days of Future Past, where Rachel and Franklin and Magneto and Kate and Piotr are in the Bronx concentration camp that has patrolled by sentinels. Yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot Franklin was there. Yeah, I know. Well, that's fucked now, but what are we going to do? This is the funniest thing, because like maybe the worst war crime of Al Cooper is that she is the one who, she starts flirting with Bishop. Like, they kind of develop a flirtation. And she insists that it's not flirtatious, that she just, like, likes him. But she's the one who basically gets him to flip on the mutants. Because Civil War is coming down the pipe, and he's the one who goes with her to be pro-registration and all of that stuff. Mm. Which never attracts for me, to be honest. But That's, I'm saying, it's the beginning of the end of Bishop for a long time. Like, because this is... Extreme X-Men, whether or not you like it on the whole, that's to me like peak Bishop era. It's like Extreme X-Men, Murder at the Mansion over in Morrison, District X, all of that stuff. I love Murder and District because I love him as a Dick Wolf cop. As like a detective cop. A Dick Wolf cop is... Like a law and order character. That's thematically different than a cop. Cop. (laughs) He's Stabler. It's different. Yeah. That's why we like watching that show. It's a fantasy, yes, but like, you know. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like, it's like, wouldn't it be great if like... Wouldn't it be great if this guy existed and cared about justice, cared, you know? Yeah. Right. So him being like, yes, let's register everyone. When he comes from one of those dystopian futures where mutants got registered, he has an M tattooed on his face because he was processed in a camp. So imagine putting on your little cop uniform, looking in the mirror with that tattoo on your face. And, and he like, was a cop in that timeline, but it just doesn't it, this like, let's specifically help the government register people with powers. That's honestly like, this is when I walked away from the franchise for a while with the oh, decimation really? and civil war. I was so furious about the decimation. I felt betrayed. And then this Bishop thing happened in civil war. And I'm not even like, I mean, I haven't done a Bishop episode yet, but in part because his continuity wow, is very really? complicated. Yeah, he's probably the biggest character. He and I would say Yeah, you gotta lock someone good down for that. I've got thoughts, right? So yes. When a character that big hasn't been done yet, there's usually a reason that the character that big hasn't been done yet. And, you know, put a pin in that. There's a reason that like it took me till episode fifty seven or whatever to do magic, which of you course. would think would be an early episode, but I was waiting for a specific guess, right? I believe it. It was worth it. Great episode. Thank you. I really was happy with it. And Leah's a fun interview. Of course. But that's the thing is like, I was not a huge Bishop fan. Like he's not a character I've ever been like, yes, Bishop. I fucking loved Bishop. Bishop was my He's name. cool. I have he, nothing against Bishop. There was like, but there was no, like he was cool though. Without, like my introduction to him was the, was the show. and I The just, cartoon. Yeah. yeah. He's very cool in the cartoon. But I just, to me, like a male character really has to go above and beyond for me to care. 
He's one of the few that I like. I liked him a lot in that Extreme X-Men District X era. And that's why I'm like, and then they drive him right off a cool cliff. Slinky, cool slinky cigarette smoking detective. Yeah, with the trench coat. It was cool. Yeah. Resetting Sage by hitting her reboot button on her back. That awesome. was hilarious. Claremont was so mad about that. He was like, she's not a literal computer. And Morrison no. was like, but it's funny. It's funny. But yeah, so she sets him on that path, which leads him into the Messiah Complex arc. Which leads him into his, like, genocide era. You know I love the Messiah Complex. <laughs> I love Messiah Complex, but I hate Bishop's genocidal rampage in the future chasing after hope. No, it's crazy. That's crazy. It's so ugly, and it's a real character assassination. And it starts here with, like, Val compromising. No, so you're right. It does. Tisk tisk to Val. But there is a cool scene where she breaks General Laser's knees with a crowbar with her ponytail up, and she looks very chic. Mm-hmm. And she then goes to Bishop and she hires him to become like the mutant liaison at the ONE and like be an actual point person who understands the experience. And like, this is a good Valma. This is why it's like such a, it's such whiplash, right? This is in Civil War X-Men. That's a great Valma for her to realize like, you know what? I don't actually understand this experience and to like turn to the experienced law enforcement guy who is also a mutant of color Yes. And be like, you should be in charge of this because you can talk to these people and understand where they're coming from. And I am just by nature condescending to them because I don't understand any of what you're all experiencing right now. That's a great Val moment. It feels of a piece with the Val of the 90s. The Val I want. The Val, the I, Val want I want. Yeah. The Val I want is someone who's capable of growth. Yeah. But like if 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 Bishop did something elite, like too illegal or whatever. She would reel him in or whatever, but, but she's exactly, trying, but she's trying him. like she tried with mystique. Exactly. That's what I want. Exactly. I don't want to be wrong about you is right. What she should feel. And then she pivots into X factor investigations and Peter David, I will say I rag on that book a lot on this podcast. Cause I don't like it very much, but I think one character that he absolutely nails is Val Cooper. Me I think too. she is great through this entire run. To me, this is one of this is one of my eras with her. Oh, same. And I will say, like, I did a lot of rereading of X Factor Investigations for this show mm-hmm. because I did Monet and Siren and Madrox, and I've had to go back over this shit a whole bunch. Yep. Shatterstar, Richter. I've done most of that cast. Yeah. Darwin. I have not enjoyed my revisits, except Monet focus issues are always fun. And otherwise, anytime Val Cooper shows up mm-hmm. is a treat because he plays her in this differently. And it's clever. He's doing his whole like noir detective vibe. And so now she's like the inspector in the detective story. Exactly. He gives her a different role. She's antagonistic, but like in a way where it's like, I know you're good at what you do, gumshoe. Yeah, you know, like it's playful and sexy in a Catherine yes, Hepburn kind of way. It's very Catherine Hepburn. That's what I love about this era. And like, I don't, I, I don't love the book either. But I, I do. This is my probably my my most. It's also her most recent, but like my most contemporaneous read of the character, where I was Same. reading it while it was happening. And so, like, I loved her in this. I remember being like, oh, I know this character from those books that I read back in the day and then piecing it together in between. And then then I would read histories and biographies. But this is my uh, one of my favorite reads on the character. I love the sort of zany spy versus spy stuff. Exactly. With her and Madrox. They're always trying to outwit each other. 
There's that one time when he like blows up the building and she has to run away. That's yeah. so funny. It gives her it gives her particular point of view and her skill set a sense of life outside of Doomsday. Like it gives her a chance to do what she does. We get to see her be competent. Exactly. Without it being the end times. And it's just it's just the way she activates normally. I really do see him as the definitive writer on this character, for Same. better or worse. And I just felt the need to point that out because I have been pretty critical of the way women generally are written in that book. And I do think that Val Cooper is a really well-developed character. And much like a lot of, like, Philadelphia Story, like, all you know, any sort of old-timey gumshoe movie like that, you get one, if you do get a good, great, great female character in it, you, you know the other two are, like batshit crazy characters right and so like it almost fits into that universe of it being an old sort of well she is the katherine hepburn character and the rest of like everyone else is a crazy this is the oscar role every other woman is kind of oh boy where's my purse yeah yeah right i'll read a bit from uh this is from x-factor 32 when she blackmails him basically into doing secret having x-factor investigations do secret jobs for the government So she grabs his broken hand and starts twisting it, which Mm -hmm. is hilarious. And she goes, let me pick that up. And unless you shut up and listen, you won't be picking up anything again. I did some checking, Madrox. You owned that building you blew up. Even got the demolition clearances. Technically, you've broken no laws, but you figured by making a big demonstration, you'd show your team how tough you are and scare me off besides. Except I don't scare Madrox. Let me put this in a way that your film noir mind will understand. This is going to be the start of a beautiful friendship. Whispered in his ear. She's got a red lip on. It's great. I mean, it's so good, but it's also like that comes at the conclusion, though, of an earlier agreement where they they try to be like. He blows her off. Yeah. They agreed throughout that series to work together in a way that She's going to be a client of X Factor Investigations. The government is going to be a client. But she keeps trying to seize control. Truly. And eventually he blows up a building to tell her to fuck off. And she tracks him down and does that, which is great. It is great. And it's such a, it's such a gag. But to me, it's like, all right, I guess you do suck. Like, it's as like a Well, person. right. Because she, she's not actually willing to let him make the choice. Because they right? do. And I said, I mentioned this earlier. Like, they, I was so excited that I thought we might be on the right track where she was going to be officially be their liaison. She loves to be a fucking liaison, right? Dangerous liaisons is, is Val Cooper. And then it never quite goes there. He keeps her in the antagonist role. And I was, I was, I was bummed. But out it about feels that. like Val to me. Like it feels oh, like, no, of course, you it know, does because she is the most consistent, inconsistent character in in the right. Life. It's like it's so weird. It's like there's so many inconsistent things about this character, but she always does return to the mean. And you're like, there she is, just like Mystique, just like that's Mystique. Val Cooper. She is like Mystique that way. No matter how much the character shapeshifts, yep. she always returns to the norm eventually. Exactly. In Mystique's case, I would say that's the Claremont characterization. And in Val's case, I would say it's the Peter David characterization. I think that's right. Claremont first establishes the character, but Peter David's more nuanced, less antagonistic take from the early 90s is, I think, how people envision this character. That whole 198 era is the real aberration for me that is crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one or two issues in there, like we said, where we're like, this is a bad issue or whatever. But the 198 part is when I'm fully just like, who is this woman? Yeah. 
But the problem is it's so dramatic and it's one of her most important roles ever in an X-Men story that you can't really wave it off. To the point that's what I meant by like it has like a stink to it and it's like you can't you can't retcon this. You, you can't, can't really absolve her of that. No. It's I mean not to put too fine a point on it but there's been a lot of talk about Wanda and like how do you move Wanda past the decimation and I think you don't trial four just came out and I liked it my guess is that trial five I'm only on trial three but say what you need to say well this hasn't happened so I'm oh, just saying okay. that my I'm, my guess about trial five is that they're going to find a way to reverse the decimation entirely because I do think that's like it doesn't undo what she did but if you do that, then you can have her just go be in Avengers books and do her thing. And she doesn't need to be involved with the mutants anymore. And she can just go be a superhero because you can't undo what she did to the mutants. Like that relationship can't really be repaired. No. And because it doesn't, it's it's about what she chose to do. She literally chose to, she said. Well, and they've, and they've taken away her agency on that a bunch sometimes. Oh, but like, whatever. You know, I, I, I know. I, I disagree annoying. with that. But I also do. But I don't want to get into the wand of it all. I'm just saying Val is like that because you can't really walk back the 198 camp thing if you don't want to pivot her into being a villain which we'll get to because that's i think a natural way you could take the character if you aren't going to do that then i think you almost have to pivot her off to something like u.s agent like have her be an avengers character Mm -hmm. because you just can't really come back from the decimation stuff no that's why i think this x sector investigation arc works because Madrox can never trust her again, really. So it can't, she can't serve the role that she did when they were friends in the 90s. No, and I suspect if she shows up, he would be who they use to be like, you know how they use someone to remind you of what happened before? Yes. I would imagine he'd be the one that'd be like, what, what the fuck are you doing here? Because her other big arc is like, she's fascinated with his and Teresa's baby that's coming because there hasn't, like the first mutant baby that was born was baby Hope and that caused Messiah complex. So she's like, she protests them that she's making sure they're protected in case their baby is a mutant. Siren is like, you clearly want to take my baby and use him as a weapon. I was really hoping we'd get a second accent. And I'm trying. That was really good. Did you do accent like work? I just have an ear for them, but then people from the actual countries write in and tell me it's well, really bad. Well, you but... can't listen to them. It's got to be the the people who speak your yeah, no, it's like, could I fool impressed. an American, That's right? What I mean. Yeah, so exactly. Obviously, yeah. you can't fool them. No, I wouldn't try to. No. But I, you know, but like, if you are ever, pro tip, if you're ever lost in New York City and you need to ask someone for directions, if you do it in a British <gasps> accent, they will be much more helpful. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm not from here. and I don't <gasps> know where I'm going. I get so turned around. Diabolical. Yeah, it's evil, but it works. <laughs> I can attest. I'm not just the president of this association. I am a member. And a lost one. Well, I have a terrible sense of direction. Like Val Cooper. Yes. This leads to what I think is her best moment after Siren grabs her by the thong and carries her to the hospital because she got shot. And then Siren's water breaks. It's a whole fucking traumatic thing. We don't, I don't want to get back into the Siren baby plot again because it's a nightmare. There is a really great scene between Terry and Val where... Val's worried that Terry has relapsed. She knows Terry's an alcoholic. Terry's just like, I haven't, first of all, but also like, you don't get to judge me. You don't know any, you don't have any conception of what is going on with me. And Val is and says, I miscarried five years ago. Yeah. Doesn't say anything else. Just says that. And presumably this was with Edmund. This might have something to do with their divorce. This is mm-hmm. an interesting 
you could look back at those stories and be like, what does this mean? When did that happen? Like, when did it happen? I assume sort of recently, because to me, it gave it gave this sort of punctuation to the character. Yeah. Kind of playing on the motif of her being human. Mm-hmm. Because it's something human that happens to human people, and it's handled in a human exactly. way, whereas the siren story is so fantastical and insulting, I think this moment is so real. In a way that I think she's contrasted to Psylocke earlier. Yeah. Who, I think she is a study in contrast mm-hmm. a lot, and and I think this was a, I think this to me was a, a more interesting end, again, to the character. These things happen for all kinds of natural reasons, but I will say that my brain immediately goes to the Shadow King. Oh. Because I'm thinking about the timing of when that would be. Because this Mm. is like, in terms of like Marvel time, what's five years ago, right? That's true, yeah. That way lies madness, so. That feels 10 years ago to me. Well, at this at this moment, I don't know. This is like know. 2006. I'm, I'm mushy. I'm terrible at that stuff. I really make my own timeline, so. Yeah, no, I do too. I just, here's why I make that association in my head. Because that Shadow King plot never has the punctuation mark that it should have had. And if that's why, oh, if it's like an absence. No, that's actually really interesting. If like that's what she lost there and why her character changes kind of dramatically between those two arcs. That's a good read. That's a good read. I just think maybe that's why. Whether it's a coincidence of timing or whether her ordeal with the Shadow King contributed to that tragedy or something. I, I think that there's ways you could, because of how hard she fought to get him out of her, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think it could be interesting. But again, like if they ever tackle any of this stuff ever again, only a woman or other person with a uterus yes. should be writing this story. Yes, like, 100%. No, I don't want them to go anywhere near a miscarriage being her I just don't trust motive I just for anything. Don't trust. Uh, yeah. I just don't trust anyone with this theme anymore. No. Who's a cis man. I simply don't. No. Which is why I, I mostly come down to it just being an interesting examination of her literal humanity. Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of her last big story. Yeah. Which is a shame because I do think that this is a really like, first of all, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. We've been tangenting because I, we, we have fun, me and Patrick. And I hope that this has been entertaining ride through our word association, pop cultural. I was worried we wouldn't have enough to talk about for Val Cooper, but I knew we would, because the thing is like her vibe is so strong that I knew it would take us places. She is so emblematic of a lot of things that I respond to in culture. So same. Yeah. Like, I just, there's something about her that I sit up and I'm like, I'm fascinated by this person, you know? Where would you like to see them bring her back? So I have two thoughts. I think basically there are two ways you could go with this character. One of them is you bring her back as the role that she always has been, which is like, I'm the government's reasonable person trying to interface with the mutants. And she's sort of the American overture to Krakoa. Like, here's Val. Remember Val? You guys like Val. And they're like, no, we don't. And a couple of them are like, I kind of do. And, you know, work through some of that history and have her be the person who, like, I would die to see her negotiating with Abigail Brand. Right. On the sword station. You know what I mean? And so I agree. And it feels so funny because, like, I spent, you know, yesterday I was kind of brushing up on the character and I was thinking about it. And I was just thinking, like, oh, it's so crazy that they always set her back to zero. And I was like, what would I do with her? 
<laughs> I might set her back to zero, right? <laughs> I might set her right back to zero. Because it was like, well, not for nothing. Like, Krakoa as a nation state, like, they're talking about geopolitics in a number of ways. It, right. The metaphor has moved into There's a, never been a, a better time for this character. Scale. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. And so I, they're ne- they'll never, never do this. But you know how everybody always wants, like, the book about, like, crypto and the Thor frog and everybody like, right. every, you know, <laughs> I'm always like, I, w- I truly want a human's book. Like I, I want, sure. I want, even if it's like mostly humans, but like rogues there as like their enforcer or something like is Peter Corbeau dead? Like, no, he's around. You know, Val has appeared one more time. Val debated. Yes, you're right. That lady on TV. In, yes. In the, in the that, that X-Men book with Kitty, right? That one that that guy put that, anti-semitic drawing <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> that was no you're thinking of that's x-men gold this oh you're was right in uh cullen bunn's uncanny oh that's correct you see her on tv and like uh there's this senator senator lachlan who's like anti-mutant and she's debating with her and we see that val is still on the side of the mutants here. yeah so that's one way you you go is you you take her back to basics and you have her be the face in the way that we've seen Dolores Ramirez at the X desk, who I think is an interesting new character. Oh, I love her. Margot Martindale. <laughs> that character is very Margot Martindale. It's, to me, is that's my... Well, that's my Literally, like, Latina Margot Martindale. It's in like, my Excel spreadsheet. Oh, is she Latina? She probably should be. Dolores Ramirez, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> it has a certain ring to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I gotta think about who that should be. But I'd have to think about it, but, like, that's the energy. It's giving character actress Margot Martindale energy, for sure. So we did see that, and then she is fucking U.S. agent, which is a fun... Like, now that I've gone back and read that original U.S. agent arc, it's kind of fun to watch them. I misheard you for a second. I thought you were, like, saying that she was the fucking U.S. agent. Oh, no, that would be iconic. That would be really good. Like, no, give Val a super soldier serum. I would read that for 50 issues. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think she'd take it? Yes. Here's what to do with her. Have her take it. Have that fundamentally change what it means to her to be other. And then have her finally understand a little bit. Make some real break where she is ready to be non-purely pragmatically on the side of the minority group she professes to be protecting. There's something compelling about that. She would want it, but she would need to find a way to make it look like she was doing it while protesting. Mm -hmm. But she would want it. She'd want it. Don't make me sing. So those are two ways to take the character, actually. Like, what, But in terms of the way to take the character as a good path character, the other way to take the character that I also think would be enormously compelling, and I don't want to get into too, too much detail, because who knows, someday maybe I'll get to pitch a story or something, but I think as they're expanding Orcus and showing us how it works, it would be very interesting to have her be the voice of reason within Orcus. Because I do think that Val, while she loves mutants... Oh, she's pro-Orcus. She's pro-Orcus and anti-Krakoa. She would view Krakoa as a betrayal, I think, of her. After everything I did for you... Like, if Val Cooper had not thrown in with the mutants... This is true. This is genuinely true. If Valerie Cooper had not consistently, every time in the end thrown in her lot publicly with the mutants, she would be president by now. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should say that. That was the story I was going to actually pitch. Is Electra president? Yeah. I would be into that. 
to me, and I don't care which way you go with it. She's either friend or foe. Right. But she's the president. President of the United States. And that's why I brought it up earlier and I was hoping to save it for later, but like, have they elected anyone since Captain America president specifically? Like, I don't know. I feel like it's a good solve. I like a fictional president. I liked when Lex Luthor was president. Me, well, me too. Me too. Yeah. And in the thread of that as being threaded through the animated series. All the books. Series and, and the books. And all, yeah. Like, and the cartoons. It's and so it was spooky good. and good. Like, there's an incredible scene in Justice League when it's just Superman, like, recovering in a bed in the hospital and everything's like hunky-dory and they've they've won the day and then he's just watching a campaign ad for lex luther lex luther for president so spooky so good and it came to pass so (laughs) i think you can't do it all the time but they haven't i don't think they've done it since cap so i would love to pull a character that people somewhat know into the office so you don't have to write around it you don't have to be oblique and you don't have to pretend it's our world with our political situation you don't have to pretend it's a parable of any kind right i just think that given how completely demented our government has been for the last several years it's just a safer bet and allows i think for more fruitful storytelling to go with a fictional president who you can then push in a specific direction Without it feeling like it's a statement on the real president. Even if it's a statement on just the general concept of, of the, the president. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't. I but you can should, play with it. It's like the West Wing. 100%. Like, make it a fictional character. I think they should present us with. I think Val should run for Senate. That'd be great. In the, meaningfully in the book and have that have consequences. And that gives you four years. Six. Or six if I went to high school and I would know that. <laughs> and then you could have her run for president. And I don't know, have have Sabretooth run. You know, some kind of like theory. It's some kind of like well, reference. Great and Creed's alive again. Oh, well, there you go. Why did great why is Great and Creed Creed? Uh, Sabretooth rescued him from hell. Don't worry about it. Don't skip it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there in another episode someday. I hope, I hope someone comes on to be like, yeah, I love Great and Creed. <laughs> I know, right? Who's like the uh, Great and Creed stands? Put yeah. your hands up. But a Val Cooper versus Great and Creed presidential campaign would be a great throwback that's, that's to what that. I'm, story that's exactly where he what got I'm assassinated pitching. exactly what i'm pitching and have mystique be all funny about it but i also i do like the idea of her feeling so betrayed by krakoa that she decides to be one of the petals of orcus so that she can control she thinks orcus from the inside because that's what she's always trying to do right mm-hmm. like that's the one good thing about the one like 198 arc for her is that it is consistent with her belief as she says to havoc in Mackie x factor like no, I'm not a rebel. I'm a bureaucrat. I work within the system and I believe I can change it from the inside. Mm-hmm. Her being a person within Orcus who is sympathetic to the mutant cause and trying to rein in Orcus's greater excesses, I think would be very interesting. It would also put her and Gyrick together again, yeah. which I think would be fun. They haven't been together in a long time on mm-hmm. the page and they were so fun as foils back in the day. Has no one ever killed Gyrick? I don't think so. It's interesting that they keep him in their pocket. Before it became obvious that it was going to be Wanda, one of my theories about the trial of Magneto was that it was going to be Gyrick who died. Oh, interesting. Because that would have been an international incident for sure, you know? Speaking I mean, you know, not to to go back to the concept, but like I, an election, it's interesting that they haven't done an election. Have one of them run. Well, we just did the X Men vote. It was a I big know, election. but for, to be an X Men, like, but you mean a, like haven't really done a political arc? Why not run for Senate in New York? You know, like start small. Claremont 
always said that's where he was going to take Kitty, was that Kitty Pride was going to become the president of the United States. I love that. Like, honestly, either, it depends where they, it depends editorially how they, how they feel about Val, but, like, either have Val be who they're running or have Val be who they're running against. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I'm saying, I guess, is I think we're at a perfect jumping off point because Krakoa would really shake her to her core. It would be like Forge saying yeah. to her, you're not one of us. Yeah. I think that you could completely justify either response. Yeah. Which is her begging them, take me back, I'm your friend. Yeah. Or her being like, you know what, fuck you, but I'm going to try and make sure you don't get killed because I do care about it. If you had a gay husband, we'd consider it. But (laughs) since you don't, you're not allowed on our island. I mean, she does theoretically have a gay ex-husband if her ex-husband is Mr. Sinister, but TBD. That's true. Maybe her husband's already here. Maybe. We don't know. Maybe he's on the Quiet Council. We truly don't know. I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions about Valerie Cooper. Zach Jenkins, upcoming guest on this very podcast. Uh, Be sure to write in still with any questions you might have about Nate Gray for the Christmas episode. Zach Jenkins of Comics XF and Battle of the Atom writes, Hey there, Connor and guest. In the 90s paperback novel series Mutant Empire by Christopher Uh. Golden, Val Cooper is positioned opposite to the Marvel Universe's biggest shithead bureaucrat, Henry Peter Gyrick. I find that juxtaposition fascinating as they're both conservative government stooges, but each have their own line they won't cross. I find it interesting that Gyrick is the one currently aligned with Orcus, while Cooper is off exploring the body of U.S. agent. Do you think the characters would make a good foil for one another at this point in continuity, or is that position being filled by Gyrick squaring off against Abigail Brand, who some would call Space Val Cooper? Thanks and all the best, Zach. I do think that, I I sort of alluded to this earlier, I do think that Abigail and Val are very, very similar characters and that right now Abigail is kind of serving a Val Cooper role in the narrative in terms of like Gyrick's opposite number, doing war crimes, being a girl boss with her crew that she's ordering around. Like it does have that. But that's why I want Val in the mix because it should be a triangle. Right. Basically, I want Val and Gyrick to be the good cop, bad cop of Orcus together. I think it would be the natural fulfillment of the Project Wide Awake plot that introduced her. You could unify all of the interesting, disparate things about her character by having her join up with Orcus because she perceives Krakoa as a national security threat and a betrayal, but also be like, I'm going to subvert actively anti-mutant things that Orcus does. The only reason, the only reason I... I... The only reason I hesitate for that is that I'm, is that it only ends one way, right? Well, it ends in it ends in her death. That's how I mean you write you write the character out. She's gotta die. She would sacrifice herself for them. Oh, I think she sacrifices herself, and it's and it's the end. It's the end of that story, and she does it once again for the final time. She's like an inverse phoenix, and it would once again be a good study of contrast for her with the resurrection protocols to have yes, her truly because you die couldn't bring her back and have that be her final act of true determination. Actual allyship. Yes. As opposed to just lip service. Obviously, I hesitate always to kill off a great female character. But But it's the only way that story could end for me. I'd be so mad if she's like, whoops, I forgot again. Right. The thing is, like, I do feel like the character has been in such a holding pattern for decades now Mm -hmm. that it's almost like it's time to pull the trigger because that's where that story goes. Yeah. That's the logical end of that story. 
and they haven't done it. Yep. And I think now would be the most interesting time ever to do it. Now is the time for Val Cooper more than period. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, whatever you choose to do with this character, whether it's that or whether it's have her run for president or whether it's have her be the U.S. liaison to Krakoa or whatever you want to do. I do think and I understand that there's been a lot to cover, a lot to cover. But with the X-Men back in Manhattan and all of that cool stuff that's going on there. I do think now is the time. I think it's a shame we haven't seen Val yet in the Krakoa era because I know she'd have lots to say about it, you know? Federico Andrade writes, Dear Connor, an esteemed guest, longtime listener, first-time asker. Despite her status as an ally, Val has been many times shown as in an antagonistic role to the X-Men and mutant kind, like in the classic Claremont period, Extreme X-Men, The Decimation, and Peter David's second X-Factor run. Do you believe there's a reason she has never been explicitly used as a villain? Her belief that she knows better might be it, but a lot of villains also have similar mentalities. It'd be interesting to explore the things she could be willing to do in the age of Krakoa, with Orcus being a big threat for mutant kind. Love the podcast, always listen to it when I feel depressed and need the voice of a friend. Kisses, fat. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. I'm glad I can help. What do you think about that? That they've never pulled the trigger? I think it's specifically her aesthetics. I think she's, for better or worse, I think she's supposed to look and feel like someone who's, who means, I think she's interrogating a specific kind of villainy that doesn't pull the trigger on itself and that you, you or the culture don't pull the trigger on either and maybe let get away with a lot. Well, what's interesting is that as the country has moved to the right Mm -hmm. over the years since this character was introduced, she's sort of pivoted from being a critique of neoconservatism to being a critique of neoliberalism. And I think that's interesting. I do. Because, I I mean, and again, that's the Hillary parallel that you identified. And that can continue to be malleable. If you leave it like this, she, what she represents is the status quo and the status quo will shift conceptually and thematically and slowly and slowly she is an incrementalist who believes that if the mutants will listen to her mm-hmm. she can get them the rights that they deserve in time but you lose that you lose that um potential and sort of kinetic energy if you take her full evil yep. then you lose that and it is what makes her distinctive as a character yeah she's an unlikable heroine yeah, I personally prefer to keep Gyrick as the one who's like a real shit. Yeah. And have her be someone with good intention who doesn't really get it. Is some of this a little bit of the trope where women can't truly be evil? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, maybe that's part of it. But I like an evil female character. I mean, I love oh, Celine, I, me you too. know? But I mean, like, why they won't let it happen. Yeah, why they won't is right. Because it's like how all of Batman's female villains are heroes now. Exactly. You know? And lesbians. (laughs) And gay. I love it. But, like, she's very much introduced by Claremont as a bad guy. Yeah. And then Peter David makes her a heroine. Yep. I do think that that is in line with the fact that in the 90s, we were under a popular Democratic administration. Exactly. And she had to still be the president's special advisor. So the tone of the character changes. Mm -hmm. I don't ever want them to go full evil with Val Cooper. But I think that a flawed heroine in Orcus who thinks she's doing the right thing is an interesting character. And I think it's a little bit what they've tried to do with Dr. Alia Greger, but that character, I'm still not. I don't really, yeah, I don't really know what that's, what, what's, I don't really know much I think about Inferno may on. clear it up okay. because it looks like Nimrod's coming home to roost yeah. and all of that, right? But 
apart from the love that she and her husband share, which is opposing Mystique and Destiny's love and Mm -hmm. is like very, I think that's very interesting. Yeah. I'm still not sure like who she is because she's a new character who we didn't get to know before Hawksbox. But like a, a character like that, a role like that, particularly if the Gregors are out of the picture after Hickman departs, I think it would provide an interesting space for Val to be like, I need to be here so I can curb like Dr. Stasis and these crazy people in the way that she was always trying to curb like Mystique or Sabretooth back in, you know, like Mm -hmm. she thinks she believes she can do that. She always, that is one thing she is optimistic about. She believes that she can accomplish that, even though it has never gone well. No, she's never pulled it off once, but she's convinced, which is what it takes to be a true girl boss. Ron Catarisano writes, Dear Connor and guest, I've always had issues with Valerie Cooper since the decimation. I get turning Xavier's into an internment camp wasn't her idea, but her staff, (laughs) except for maybe Rhodey, were highly unprofessional. One panel from Messiah Complex always sticks with me. Emma had to implant a telepathic punishment to keep the ONE Sentinel pilots from spying on the mostly underage female students. (gasps) Yeah, that's bad. Good poll. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. That's bad. Also, Rhodey sucks too, though, in this. Rhodey era. sucks too, though. Fuck Rhodey. Yeah. I like truly fuck Rhodey. I've forgotten about his role in this until I reread that mini me for too, this and I was episode. Like, I was like, fuck <laughs> you, War Machine. Yeah. It's me, Hero War Machine. <laughs> I mean, your name is War Machine. Like, at least he knows. But yeah. damn. Because, like, you know, I know it's fuck Tony Stark. Like, I have, I've yeah. never been under any illusion about that. I thought Rhodey was better than that. And I forgot mm. about this whole arc. The Civil War period, not the actual one, the Marvel Civil War period sure. was not a good time for most of those Avengers characters. Neither obviously. were. You didn't need to be specific, but this one, even more. Well, I don't so. think they, were, they weren't alive for the... <laughs> right. I mean, Thor, I guess, was, because he's ancient. Mm-hmm. Hercules. A couple Avengers, I guess, who were around. Anyway... My question in general is how many of the mutant allies like the Avengers, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man would choose humanity over the mutants they call friends? Sincerely, Ronald. The answer is all of them. Each and and every one. All you need to know. And I know that some Fantastic Four fans were mad about Chip Starsky's Fantastic Four versus X-Men mini from earlier in the Krakoa era before the Franklin retcon. I thought it was great. I think Reed Richards absolutely would do that. And I thought that was like the way that he was trying to strip Franklin of his identity felt very real to me. Reed's a villain. Reed's a bad guy. And so is, so is uh Charles. It's yeah, it's that's why it was interesting to pit them. It's always uh, interesting to pit them against each other because they both suck. Yeah. They're different kinds though of manipulative patriarchs. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see them in a room together in terms of the Avengers and Spider-Man's included, because he's been an Avenger for a long ass time now. Mm-hmm. On and, off. Mm-hmm. and frankly, like Wolverine's Wolverine included <laughs> in this also, yeah. his, you know, I mean, like he's, I- I'm happy with him right now, but he is always on notice with me. He's a journeyman though. You know, like he's just like, not political guys. Just, you're like, he, okay. Dude. Yeah. He listens to Joe Rogan and he's, you know, absolutely. And says, that's not political. That, I'm, that's I'm not independent. Political. Yeah. Right. I don't vote. I'm from Canada. <laughs> I'm I'm Canadian. But you just look at Wanda. Like I don't want to I don't want to deliberate on Wanda at length because it's never fun to do, mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. but the way that they all act as though the mutants need to just get over it. It tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. I think. 
Jacob Dennis writes, hi, Connor and guest. I hope it's not too late for Val Cooper questions. I haven't read that much of her, mainly because I can only stand so much of Alex and Lorna together in the same book. Anyway, here's my question. I'm sure y'all will cover this in the episode, but what would be your favorite girl boss too close to the sun episode in Val Cooper's history? <laughs> Has she ever done such a thing? All the best, Jacob. That's a funny question. I understand that Alex and Lorna are really dysfunctional, but I do enjoy reading them together. I gotta be real. But I love that they're separated out right now. It's the best possible. It's like, this is a great era for both of those characters. I agree. And in part because they have pulled them away from each other. I think she girl bosses too much, too close to the sun when she tries to protect Creed. Created elect- it's, it's The Graydon Creed thing. It's like she can't, she doesn't know which direction to girl boss in. She's like protecting Mystique from Creed. She's protecting Creed from Mystique. She's protecting. It's relentless. It's, it's, it's nonsense. It's like just preserving. She's like, I need to preserve. I need to preserve. <laughs> but like the true flying into the sun girl boss moment to me is just the 198 concentration camp era. Like it's truly, she's just leaning in. Yeah. It's her standing in front of a sentinel. She's like, she had to do it to them. <laughs> in her little khaki. It's like, I can forgive yeah. anti-mutant prejudice, but I draw the line. <laughs> yes. It's very that. Can I spin off this question for a question for you though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight. Mm-hmm. Val, Destiny, Mystique. Who do you think, which is which? Mystique is Gaslight. Mm-hmm. She literally creates false identities and tricks people into believing she's like their wife or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like their assistant or whatever. And mm-hmm. like runs a long con. Like she was married to that senator for years. Long time. Like she runs a long con. Yeah. Gatekeep is Destiny. But like really Gatekeep is Moira. Yeah. But if we're looking at the three of them, you know, Destiny's the one who is determining which timeline to be on. True. And I'm, that's why I'm interested about this Destiny of X era that's coming up, where the pull quote was, there is no the future. There mm-hmm. is no Destiny. Irene Adler. I'm like desperate to know what realizations she's had like in the land beyond. Because Girl Boss is, is Val. Got it. Val does all of it, but the real, uh, the real trinity of that meme to me is Charles and Eric and Moira. Of course. Because Charles is Gaslight, Moira is Gatekeep, and Eric is Girlboss. (laughs) Of course. Brian Houston writes, Hello, Connor and guest. I want to know about Val Cooper's marriage to Mr. Sinister. (laughs) Yeah. So does Val. (laughs) So does Val. She still doesn't know about it. Did she ever find out Sinister was pretending to be her ex-husband, Edmund Atkinson? No. No, never once. Do we even know if he was pretending? No, we do not. No, we don't. We still don't know what that was about. I see a few options. One, Sinister was only Edmund during X Factor 74 to 75, and Val didn't catch it because it can be hard to read your ex when you meet up with them again. The Edmund that appears in the Howard Mack era is the true Edmund. Not when I do it. Two, Sinister killed and replaced the real Edmund either before or early in his relationship with Val. All published appearances of Edmund are Sinister or McClone or something under Sinister's control. Three, Edmund has always been Sinister, kind of like how Mystique found a benefit in Raven Darkholm being a government employee. Sinister found value in LARPing as a trusted authority figure in Washington, D.C. that wouldn't be in so much demand that he'd actually need to be busy. Honestly, I think option three is the most fun because I think Sinister would be a scream as he tried to play the part of a faithful husband. Also, if that was the case, then it means Val's husband and work BFF were both shape-shifting villains at the same time. Until it's time for an episode on the mandrel, make mine cerebro, Brian. <laughs> Oof, that will never happen. <laughs> I'll do Necra at some point, though, and that will be mandrel adjacent. So we have debated this a little bit. I agree that the most fun option is that he was always Mr. Sinister and that it's one of Sinister's many identities, like Dr. Milbury, the gynecologist, mm-hmm. which, God, every time I think about that, I want to die. 
sick, sick guy, sick guy. He's like, oh, I'm an obstetrics. We're like, oh, God. The more logical option is that he was just impersonating him in that first story and that otherwise we have seen the real Edmund, but I don't think we're ever going to find out because we haven't even seen Val in a while. That's my canon. It's too weird. It doesn't make any sense. I think he just popped in there to get some info from Val and... Because otherwise he's dead. Like other like that's- Right. And I think like Sinister killed and replaced Val's black husband is too weird. I'm sorry. It just is. <laughs> it just a- is. Yeah. So I, I think that the way to go with it is that that was a one-off, but it's a very funny idea that Sinister spent, that's why I've tweeted about it a couple of times, like the idea that Sinister spent years undercover married to Valerie Cooper, the way that Mystique spent years undercover as Mallory Brickman married to Senator Brickman. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's, that's probably not the case. Mostly because like, I just gotta be real. I don't think Sinister fucks women. I agree. Or maybe anyone, but but I, but specifically not. If he's fucking anybody, it's not women. It's probably his, it's probably his clones. Well, right. There's that, right? I, I I would see him fucking his clones. I also would love though. Though it doesn't make any sense now. Maybe down the road, if if where we progress with this sort of nation state thing, but I would love a sinister and mystique thing where they were the Americansing some long-term couple. Oh my god, that would be hilarious. I would love that. Desis Narrows writes, Hi Connor and guests, I've been a listener since the fourth episode of the pod, and the Val Cooper one has been what I've been looking forward to perhaps the most ever since you first not-so-jokingly suggested it. My question hopefully isn't too broad. I want to avoid being a not a question, but more of a comment type. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Dearly. Where do you see Val Cooper fitting in the future of the X-Men franchise? Do you want her to be a socially useful character? Do we need a neoliberal, well-intentioned white woman in a government position? Or has the broad social discourse moved beyond the need for such a character as a critique? I love Val Cooper, but I'd rather not just have her hanging around in the background with the other four recurring ex-adjacent politicians if they aren't going to really do something with her. Best Cisneros, he, him, from the Seattle area. So we already did this a little bit, but I wanted to read that because I think that It's exactly right. I agree. I don't want them to bring her back just to bring her back. I want there to be a plot. I don't want them to bring her back to be a critique of something that I feel we've critiqued enough That we've done already. Yeah, it's just She needs to be a different critique. We've also moved beyond that socio-political atmosphere. Well, at this I mean, point, you're critiquing the, the Hillary choir, archetype. Right? It's like, like, yeah, we get it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, she she lost. She lost. Like, she lost. you know, we're, like, why? You don't need to keep banging that drum. No. You know what I mean? We're in a place where, like, Karen is, like, this mimetic concept. Yeah. So the idea of Val as, like, a cutting-edge satire is not really contemporary. No. I, don't think. I think that at this point, everybody gets that that character is flawed, right? Yeah. I think what's more interesting is to lean into those flaws that have been established and just have her serve as a character in the plot. It doesn't have to be about the question of allyship so much as I think it should be about, like, she doesn't have to be a symbol anymore. It can be like, who is Val Cooper the person? Look at all of this history. What is her position on mutants? How does she feel about these people? What is she willing to give up for them? Because she has given up, genuinely, a lot for them mm-hmm. over the years. How far could it go? And I, I mean, I do think it's very possible that that arc ends with a tragic sacrifice. But I, I think, think that could be cool. I think it has if it's to. a good story, it could be a really good story. And the thing is, like, it's not... I don't think it's fridging if the story is about her. I don't think it's fridging if someone's been around since 1970. Oh, I disagree because it could happen to Candy Southern. It can happen to, like, it can happen. I guess, I guess, but. What I'm saying is if it's a story about the woman, 
I've said this about gay characters because there's this barrier gaze trope. And so it's like, oh, you can't kill your gay characters. I hate that because if a character is off limits for death, then the character has no stakes really in their narrative. Also, death is an integral part of gay culture, like, and history. Like, it's, yes. we're not ready. I don't, I don't want to, go, to completely leave behind that. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's a different episode. But yeah, I just, I don't like the idea that because straight people, or in this case, men or whatever, you know, because the majority has written the minority or the marginalized group at times in ways that are destructive, I don't think the answer is to say, so you can't do that plot. Yeah. Because I think that that precludes the characters from participating in the full richness of story. Yeah, and their own their own arc. We need to be afraid that any character could die. I agree. Or that any character could suffer some terrible loss because if a character is Teflon because we don't want to play into any tropes ever, then that character is sealed in plastic and doesn't get to do it. Which anything. is sort of the Black Widow problem in the movies is that everyone has a different right. issue with her because she's the only woman on the team. So right, so she has to be everything. She absorbs all of it. There are so many women in power positions in this franchise, especially right now with Storm as the Regent of Soul and Abigail Brand on the Sword Station and yeah. Emma yeah. and the Quiet Council and Destiny and all of that that like... I think you can do an arc where, and you don't have to kill her. I'm not saying you necessarily no. have to kill her, but you could do an arc where some real hellacious shit happens to Val Cooper, and I don't think it would be sexist because if it's a story about her, I agree. There's a panoply of these female leaders now. I want a story about who she is as a person because she is this classic franchise yeah. character. And should it broadly help the progress and the fight of mutantdom largely? That's fine. But it, I don't think it. I don't think it makes her death in service of someone else. Like for that to happen, I, I think it's so squarely about her specific arc. The way that we would write it, if we were writing right. it, I, it would be about her storyline. It would be a culmination of everything that has happened to her since the eighties, yeah. and it would make sense, especially if you loop Kyrick in. That's the thing. Like, there's so much. I just the thing the problem and this is like you're saying they would never do this book is like I just want to write a book about like Val and Gyrick that's like mm -hmm. damages or something yeah, you know oh what I mean God. like what a good that would be incredible but like who would ever greenlight that as a superhero comic they oh would you know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> sponsored commercial free by Lexus damages mm. premiere yeah I would love that Glenn Close in her heyday like as a young woman oh. Yeah. I mean, always in her heyday, Glenn Close, as far as I'm concerned. She'll be in her heyday until she's a thousand. But yeah. Glenn Close, like in the 80s, would have been an incredible Val Cooper. Like Glenn Close I mean, and Jagged Edge. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Stan Glenn Close. Always. Always. Ian Hernandez writes, Connor and Guest, thank you so much for taking my question about the incredible Valerie Cooper. With so many heavy hitters covered in season one, I'm actually loving the variety of secondary characters we're covering so far in season two. After the Multiple Man episode, I had a fun Twitter dialogue with you and Alana about Val Cooper's political leanings, which I recall settled on the fact that she's a NatSec career civil servant, which means she could go either way. But apparently there was just a US agent mini that established a romantic past between them, and I don't see how anyone who leans remotely blue dates a guy like that. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't met any girls in the beltway <laughs> lately probably i know and then i thought what if that tryst was a little fetishy like she'd hesitate to Ex actually well, date a mutant exactly. but a non-mutant superhuman is definitely on the table my question is what do you think val's taste in men is and when is she going to give in and bang some mutants until marvel pays you to write maddie Pryor stories and even after they do make mine cerebra well your lips to god's ears that would be a dream i love this question i think he nailed it 
I think that's exactly what she sees in him. And I think that's exactly what motivates her. And I think she's the exact kind of Ann Coulter fucking Bill Maher person. It's literally that. Yes. It's, it's, it's so, it's so well reasoned in the bones of that character to me, actually. Which also it's Ainsley and Sam in the same way, Exactly. you know? Exactly. But like in this case, it's, she's the moderate conservative and he's the further right conservative. Well, sure. But that, that makes sense for the political reality they used to live in where that was the case. Exactly. Where now it's sort of center liberal and left liberal and then everything else. And then everything else, right? Yeah, Yeah, we've kind of, yeah. Switched that a little bit. I mean, I think that if you look at the two men that we've seen her romantically involved with, there is a pattern, which is that they are patriotic men who work for the U.S. government and seem to be generally somewhat conservative. I don't think Edmund is like necessarily like a conservative, but... He loves the truth, though. (laughs) But he's a military guy. Like, you know, he's that kind of mentality. He also is this huge, hot, muscular guy, especially in the Mackie story where he returns. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go to the back to the original U.S. agent story that Grunewald does in Captain America in the 80s, He's hot, like U.S. agent. He's he is uh, he walks. He looks like Dolph Lundgren, and Val's mm. just like looking up, 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 up at this like giant blonde Adonis. Mm. It's an arresting image. I think she is into Captain America. Mm. Like that's the but she knows that Steve Rogers wouldn't fuck her with U.S. agent's dick. <laughs> yeah, Steve Rogers doesn't fuck Republicans. That's no. not a thing he's gonna do. Mm-mm there is an appeal to her in sort of the off-brand. And I wonder if Edmund is a compromise choice instead of someone else. That she, like, I, I feel like U.S. Agent is a compromise because she's never, she knows that she and Steve would never have that kind of I think she also likes a little bit of, I don't think this is a hate fuck, but I think she likes a little bit of a hate fuck. I think she likes a little bit of a martini beltway. I was a little conflicted about it only because, like, she was his superior and they had, like, a professional relationship back in the 80s. And so, like, is it maybe a little sexist to, like, retcon that they fuck Mm -hmm. and like maybe but on the other hand it's so in character that i was just like i love this i mean it's a smell test thing i think you're like i think that's just like your mileage may vary on it yeah i mean like i I liked it i know val cooper like i i I believe that this person exists i believe that this is a real person in my brain who would do exactly this thing that's fine And i think it makes him more interesting and given that like falcon and the winter soldier just made that character a character that they're probably going to have around because he's an mcu character now you know, I think maybe tease that out because I'm sure Gyrick wants him in Orcus. I mean, I think they're sort of going Julie Louise Dreyfus as for, I think they're murdering that with the Val Cooper character. Yes, in the show, yeah. for sure. But that's because Val Cooper's an X-Men character and they haven't dropped any X-Men characters exactly. in the MCU yet. Yeah. Like to the point where instead of the Madame Hydra everybody knows, which is Viper, they're using Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. Mm-hmm who is a more obscure character, more famous in the 60s as Nick Fury's love interest before she was That's revealed to as, be yeah. a Madame Hydra in a twist in, like, the aughts. Cool. Honestly, I don't like the Contessa is evil twist, so I was no, kind of bummed that they did it in the MCU. Because no. I also think that Ophelia Sarkissian, Viper, Madame Hydra, is a really love great that. character. Love Madame Hydra. And honestly, Julia Dreyfus would be a superb Viper if you wanted to go older with that character. With like a swoopy bang? <laughs> yeah, sure. Anything but a purple streak. She might have a green wig if she was Viper. Well, exactly. 
but it'd be all dark green. I would be love like, that. Kind of, it'd be cute. So yes, I think she is attracted to like this sort of hyper-masculine form that evokes the superhero. I don't think she has like a mutant fetish though. I don't really think that's her bag. And I think that she might even think of it as a conflict of interest. I don't think she's a mutant fetish, but I think she's attracted to the idea of like his bootstraps powers that he's like, even though he got it from a, a chemical or whatever, to be like, he's doing it. He's like the toughest guy who's not right. like one of them. I don't think that like an Omega level mutant arouses her. I think she is like turned on by someone almost specifically. I and mean, this is why I think she would take the super soldier serum herself, because I think that she is enamored of the idea of a regular human becoming superhuman. Yeah. She is sympathetic to mutants, but I don't think, I think she is hurt that they reject her, but I don't think she actually wants to be one. No, I, yeah, I think she's kind of like a gay guy who likes straight guys. She's like kind of a check hunter. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? David Welsh writes, I'm so excited that you're digging into Mutantum's most complicated frenemy. I'm sure you'll get a ton of nuanced questions about this character, so I'll ask a stupid one. It's obviously in Krakoa's interest to keep Val out of Orcus, so let's say that the Quiet Council decides to throw her a bone and give her a new X-Factor squad as a distraction. What C-list mutants would the Quiet Council pick to keep Val busy? God, they, of course they'd give her a Black Ops group. I love this question. You know who I would do? I've got Feral. Oh, cool. Because it would be like Mystique and Sabretooth at the same time. Like in mm -hmm. terms of like Val's dynamic with like this, I got to keep this crazy terrorist under control. Mm -hmm. Beak. <laughs> Get Beak in there. Get Beak in the mix. Get Beak and Angel. And the kids. Why not? We know Val has a weird interest in mutant kids. It's true. Not anymore, probably, because there are lots of them getting born now. Get Hot Beak in there from like that Phoenix egg future. <laughs> Man. From Here Comes Tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, He's like an eagle. The descendant of Beak, Tito. Oh, is that his like grandson or something? Yeah, it's his grandson. Oh. I have to say, um, that's a hot bird. Yeah. That's a very fuckable bird. Yeah. Coming off the Sauron episode where I said I wasn't into the... Into birds? The Tyranodon of it all. Yeah. But I would, uh, I would, I would fuck that bird man from that alternate future that got erased. Absolutely. The run. Yeah. He was hot. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't like kiss his beak mouth. I, I would consider it. I would consider it. He's dressed like Bruce Springsteen in it too. I know it's he's <laughs> hot. It looks, but it looks the beak looks sharp though. The I beak, would be concerned. Yeah, just sharp enough. <laughs> I love this. We're learning so much about you today, yeah, Patrick. Your, your saber tooth <laughs> fantasies and your your beak lust. Yeah. Carolyn Barnes writes, "Dear Connor and official Freedom Force correspondent Patrick Sullivan." <laughs> That's cute. I understand that asking about ages of comics characters is a fool's game, but nonetheless, I have to ask, approximately how old do you think is Val Cooper? I would assume a person with her education and position was a bit older, but the images I can find of her seem to be all over the place in terms of presented age. Is she a girl boss prodigy, or does she simply have a prodigious skincare routine? Somewhat relatedly, who would you cast to star in the six-season Val Cooper prestige drama, which will surely be a result of your continued attention to the character? Thank you, as always, for the magnificent podcast, Carolyn, they, them. I love Carolyn. What do you think? So, well, it depends where she is in the in the timeline because the first part of the question was about just how old she is generally. How old is she generally? So let's do that first. And I, I thought, I think for sure, I thought she was early 30s. I thought she, or very late 20s, early 30s. like When she's introduced, Ains for sure. Ainsley Hayes. Yeah. She's the special assistant to this yes, guy. Like, but I think she's the sliding new. time scale, she has spent most of her time to me in her late 30s. Yeah, I would say, I think, she, I think of her as about Emma's age. Mm-hmm. Which to me is 40. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that 
people she don't is about agree, it. But... she is no she is about i think she is exactly emma's age if not if not like a hair younger she might be a little younger than emma yeah because she was definitely i mean she was a she was a prodigy we, i'm we gonna throw know i'm gonna throw someone at you julia styles i love that Me too. that's a great pick current day julia styles blase a little chilly probably means all but also probably thinks that she knows a little bit better than you and is going to make a tough call and can bounce off i think probably the the tone of the mcu mm-hmm. people right now i don't know how her american accent is but I think Romola Gary is <laughs> really were, good. I thought you were just talking about Julia Stiles. No, no. I, I was thinking of a different actor. I was actor. like, I think it's fine. She is American right yeah. now. Romola Gary, I think, would be really good. I love that. Good choice. And she's one of my top picks for Emma, so I'd rather they do that. But Rosamund Pike would be Rosamund Pike is a Emma, sensational is Valerie Emma, Cooper. So but to me, she's Emma. She's our she's a current day. She's today's Emma. So I yes, can't, I Emma can't right even, now. Yeah, can't I can't. Her. I just can't really escape that. Like Julia Stiles in the Bourne movies is sort of a Val Cooper. Yeah, no, she'd be good. I mean, honestly, it is a shame that they've wasted Emily Van Camp on. Uh, well, I know. She, I mean, on Sharon Carter, who is a nothing character. And also have wasted Sharon Carter. Like I like Sharon. I, like I Sharon. don't feel like they've ever given Sharon enough to do, even in the comics. You know what I mean? I even just the murder. I thought they would give Sharon some kind of tragedy at least. But Well, I think the power broker angle is cool. But you have to lean Was into it. Was she the power broker? Yeah. That's the twist. Did you not finish it either? No, you didn't finish it. <laughs> I didn't, but I know the twist. <laughs> no, I watched it. I watched it. Yeah. Okay. Carl Lumley's great. He always is. They just kind of fuck him over a little bit yeah. and make him say some shit. I watched <laughs> one episode. I think Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan are great. I love Adapero Oduye, who popped up much to my surprise uh-huh. in an MCU project. I quickly realized the show was not for me and I did not watch any further episodes. Last question. Alex Buckland writes, Dear Connor, an esteemed guest, longtime listener, first time caller here, and I'm just wondering, how much cunt does Val Cooper serve? What kind of cunt is she serving? Is she gaslighting, gatekeeping, and girl bossing? These are very important questions. I've been such a big fan of the pod, and I had to leave my first ever question on a girl boss episode. Thank you so much, Alex slash Blue Romantics on Twitter. That made me laugh, and I think we've covered that yes, she is doing all those things. I think she is serving presidential realness. I do think a presidential run for Val Cooper would be good. Here's the thing. I think a presidential run, and this is, you don't, do not just make it, we're parodying Hillary Clinton. But I do think that a run where Val Cooper loses the presidential election would also be fascinating. Me too, especially if she is our pragmatic. Yes. And if she should win, but she loses in part because her past associations with the mutants are a problem for people. I mean, I think that would be interesting. I agree. Well, Patrick, is there anything else you'd like to say about the bitch Val Cooper? Oh God. I think we, I I think I might've said everything there is to say about the bitch Val Cooper. Well, thank you for returning to the pod. I had a lot of fun doing this episode. It's a bit of a wild romp, but I think we made something special. Why don't you tell the listeners, remind them if they haven't listened to this sneak episode in a while, where they can follow you on social media and plug anything that you want to plug. Sure. Absolutely. I'm at Patch Navalis, which is Patch and then Sullivan backwards, on Twitter and Instagram. And um, nothing else to plug, really. All right, then. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more 
trying to think if there's anything else. Well, you know, just go to Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast, and see what you can see. The rest of December will be unfolding with Anthony Oliveira on Exodus, Ash Elaine on Prodigy, and Zach Jenkins on Nate Gray. I am really excited about those episodes. Questions are still open for Nate. Get those in ASAP, please, because I am recording in advance this month because the holidays are coming and it's going to be a mess. So let's get these things in the can. Thank you, as always, for your support. I got my Spotify wrapped for podcasters uh, the other day, and I was... The stats were crazy. You all posting your wrapped with, like, so many of you. I was the top podcast. Like, it just... It's crazy. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for the support, for the kind words, for listening. The reaction to the show blows my mind every week. Thank you all for particularly your really lovely messages about the episode of my dad last week. That was a special one. And I wasn't sure how it was going to play because like I know my dad, but you guys don't know my dad. So I didn't know if it was going to read. And apparently people really liked it. So that makes me happy. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladine tier at patreon.com slash you can support the podcast materially and get an ad-free version of every episode as soon as it goes up. There are going to be ads on this podcast very soon. I have finally got the sponsor situation sorted out. So stay tuned for that. I'm hoping I can make them fun. But if you would like to not hear ads, you can just give me $5 up front. And I would love that for us. There are also bonus episodes on a not super consistent schedule at the moment, but I have a bunch coming down the pipe that I'm excited about. So thank you for your patience on that if you've been waiting for them. We've been doing a lot of long episodes this season. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening. Patrick, thank you again for being my guest. I do want to apologize for this episode, but I was just following orders. (sighs) Tragic. Yeah. Well... Until the next atrocity against mutant kind that Val Cooper has to try to manage, bye. Goodbye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.